It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way Welcome to the mop-up for, uh, what is what is today? It's Friday, Thursday, whatever. It's uh, February 25th, right, Dan? 2021? Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, thank you, sir. Welcome to the mop-up for February 25th, 2021. I'm David Feldman. This is a pledge-isode. This show is commercial-free, and so it allows us to tell the truth about Amazon Amazon and Amazon, as well as Google, which owns YouTube, Walmart, Apple. You can only tell the truth about the corporate power structure if you don't take their money. I don't take their money. There used to be public radio stations that took no corporate funding. Those days are long over. NPR gets more money from corporate donors than it receives from the government or you, the listener. NPR, PBS, they're all run by executives and anchor people and producers who each earn in the high six figures each year. They have no intention to challenge the status quo. At best, they will state a problem, but never dig deep enough to reveal what causes that problem. The show takes no money from corporations. We are beholden to nobody except you, the listener, and that's why I'm asking you to go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the donate button. We also have a Patreon account right now. Please support this show. I know that the economy sucks. And I also know that we all waste money on useless crap. This show is not 
useless. The people who do this show, the people who listen to this show are not useless. So instead of grabbing that second helping of Whopper and fries that's going to kill you, instead of grabbing that second helping of Whopper and fries and the Coke and the Coca-Cola that will kill you, the Coca-Cola that signs deals with gangs in Colombia to protect their product, the union-busting Coca-Cola, the union-busting McDonald's that spies on its workers, instead of giving them money, they sp- McDonald's, it's just revealed, spies on its workers to determine who's for the $15 an hour movement, and then they fire them. So when you support McDonald's, you support the oppression of workers. Instead of giving them your money, give it to this show, which is far more nourishing. Instead of listening to this show while you're going for a drive, go for a walk and donate what you just saved in gas to this show. Instead of ordering greasy takeout, listen to this show while you prepare a healthy meal and send this show the money you saved by not having garbage brought into your home. I know not everyone has money, which is why I'm asking those of you who are having a slightly better year than others, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the donate button. We accept all major credit cards. And if you donate, here's my promise. You will get nothing in return. There's no overhead here. You you, you don't get a T-shirt or a coffee mug for supporting this show because that's a waste of your money and a waste of my time. The money you donate goes into the upkeep of this show. It shouldn't go into trying to get more money out of you by mailing you stuff you don't need, which will only end up in a recycling bin. Let's try to limit our carbon footprint here. No gifts, okay? Getting excited over receiving things in the mail is childish. Stop with the Amazon. Every day isn't your birthday. And they're not gifts, okay? They're bribes. So I'm not sending you a bribe just because you donated money to the show. What's my business model, you ask? My business model is this. Give me money. (laughs) That's my business. That's my business model. Give me money or don't give me money. That's all. <laughs> That's also my business model. The, the show is free. <laughs> the show I keep getting asked, what's your business? <laughs> what's your business model? It's give me money. That's my business model. Or don't give me money. That's also my business model. The show is free, all of it. I'm going to do it, uh, whether you like it or not. And uh, I'm going to do it if, even if you don't listen. I'm going to do the show. You can listen to it for free or you can send me money. I really don't care. I do care. I need money. And I will send you an email thanking you for the for the money, please. That's all you're getting from me is an email until they figure out a way to charge for email. Uh, And to those of you who donated in January, I haven't sent out the thank yous. I apologize. I'm I'm catching up with emails this weekend. Starting Saturday, we're not doing any benefits, no pay-per-views. I'm focusing on thank you notes. I will send out my thank you notes for January. It's 
It's been a very busy February, and uh, there are so many hours in each day, and I don't want to spend them raising money. West Virginia is one of the poorest states in the union. A recent study placed West Virginia as 46 in America's ranking of healthiest states. It comes in 49th on the list of states with the highest level of education. There's only one state least educated that, that is, has less of an education than West Virginia, and that is Mississippi. Why would the least educated state have the most impossible spelling? Why would you ask the people of Mississippi to spell something like Mississippi when they're that uneducated? PolitiFact says West Virginia has the lowest workforce participation rate in the nation. One would think that West Virginia, a state suffering this way, a state that's been left behind, one would think that the people of West Virginia would, would vote for a party that believed in unions, Medicare for all, and raising the minimum wage. And yet, Senator Joe Manchin is the lone Democrat from West Virginia. The governor, the attorney general, the three Congress people, the state house, the state Senate are all Republicans. And West Virginia went for Trump both times. They only have Joe Manchin. The Democrats only have Joe Manchin. Why can't Democrats crack West Virginia? Well, because they offer nothing to the impoverished, and West Virginia is impoverished. The Democrats offer them nothing. Republicans offer them guns, Jesus, and scapegoats. At least they're offering something. The Republicans offer patriotism, and they recognize that the people of West Virginia are aggrieved. And the Republicans not only recognize that the people of West Virginia are in pain, they, they, they point fingers. They tell the people of West Virginia who's behind their suffering. It's a lie, they tell them lies, but at least the GOP recognizes both the problem and offers solutions, which the Democrats don't do. They just, the Democrats just offer recognition of the problem. They don't know how to solve the problems in West Virginia, the Democrats, because they don't relate to the people of West Virginia. Because the Democrats, ever since the Clintons took over the Democratic Party, the Democrats offer education as the answer, which is another way of saying if you're poor, it's your fault. You didn't study hard enough. That's the message that the Democrats offer to the people of West Virginia. The idea that education is all these people need is disrespectful. It's condescending. And it's why West Virginians don't vote for Democrats. When Obama, Elizabeth Warren, Bill Clinton, when they go to West Virginia, they they can't imagine that that what worked for them, that what worked for Obama or Bill Clinton, what raised them out of poverty, they can't believe that that's not the solution for others because it worked for them. It worked for Obama and Clinton, so it has to work for everybody else. Dr. Martin Luther King said, no labor is really menial 
unless you're not getting adequate wages. That's what Dr. Martin Luther King said. He, he said there's no such thing as menial labor, only menial wages. There are only menial wages. Now, do you think Obama believes that? Or Nancy Pelosi? They look at cleaning ladies as pathetic. They look at people working at McDonald's as pathetic. They want to lift these people up from those jobs. They view those jobs at McDonald's as a way station, as, as a rung on the ladder to a white-collar job. People who work at grocery stores are pathetic to the Obamas. That's why you don't see the Obamas or the Clintons or the Bidens marching with the McDonald's workers who are trying to get a $15 an hour wage or with the Kroger's workers in Los Angeles who are discovering that Kroger's is shutting down their stores because L.A. voted for hero pay. Now, uh, the Obamas, the Bidens, the Clintons, the Pelosi's, the Schumer's, they look at grocery workers Uber drivers and the Democrats, they want to lift them out of those jobs. And of course, the only way to lift these people out of these quote unquote menial jobs is to educate them so they can put on a white shirt and tie and spend 12 soulless hours shuffling paper inside some dreary office park. What never occurs to the Democratic leadership is that being a grocery worker is actually interesting and challenging. You're moving. You're meeting people. You're not suffering from claustrophobia. And you can actually point to something and say, I did that shelf. I stocked that shelf. Driving an Uber is fun. It's exciting. You go wherever the day takes you. Cleaning homes isn't demeaning. Taking care of children or the elderly isn't menial. As Dr. Martin Luther King says, it's the wages that are menial. In what universe does the charlatan pushing paper back and forth on Wall Street, extracting value from the marketplace, not adding to it, extracting from it, in what universe does this grifter have more value than the woman who watches your child for 10 hours each day. The woman watching your child is the most important person in the world, and yet she can barely survive. And even though she loves taking care of your child, she loves what she does. Every second of her day, she is constantly reminded by the Harvard elitists who run the Democratic Party that she needs to better herself. She doesn't need to better herself. She's better. She takes care of your kids. She's better than you, Chuck Schumer. She is told by the Democratic Party not to take pride in what she does. What she needs is a degree. Taking care of kids is something you do while you try to figure out what you're going to do with your life. 
What is more noble than taking care of children? That's why the Democrats don't win in West Virginia. And that's why Republicans win the working class vote. It is amazing how stupid these hyper educated grifters who run the Democratic Party. It's incredible how stupid they are, how clueless and out of touch they are. Every four years, I have to put up with these Democrats wondering why the working class votes against their own self-interests. It never occurs to these cowards from these elite schools that they offer nothing to the working class. They don't even offer patriotism. The Democrats look down on working people because the Democrats lack values. They lack values. They think that a person's worth is judged by what kind of education they have. They judge a person by the content of their resume, not the content of their character. Do you think Joe Biden has, has character? You think Obama has character? And the working poor, they see right through the Democrats. They know the Democrats have no values. They fight for nothing. Joe Manchin is the Democratic senator from West Virginia and has had, by West Virginian standards, everything handed to him in life. He grew up in a small coal mining town and his father and grandfather did very well. They owned stores that sold furniture. They had a grocery. They, they sold carpets to the coal miners. Manchin, Joe Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, lacked nothing. And he went into the family business, not the furniture business, not the carpet business, not the grocery stores, the other family business, politics. Joe Manchin's father was the mayor of the city that Joe Manchin grew up in. And it turns out that Manchin's father was a coward, just like Joe. So he had to go in to his father's business. And it turns out his father was the mayor of that town before him. This is a tradition of cowards who can't make it on their own. They get help from their daddies. And so Joe Manchin, by accident of birth, had a career carved out for him in politics. His uncle was like a a leader in the state legislature of West Virginia. He rose through the ranks and he went from state assembly to state senate and then he became governor of West Virginia and then he became senator. He's the only Democrat representing West Virginia in Washington. That's all the Democrats offer the people of West Virginia. A pampered son of the West Virginia aristocracy who has had everything handed to him, who never knew what it was like to be hungry, who never feared that he was going to get fired from a job, who always had a safety net. He's the Democrat representing West Virginia. And now he's the one, he's the one opposed to raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now, they may do it through reconciliation. The parliamentarian is making a ruling on this today. She may have already ruled that it can be attached to the stimulus package. The point is whether or not it can get attached to the stimulus package and can be 
pushed through through uh, reconciliation. Joe Manchin is opposing the $15 minimum wage. The senator from West Virginia, a Democrat representing the poorest state in America, is opposed to raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And the Democrats wonder why they can't crack West Virginia. Joe Manchin is opposed to Medicare for all. He's opposed to making Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico states, which the Democrats could do right now. But then Joe Manchin wouldn't be important, would he? Because we'd have four extra senators who'd be Democrats and nobody would be turning to Joe Manchin. He wouldn't be a power broker anymore. Joe Manchin opposed Dodd-Frank. He voted to ease the Dodd-Frank regulations on banks and lenders who were illegally foreclosing on the homeowners of West Virginia. He's preaching austerity now. He's worried about balancing the budget now. So why does he win in West Virginia as a Democrat? Well, he opposes same-sex marriage. He opposes the DREAM Act which would give children of undocumented immigrants a pathway to citizenship. He supports Trump's wall along the border. He gets an A rating from the National Rifle Association. And of course, he's pro-life. So he's a Republican. But he calls himself a Democrat. And of course, the lie that the Democrats promulgate is well, that's the only way we can get a Democrat to win in West Virginia. He has to be a Republican. And yet in 2016, Bernie Sanders demolished Hillary Clinton in the West Virginia primary. Bernie Sanders in 2016 destroyed Hillary Clinton in the West Virginia primary, destroyed her. Hillary Clinton lost every county in the state of West Virginia to Bernie Sanders. Every county. Bernie got 51% of the vote in the West Virginia primary. Hillary got 35% of the vote. Yet somehow, Hillary Clinton ended up winning the state. When all was said and done, she got 19 delegates and Bernie got 18. Somehow, Bernie Sanders lost West Virginia in 2016. So the lesson we take from 2016 was Hillary did better in poor white working class states than Bernie did because she won West Virginia. Hillary, that's all anybody remembers, that she had more delegates. Even though Bernie destroyed her in every county and beat her by 16 percentage points. The lesson the Democrats took from that is that someone like Bernie preaching Medicare for all or a $15 minimum wage, you can't sell him to the working class. Now, in 2020, West Virginia went to Biden because by the time that primary came around, Bernie had suspended his campaign and endorsed Joe Biden. And so all we have is Joe Biden in the Senate. And because there's a 50-50 split with the vice president casting the tie vote, uh, the Democrats can't make a move without placating Joe Manchin. Now, 
There was a time when the Democratic Party played hardball. This was before Reagan. There was a time when the Democratic Party was controlled by labor unions. And we had politicians who didn't come from the elite Ivy League schools. We had politicians who catered to the rank and file. They didn't cater to the cowards who work on Wall Street. Unfortunately, Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, is a bag man for the financial sector. He doesn't know how to twist arms, and he doesn't want to twist arms. He just, he wants to raise money and then dole it out. But if Schumer weren't a product of Harvard, if he had dirt underneath his fingernails, if he weren't an elitist, he would know that Americans need at the very least a $15 minimum wage, which the Congressional Budget Office said last month, that raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour would raise, at the very least, 1 million Americans out of poverty. Do you, do you understand? We have foreign listeners. 1 million Americans are already working. And if we raise the, the minimum wage to $15 an hour, they would not only have a job, but they'd also no longer be poor. So this isn't about, <laughs> this is insane. You, you have a job and you're still poor in the wealthiest country in the history of civilization? Go F yourself. Go F yourself, America. This isn't about education. This is about what Dr. King said. There are no menial jobs, only menial salaries. The Democrats don't understand that all work is noble. Everybody wants to work. There is dignity in work, any type of work, unless it's Wall Street, unless you work in the financial sector, in which case you should commit seppuku. There is no dignity in slave wages, but Schumer, Pelosi, Biden, Harris and, and Joe Manchin, they don't know the precariat, as they're now called. They don't know about the millions of Americans who are, who are doing everything they were told to do and are still one paycheck, one asthma attack that requires hospitalization, one sick grandparent away from living on the street. Schumer, Pelosi, Biden, they don't know the precariat, which, by the way, makes up a vast majority of Americans. More than 50 percent of Americans can't come up with $600 for an emergency. This was before COVID. So the Democrats, they just lie to the precariat. The Democrats just look at the Americans as people who should be lied to. But it turns out Joe Manchin has a secret. Joe Manchin has a secret, a big, dirty, filthy secret. And if Chuck Schumer really wanted to get the minimum wage bumped up to $15 an hour, he would play hardball with Joe Manchin. If he really wanted to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, Chuck Schumer would bring Joe Manchin into his stately office and tell Joe that Joe has a secret. This is the way... Trump plays politics. This is the way Lyndon Johnson played politics. You tell Joe Manchin, you have a secret, 
And if it ever got out, you'd be done in politics. See, Joe Manchin has a daughter, Heather. And, and Joe Manchin's daughter, like all young kids, was once struggling. She didn't know what to do with her life. So one day, Joe Manchin, when he was a lowly member of the West Virginia Senate, this was back in 1992, one day he just happened to run into the CEO of the pharmaceutical giant, giant Mylan. He ran into uh, uh, this guy named uh, Puskar, Puskar who was the CEO of Mylan. <clears throat> and uh, Joe Manchin told Puskar that Heather, his daughter, needed a job. And so Puskar pulled some strings and got Joe Manchin's daughter, Heather, a job. And as Joe Manchin went from West Virginia Assembly to West Virginia State Senator to Governor of West Virginia, and to Senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin's daughter, Heather, of course it has to be a Heather, she somehow rose with him, just in one company, at Mylan. She started out in the Mylan factory, and within a couple of years, she, let's say two decades, one company is all she had to work for. She had a net worth of more than $50 million that we know of. Turns out she became the CEO of Mylan. And six years ago, she became, uh, she got listed as uh, Fortune's uh, 22 most powerful woman in the world, Joe Manchin's daughter. She doesn't go by the name uh, Heather Manchin, by the way, because Joe has a secret. The people of West Virginia couldn't know this. His daughter took over as CEO of Mylan one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. Now, she lied about her MBA. She claimed she got an MBA from West Virginia University. That would be a public university overseen by her father, the governor of West Virginia. And West Virginia said, Heather Manchin, she never got an MBA from here, but you know what? We're going to give you one anyway. And because she earned that MBA by running Mylan. So they gave her an MBA. Anyway, she's running Mylan. Why piss off her father, the governor? Turns out Michael Garrison was uh, the chancellor or the president of West Virginia University at the time. And turns out he was not only a friend of Governor Manchin's, he was also a lobbyist for Mylan, the president of West Virginia University, where Heather lied about getting an MBA from. Uh, he was a friend of Governor Joe Manchin, and he was a he was being he was a paid lobbyist for Mylan, the pharmaceutical giant that Heather is CEO of or was CEO of. Well, she's no longer CEO because she retired a few years ago. When Mylan merged with another company, her name is Heather Bresch, married name, but it's Heather Manchin, Joe Manchin's daughter. And that's a, a secret has been safe with the voters of West Virginia. Nobody knows that Heather, Joe Manchin's daughter, 
uh, took a, an American company, Mylan, and merged it with Abbott Laboratories a few years ago in what is called an inversion. That's when an American company merges with a foreign company to lower their taxes. In this case, it was a Dutch company. Abbott was a Dutch company. That's how you avoid paying American corporate taxes. You take an American corporation and sell it to the Netherlands so you don't pay taxes in America. When that happened, the New York Times wrote, there is something disconcerting about a company that benefits from large government contracts while renouncing their citizenship for tax benefits. That's what Joe Manchin's daughter did. But it gets worse. It gets worse. She gave up her citizenship so she wouldn't have to pay taxes in America while her father was the senator from West Virginia. It gets worse. Heather ran a company that manufactures EpiPen. You know about EpiPens. Now, she led the lobbying campaign in Congress to mandate that EpiPens be in every school in America. And uh, after they got EpiPens in every public school in America, Mylan, under Heather, Joe Manchin's daughter, increased the price of EpiPens by 400 and 61%. During that time, while they were raising the price of EpiPens by 461%, Heather, let's call her Heather Manchin, she's Joe Manchin's daughter, during that period from 2007 to 2015, her pay as CEO of Mylan went from $2,500,000 a year to $19 million a year. She retired earning $19 million a year. Uh, She's had one job her entire career. She's just retired because she sold the company. Joe Manchin sits on the subcommittee on labor, health and human services, education, health and human services. That's, you know, they look at they're the ones who oversee Medicare the prescription drug policy for Medicare. Maybe it's legal, but politically, Joe Manchin's daughter, Heather, is a dirty, dark secret that the voters of West Virginia should know about. They should know that while Joe Manchin is busy opposing a $15 minimum wage, his daughter retired two years ago, earning $19 million a year, overcharging people for EpiPens. They should know that Joe Manchin sits on the subcommittee on health and human services and his daughter is responsible for the jacked up prices of EpiPens. These people in a better country would be in prison. The next time you wonder why the working class of West Virginia votes supposedly against their own self-interest, it's because the the Democrats never gave them a choice. The one choice the Democrats gave them was in 2016, Bernie, and somehow Hillary won the primary. Joe Manchin's daughter sucks off the teat of Medicare and Medicaid 
by overcharging the government for pharmaceuticals. She doesn't pay taxes. She switched the company to the Netherlands so she wouldn't have to pay taxes. She got filthy rich while people died from her price gouging. And Joe Manchin has the gall to talk about austerity and balanced budgets and not raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. This stinks to high heaven. And if the Democratic leadership cared anything about winning, if they cared anything about the people of West Virginia, they would call Joe Manchin into Chuck Schumer's office and say, listen up, D-bag. Listen up, douchebag. You're voting for the $15 minimum wage or you're going to be challenged in the primaries. And we're going to start running commercials in West Virginia, exposing who you and your disgusting daughter are. But they won't. So the minimum wage, we all know the minimum wage will stay the same. There won't be Medicare for all. And people will die. People will work and barely survive living below the poverty line while Schumer, Biden, Harris, Pelosi keep asking, why do they call us elitists? This is a pledge-isode. Please donate to this show by going to davidfeldmanshow.com. We accept all major credit cards. We also have started on Patreon. Uh, we... we uh, are a little behind schedule. Uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we bring in Henry Huckamacki, who's been kind enough to bring us a brilliant guest, and I will rename him while you introduce us. Yeah, it's a returning guest, David. And listeners, if you missed the first part of the conversation that we had with Glenn Ford, you can go back to an episode about two and a half weeks ago or so, uh, which was a great episode. I got a lot of positive feedback from that edition. And so we're bringing Glenn Ford back. So Glenn Ford was a member of the European Parliament for 25 years. He's made nearly 50 diplomatic trips to North Korea and has written two books on that particular subject, North Korea on the Brink and Talking to North Korea, both which are available from Pluto Books. And listeners, I am really going to push Talking to North Korea. It's excellent. I really enjoyed the book. I've recommended it to multiple people, including my accomplice, who is reading it currently and has thanked me for recommending this book uh, and for really opening and if you buy, to And it. if you buy the book, we get to have him back. <laughs> it's in his <laughs> best interest. Buy the book. <laughs> buy the book. It's really, really excellent. So, Glenn, thanks for coming back onto the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So we left off last time kind of finishing up talking about the history in terms of um, the history of North Korea going all the way back from pre-Japanese colonial days all the way up more or less until the end of the Korean War. Uh, what I want to kind of work towards at this point is we didn't mention the famine in the 90s, which is a major event in North Korea. But before we get to that, I think that something that I want to mention as it precedes this was, as you wrote, and I'm again, listeners, I'm going to butcher all of these pronunciations. So please forgive me, but the Chang Songri campaign where uh, basically it enacted state syndicalism of farms. And it was what I wanted really, really effective back in 
the uh, 1950s and 60s. You have written just after you talk a little bit about this uh, campaign that annual economic growth rates of 20% or more throughout the 1950s and early 1960s made the North one of the fastest growing economies in the world. By 1960, aid was down to less than 2.5% of GDP as the economy massively outperformed the basket case South. So can you talk to us a little bit about how the economy was running back in the 1950s, 1960s, this agricultural program up leading up to the, uh, the, the fall, fall apart in the 80s and the 90s? Yeah, I mean, well, uh, after the Korean War, I mean, uh, North Korea was a tabula rasa. It had, been, it had been completely level. They started right from the bottom. They got a, a lot of assistance from uh, the then Soviet Union, uh, East Germany. Uh, and the country was really successful in taking off, particularly in heavy industry. It was very much a Stalinist model of development. It was steel, cement and, and heavy industry. Uh, and that worked. Uh, and, and they were rather successful. They pulled hundreds of thousands of people out of agriculture into, if you want, into the, into the factories and uh, foundries and, uh, and, and works. So that all worked very well. They outperformed massively the South. And in fact, until probably the late, mid to late 60s, they were ahead of the South. Uh, actually, the South ended up emulating them in a way because... The North Korean model was state-owned enterprises. And South Korea, like Japan and, and, and China these days, with the Chebol, with the Zaibatsu, uh, actually went into this kind of state capitalism. And uh, if, you, if you want, uh, uh, President Park in South Korea uh, was able to, to kick that off. And by the 1960s, the, the South had caught up and was, was, was passing the North. The problem in the North was that they never managed to make, and this was the classic problem of Stalin society, the same problem with the Soviet Union. They never were able to make the successful transition from heavy industry into light industry, from, from if you want, producing capital goods to producing consumer goods. And that, that was the failing in Moscow and the failing in Pyongyang as well. And that's when things went wrong. Yeah, so just to summarize that point then, what you're what you're laying out here is that their rapid industrial development was a massive boon to the economy but the lack of a transition from heavy industry to light industry and revitalizing the agricultural sector after having uh, really built up that heavy industrial sector of the economy led to the economic crisis that was to follow am i am i laying that out in a, a fairly yeah, yeah. accurate I mean way the best, I mean, people have a vision of North Korea as a third world country. Uh, that's, in my view, is completely wrong. North Korea is a failed industrial state. It, does, it has very few people comparatively in the agricultural se sector. So this is not a peasant economy. And in fact, the, the, very, the very problem that it's a failed industrial state creates some of its difficulties it faces now. Because the two big shortages in North Korea are energy and labor. Partly because they've got you know, people do ten year men spend ten years doing military service. So the problem is that if you want to get the economy going, you need more energy and you need literally manpower because it's men that are in the military. And so one of the reasons for if you want the nuclear deterrent is to actually avoid conventional uh, conventional forces or to, to to tone them down a bit 
and decant out of the military if you just cut if you just cut the conscription period from ten years to nine, you have a hundred thousand new workers. Uh, that would get things going. Yeah, and you lay out multiple times throughout the book very well that the army, the army is the reserve army of labor in the country. They use them for projects and in, in industry all of the time, and just in terms of how much money is spent. So this goes beyond the the labor power. But the money that's spent on the military, what I found interesting, and I have it underlined here in your book, is that the massive uptick in military expenditure coincided almost directly with the time period where the South started to outpace the North in terms of economic growth. So you have written here, military expenditure soared from 10% of GNP in 1966 to 30.4% in 1967. That's one year and more than a three times increase in the percentage of GNP that's being spent on the military. And as you said, that's around the same time that the South started to outstrip the North. I mean, Kim Il-sung got very concerned. Uh, I mean, he was aware of what was happening. Uh, and in fact, you had what many people call the Second Korean War around this time. Mm. And this was around the time that the uh, uh, that you had Ameri- uh, American planes shot down by the North Koreans. The Pueblo was 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 captured by the North Koreans. There's an argument about whether it was inside or outside international waters. What well, is absolutely clear it was an American spy ship that was was spying on North Korea, uh, and the North Koreans tried. To, take some leaves out of the Vietnamese book. They tried to promote uh, guerrilla armies inside the South. Uh, They also supplied a lot of aid and assistance to to Vietnam. Uh, There are 21 pilots commemorated in the Fatherland Liberation War Museum who were shot down by the Americans in the Vietnam War. They're also involved very heavily in the tunneling operations. North Korea, very, very famous for their tunneling capacity and they had tunneling battalions in Vietnam working with the North Vietnamese in that war. On the other side you had 50 or 60,000 at a time South Korean troops fighting with the Americans against the North Vietnamese. So there was a, a a small civil war going on on the peninsula and a second civil war going on in Vietnam. They were both playing away from home. Yeah, that was a very interesting section of your book. I was completely unaware of the tunnelers that were sent by North Korea to Vietnam. But certainly we know quite a bit about the tunnels in Vietnam, but I was unaware of the North Korean aspect of that. Oh, and and tens of thousands of Vietnamese went to North Korea for university. Uh, Only about 10 years ago, uh, I'm not sure what happened to them now, there were two two members of the the Vietnamese cabinet who had both been trained in in North Korea. Uh, The Minister of Irrigation, I think the Minister of Housing. When you mention irrigation, that brings up the point that we're getting to the famine now. Um, There was a few components or a few aspects that played into this massive famine that Uh, took effect in North Korea in the 90s. And I'm just going to read a couple of quotes here and then have you talk about the famine. Because as I understand it, your first trip to North Korea was in 1997, really in the heart of this period. So you have written, by 1995, the grain ration for farming families had shrunk from 160 kilograms per person per year to 107 kilograms, not enough to live on. The harvest was barely 40% of what was needed. I'll skip forward a little bit. The World Food Program's 1998 Nutritional Survey found 
Now, one in six North Korean children had brain damage from chronic hunger, with a further 50% permanently stunted. The FAO estimated that 13.2 million people, or 57% of the population, were malnourished in mid-2002, between 1995 and 1999, somewhere between 800,000 and 3 million died. Then you talked about the conspiracy of silence after that, but why don't I, I let you talk about that? But first, can you talk about what were some of the aspects that went into the, what, what caused this famine? Then talk about your trip in 1997, what you witnessed, how, how bad the famine really was there on the ground, and then perhaps wrap up that by talking about this, this silence that you mentioned. Well, I, I mean, I mean what, what, the famine was triggered by terrible weather, they they had massive problems with flooding, uh, and, and that was the trigger for the famine. But of course, the underlying problems have been there for a while. Firstly, the North Korean economy was was stuttering and and, and failing to deliver. The, the the massive growth rates had tailed off. Uh, they, they were stagnating at best. And secondly, you had the collapse of the Soviet Empire. With the collapse of the Soviet Empire, instead of counter-trading goods, uh, inferior North Korean production was being swapped for with with, uh, with with the Soviet Union for for wheat, food, petrol, and the rest. They went from having a trade of something like, I think it was, uh, it, the trade crashed by something like ninety-eight percent. They had from billions of dollars, it was millions of dollars. Literally, it was it was ten billion, and it went down to fifty million. So trade essentially ended, which meant you weren't getting oil, you weren't getting uh, extra food, you weren't getting food for the, the, the goods you need, the precursor chemicals to make fertilizers. All of that, plus the, the flooding, led to a situation where, if you want, North Korea could no longer feed itself. A lot of people, I mean, it, it wasn't a classic famine like in Ethiopia where people died because they hadn't eaten for you know, weeks. In North Korea, what happened is people were dying, were starving in slow motion. Because what happened at the time, it was a very egalitarian economy. I'm not talking about the top 1%, but generally it was a pretty egalitarian economy and everybody was not getting enough to eat. And so what was happening is that the grandparents were passing their food on, uh, people were getting very weak, and so what you saw was people were, you know, there were premature deaths because people were weak from hunger and were then succumbing to the usual kinds of diseases. Of course, some people, some people starved to death. The, the, the majority of people actually died from inadequate food uh, rather than, you know, the, the pictures we used to see of Ethiopia. It wasn't like that. Uh, what did I see when I was, well, I mean, maybe I should explain how I got there. Yes, I'd done a little bit of work on North Korea um, in, in, in the in the Parliament and uh, and after I'd never actually been there. And then one day, the, the two North Koreans from Paris, there was an embassy to UNESCO in in Paris at the time, uh, arrived in Brussels and knocked at my door, saying, "We've got a famine problem." We, it was around the time of the mad cow disease, and we were uh, we were destroying vast amounts of, uh, of beef and the rest in, in, in the European Union. They said, "Can you find a way that we can get this food?" 
I, I, and I said, well, I mean, we're destroying it because it might be dangerous. People might get the, the CJD. You, you might die in 10 years' time. And they say, we're trying to f- feed people who are dying in, in 10 weeks' time. Not in, it, we'll, we'll take the risk. Uh, and, and so I said, well, it, it, I mean, you need to show me what the situation is. So they said, yes, you, you come over. And I went over with two colleagues, and we actually visited Pyongyang. I went up to a place called Wichon, which is up in the, up in the north centre of the uh, of, of, of North Korea, and, and toured around. Now, I, I was going to say I'm not I, I'm not a doctor. I am a scientist. I've got a degree in geology and oceanography. But yeah, I can I can tell when you know, we went to some of the children's centres. The, the children were malnourished at least and obviously we got the information from people like the yeah, the world food program and the, and the rest and so we went back and actually tabled a resolution in the european parliament demanding that north koreans allow an official visit to to north korea and and much to the surprise of everybody else after we demanded an official visit to north korea the north koreans wrote back and said fine send a delegation and so I went back a second time as part of as part of that delegation, and we ended up. Uh, I'm not saying it's because of because of our visit, or at least, at least absolutely not entirely. But it ended up with the European Union providing a lot of assistance, though no, uh, none of the beef from, uh, if you want, mad cow disease ever ever got there. So it took some time then for food aid to be delivered to North Korea, and I, I would just like you to talk about the silence that that I mean, there was surrounding this famine yeah well i mean there are plenty of reports that are now available that uh, the us uh because of its uh, you know satellite observations to the rest were well aware that the harvest in north korea w- w- was grim uh it was it, it was far from adequate to actually feed the population and there are reports that came in to say that there was you know, mass hunger and consequential deaths but the U.S. at the time decided they weren't going to say anything because, I mean, yeah, this may help them. I mean, you know, this was around, the, it was just after, I mean, the crisis, the first crisis with North Korea over its nuclear program. Uh, some of your listeners will recall there was a crisis back in 1993 when the North Koreans were accused of producing, uh, 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 what they had a, they had a nuclear. They had a nuclear plant for nuclear energy. They said that it was actually the same design the British had. Uh, that, that was actually better at producing plutonium than, than electricity, uh, and that they were misappropriating the plutonium. And you had a situation where uh, the U.S. threatened preemptive strikes against North Korea, and then Jimmy Carter flew in, met with Kim Kim Il Sung, and actually did the deal. But. It was all very, very shaky. So it was certainly in the interest of some people that the North Koreans were in problems. And following what happened with the, so- the Soviet Empire, its collapse, and then and, and, and then the some of the peripheral communist countries like R- R- Romania uh, and the and the rest collapsed. There was a view in Washington that yeah, we can sign anything we want with North Korea because they're due to collapse in the next 18 months. So as you said, Jimmy Carter visited North Korea, and then a couple of months later, Kim Il-sung dies. 
There's and, any. You know, it was bad timing. It was, very it was bad, bad timing. timing. Yes, exactly. I said it'd be very easy for some uh, conspiracy theorist to put out there that Jimmy Carter was an assassin that went there because uh, you can get people to believe anything these days. Well, uh, I mean, I met Jimmy Carter. I was the chief election observer in Indonesia uh, 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 for the European Union about 10 years later. And, uh, and Jimmy Carter pitched up there. Uh, I'm reasonably convinced he wasn't assassin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I would agree with your, with your assessment there. Uh, so Kim Il-sung dies. There's a three-year interregnum period before Kim Jong-il takes over, which is very interesting that there was this three-year period of time where there was uh, essentially a leaderless society. Of course, there was a leader, but officially a leaderless society. Well, it was a very wise career move because things are pretty crap. Yes. Uh, to put it mildly. So uh, you didn't, that was not the time to be leader. And so by going into mourning for the, for the Confucian three years, in fact, I mean, uh, we, we flew out, the three of us flew out of Pyongyang and landed in, in, in Beijing to discover that, that, that Kim Jong-un had just become leader the day we left. <laughs> Uh, but yes, it was a very wise career move because you know, he didn't get the responsibility. It, things were just beginning to, uh, at least the food was starting to arrive from outside by by by, by 97. Because the real problem was, was even earlier. I mean, the North Koreans made their own contribution to this problem. I mean, it, there was a discussion apparently back in 95 about whether they should ask for help and they decided they couldn't go out and ask for help because that would put them in a weak position. The following year, they asked for help. No one gave any. It was only the kind of the third year that the two combined, they asked for help and people start giving. Yeah. And, uh, God, there's so much more to say in so little time. We're going to have to try to bring you back again in the future to continue the conversation because I'll, I'll I do check my sales. I'll check my sales. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, you hear that? This is on you. Uh, but yeah, certainly there's so much to say. And I, I think that North Korea is a sadly way undercovered topic in the West and in the United States, particularly, we get a very specific view. So I guess uh, I'll jump right to a, another interesting point to close this out then. So you mentioned that, you know, there's all of these fears associated with North Korea, the nuclear program, uh, people not giving aid, the silence surrounding them. Uh, I'd like you to talk just briefly to close this out about the human rights cudgel, as it were, that's used uh, against North Korea. I mean, the human rights in North Korea is grim. No one should be under any misapprehension. The situation there is, is, is pretty awful. Uh, I don't think there's any argument. It's not quite as awful as it's portrayed all the time. The European Union actually in 2001 managed to set up a human rights dialogue with North Korea. Uh, two years later, the North Koreans suspended the dialogue because the European Union had sponsored a resolution at the UN Human Rights Council criticizing them. And their argument was, we've just set up a dialogue with you. Uh, we could almost understand you voting for it, but actually being the sponsors without even telling us. We worked 
I've been traveling back and forth. We worked to get the North Koreans to, to offer in 2014 to restart the human rights dialogue with the European Union. They came over. We had the head of the International Department of the Party announce we're willing to restart the human rights dialogue. And the European Union effectively said, oh, no, we don't want to start a human rights dialogue. That'll make you look good. Yeah, very interesting. And there's another related interesting point that I'll use as a, uh, a teaser if we can bring you back. So a teaser that we'll bring up next time. Let's see if I can find it in here. Uh, it's related to Doctors Without Borders. And uh, I'm just going to read this quote to you from your book. And this will be the note that we leave it on. And hopefully that'll get the, the listeners interested enough that they buy the book and then we'll be able to bring you back. You say some question the value and use of the aid. In 1998, Medicine Sans Frontiers, MSF, Doctors Without Borders, claimed that the PDS's food distribution was discriminatory with rations determined by political loyalty instead of aid agency criteria such as gender and age. UN Special Rapporteur Petit Muntarborn would later specifically reject this allegation. So somewhat related uh, in terms of the painting of pictures of North Korea versus uh, other assessments that are done subsequently. But I want listeners to pick up Talking to North Korea by Glenn Ford. It's really an excellent book. It's a fast read. It's a great read. Uh, I have so many notes taken in this book. And as I said, I've, I've recommended it to other people and I've been getting thanks from other people uh, for how much this book has really opened their eyes to North Korea because it is such an undercovered topic. And when it is covered, it's a, a very westernized lens that everything is, is tended to be. We can even for. talk about the Americans who defected to North Korea. Yes. That's a, such an interesting story. That's another teaser for, for next time listeners. There were Americans that defected to North Korea and, and I've always wanted to do a movie about the couple that was kidnapped by the father and forced to make movies for Kim yeah, Jong-un. Two, yes. two, two, two prominent South Korean film directors actually got kidnapped by the North Koreans. Yeah, yeah and they, they also kidnapped uh, a, a, a number of Japanese. Uh, I mean, one, one of the big problems with North Korean-Japanese relations is the fact that the, the North Koreans kidnapped a, a, a dozen, uh, 18 uh, Jap Japanese citizens, which created... Right. An I, I'm a comedy writer, and to me... The idea of two filmmakers being kidnapped by Kim Jong Un and being given the studio and all—absolutely, oh, they—they didn't have special effects. So one of the films, he needed a train crash, a train uh, to crash off a bridge. So they did it for real. Because <laughs> you just got rid of the train, right? I mean, the joke—I mean, it's tragic, but the joke is that. They've been kidnapped, but this is the greatest gig they've ever had. You know, they get to be filmmakers finally, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, and some of those films are available. <laughs> I hope yeah. you come back, Henry. Yeah, well, I have uh, to continue this conversation. You've got, nice, you've got a nice North Korean soap uh, that actually has some of the Americans who defected acting in it as evil Americans. <laughs> Yeah, listeners, we're, we're going to try to continue this conversation. Go out and pick up Talking to North Korea from Pluto Books. Buy it directly from the publisher if possible. We have to support our radical publishers, and Pluto is certainly one of them. So, Glenn Ford, 
thanks again for coming thank on to you. the show and we'll try to bring you back again in the future. Right. Thank you so much. Henry, I, I can't even begin to thank you for great My job. My pleasure, David. Thank you. Please pick up Talking to North Korea by Glenn Ford, G-L-Y-N. It's time to meet a hero. It is time to meet a hero. Before we meet the hero, I want to remind you that Ariana Huffington sits on the board of Uber. Just want you to know that, that Ariana Huffington sits on the board of directors of Uber. And David Pluff, you know, he's the guy on MSNBC all the time who tells us how we have to uh, defeat Trump because, you know, David Pluff uh, helped bring hope and change. He got Obama elected. David Pluff, you'll see him on MSNBC all the time. What they won't tell you is that David Pluff was fined $90,000 by the Chicago Board of Ethics back in 2017 because he was illegally lobbying then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel on behalf of Uber. So David Pluff had to pay $90,000 for illegal lobbying to Obama's former chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, who was then mayor of Chicago. Uh, David Pluff was lobbying on behalf of Uber. I don't know if you are familiar with Uber drivers, but when you talk to them, they're pretty happy. It's a good job. But their employees, they're, they're not independent contractors, and they deserve a livable wage, which they're not getting here in the United States. The state of California voted to classify them as employees of Uber, not independent contractors. But then they made it a ballot initiative. Uber launched a ballot initiative. They spent $200 million to change the law. They convinced the people of California to vote against Uber drivers. Grace Jackson is in Great Britain. She's the host of Literary Hangover, where Ricky Hutchinson hosts and runs our weekly marks or his weekly marks. And you have a, uh, a hero that's going to make you say only in America. If you don't feel patriotism, if you don't if you don't brandish your American exceptionalism flag after hearing this story, Yasin makes me proud to be an American. He is an American, isn't he? He is not. This, wait, wait, wait. This didn't happen in America? I'm a British, yeah? Oh, my God. Thank you for the introduction. It's great to meet you. You are a, you're a hero. I don't really? see myself as a hero. Um, I wouldn't say that. Um, that's a bit too... I mean, I'm just an average guy. Um, you know, my family comes back from Pakistan. Um, you know, my dad was a migrant worker that come to the UK. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm just an average guy that started working for Uber back in 2013. I came into the minicab industry back in 2006. Uh, my case against Uber started... Well, let me, let me have Grace... Grace... Yeah, is going to run this. So let me take it away, Grace. Thank you. I want to introduce our guest. Yes. And also, 
Um, Yasin, are you able to turn your volume up on your microphone at all? Okay, is that any better or? Yeah, that's good. If you can just stay kind of close. That's brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm just so excited for this segment. Um, and I'm really, really grateful to Yassine for joining us. And I want to give him a proper introduction. So, um, excuse Yassine, me for one second. And, and no type, somebody's typing on their keyboard. It, it actually might be my dog chewing something next to me. <laughs> and no chewing, Astrid. Astrid. I'm going to take the thing off her. Oh, yeah. well, at least let us see your puppy. She's, yeah, she needs to get back on the sofa. Go on. Good. All right. Let's, uh, yeah, let's get going. Um, so Yasin Aslam is the president of the UK's App Drivers and Couriers Union, and he is the lead claimant in the Supreme Court case Uber v. Aslam, which was decided last week here in the UK. Um, and in this case, Yasin and one other former driver, James Farah, were arguing that Uber employees are in fact workers and not simply third-party contractors, um, which entitles them to sick leave, holiday pay, you know, and other basic human decencies. Um, and I know that US-based listeners are going to find this hard to believe, especially given what we know about what happened in California with Prop 22 um, and just the general sort of mood at the moment but in this case the arc of the moral universe actually bent towards justice um and the case was decided uh in favor of of Yastin, his side last week here in the uk and so before we begin i just want to reiterate i'm really grateful to him for taking the time to do our show um after the news after his case made the uh, front page news here in the UK, he's been really, really busy, as you can imagine. Um, so thank you, Yassine. Uh, and yeah, first of all, if you if you want to just tell us a little bit about your background, about yourself, where you're based, um, anything that will help us sort of understand the context of your case. Um, yeah, so sure. Um, yeah, I'm here based in uh, London, uh, United Kingdom. Uh, like I said, I started working for in the taxi industry in uh, 2006. Um, so the trade actually been around for years, even though Uber tries to make it out like it's technology, next minute is transportation. So basically back in the day, we used to have taxis where you walk, walk up to one and you get into one. Then we had the phone lines come in. Yeah. And then we had like websites and then over the years we started seeing apps and now we see more and more apps coming. So Uber come into London 2012. So I actually started working for Uber in 2013 when they first launched the Uber X service. And I have to say, when I first started working for Uber, I loved it. It was brilliant. I was grossing pounds an hour, which is good money. You know, like us people like on top wages. Yeah. Um, but I got, unfortunately, like I started my campaign around 2014 and I actually uh, started a case against Uber when I got dismissed unfairly in 2015. So just for the record, I got deactivated twice from the platform, not one, twice. The first time because of um, what I was doing in terms of organizing drivers. Initially, my campaign was around respect for drivers because I was coming across a lot of drivers that were getting assaulted, uh, all kind of abuse and stuff like that. And when they approach Uber, it seems like, you know, no one cared. Where 
when you go back to the traditional cab office, let's say I had the issue and I can't like you radio in or you press dial like 111 or something and they will call or they'll alert the other drivers so they'll come to your aid. Now, to me, it's about this is a technology company, so they should be able to provide some kind of safety or, I mean, potentially I could be getting beaten up and there might be 10 drivers parked around the corner that could just literally drive around and deter, you know, what's happening. So that was like more of the campaign. Also, we didn't have a say with the rating system, the way Uber sort of uh, controlled affairs. We didn't have a say in that. So, um, you know, like cut long story short, we started, a, uh, I started the, the case back in 2015. In 2016, we ended up in tribunal and the tribunal, like we had a whole week trial. So I got grilled like by Uber's barristers and vice versa. And Uber heavily relied on their contracts, such as I work for Uber BB. Okay. Uh, and although I had no relationship with Uber and BB, is more to do with the guys in London, like all my working relationship with Uber London Limited. The staff I knew were Uber London. Yeah. So that's the kind of argument we were having. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the judge turned around. Sorry, Yassine, just to interrupt so that it's clear for everyone. Um, the, your initial case against Uber began in 2015 or 16? We, we, we filed it in 2015. And 15. But by the time it got to the first court, the tribunal, they call it, employment tribunal, that was in 2016. So then about two, three months later, we got our verdict, and the verdict was in our favour that we are Limbeach workers. Now, in the UK, we have three status. So you have a self-employed, then you have an employee, then in the middle, we have a, a limby worker, they call it. So the judge ruled we were workers. So since then, Uber started fighting us, you know. I mean, at the start, there's a bit of uncertainty whether we were or not, although our slifters and everyone advised we were workers, and which is why we went to the tribunal. They began a, um, a, a lengthy battle against us, yeah. So we ended up up in appeal tribunal a year later uh, and then we won there and then they appealed to the high court we won there and then last year in july we were in the supreme court and as you already know last friday we won there and this time we had six judges actually rule in our favor so all the way along it's been quite clear that we were workers and what's shocking about this whole thing is even though we won on friday Uber immediately emailed all the drivers to say to them that it only applies to the 22 drivers. Yeah, and the rest. So what we're now doing is uh, we've got a lot more drivers that have joined the claim over um, the time uh, and they have to claim. But the point is, look, you know, why are you fighting us for? You know, like, and initially when I went into Uber's office in 2014, it was about working with us. And my question, like, to Mr. Hudson would be, if you really respect your workers, why won't you sit on the table and work with them? Why do you have to do it alone, isolated? And the whole model is all based on isolating people. It's all about exploiting the BME community, the BME migrant workers. And that's what I didn't like. I could not tolerate a company that comes into the market, it came in so aggressively and the whole model is all about making drivers work longer and longer hours and in order to attract more customers, it's about reducing the fares. So you make the fares cheaper and cheaper. But at some stage, what's happening is it's the drivers that carry all the liabilities. They're paying for the fuel. They're paying for the vehicle. 
You know, like, so they carrying all the overheads. But like I said, when I started, I was grossing 50 pounds an hour. And slowly they went, that went down, down, down. So now in London, we have drivers working about 70 hours a week, making about five pounds an hour. So do you understand, like, drop? Like, the point is, at some stage, there needs to be a flaw in the market. So the ruling that we got the workers' status, what it does is it sets the flaw in the market. It gives us three basic stuff. For example, the right to the minimum wage, uh, holiday pay, and also, like, other trade union recognition. So they're just basic stuff. We don't get pension. We don't get sick pay. We don't get, like, uh, paternity or all the other benefits. But the point is, look, if drivers are making the basic, why would you resist? Why would you fight it? And it's the same with, as uh, David mentioned about California. We talk about Prop 20, uh, 22. Again, a lot of it's down to, and I have to give it to you, but they're really good with their PRs. They know how to manipulate people. They know how to m- m- misrepresent everything. And I speak to drivers on a day-to-day basis. And not just here in the UK. I, I sit on an international uh, alliance. So we work with drivers in California, drivers in New York, <clears throat> sorry, drivers in India. And it's the sto- same story. Um, and and uh, like I said, it's all like you hear this great PL, how great Uber is and everything, but you're trapped in a system. And my point is, look, why are you exploiting these BME people? And the community that... And Jessie, just to, just to jump in there, because our US-based listeners might not know what BME stands for. Okay. Uh, when when we say a BME here in the UK, we're referring to black black ethnic minority community. Right. Yep. So though that that community is forming the kind of overwhelming base of Uber drivers in the UK, would you say? Yeah, that's correct. So if we look at when we talk about the gig um, gig economy, the difference between us and uh, the other like gig workers is we operate in a licensing regime. So for example, in New York, you have uh, for hire vehicles and you have the yellow taxis. It's the same kind of setup here in the UK where we have a regulator similar to the Taxi Limousine Commission, TLC. So we're called Transport for London in London. So it might be Birmingham City Council. So in London, TFL licensed the drivers and they license uh, Uber. So, um, so we have about 110,000 private hard drivers in London licensed by TFL, and around 60,000 work for Uber in London alone. And and just to give you the figure, so from 110,000, 96% of them are from the BME community. Wow, 96%. That's pretty stunning. So, Yassine, you've mentioned that um, early on in your, your stint with Uber, you, you were actually trying to organise other drivers and obviously your um in your other kind of labor activism you've achieved a lot can you talk about that early effort to to organize other drivers and how uber responded to you i mean yeah that's fine i could talk about that um you know, Just like I said, so we understand that yes, like, like i said the whole idea is i've been in the trade for a long long time and there's a lot of discrimination exploitation and abuse so don't get me wrong uber has brought some good stuff into the market so for example like one of the things that attracted drivers to the uber platform was there's no controller so in some bases you used to have dodgy controller that would you know you have to bribe them to give you good jobs you have to buy them a donor kebab at the end of shit 
you know, you buy them cigarettes and sometimes like just because they don't like you or clash your personality or whatever, they could make make you have a good day or a bad day. And sometimes like you had some fair controller. So let's say I had a crap day, like I wasn't making a lot of money that shit. Towards the end of the night, they'll give me the best job just to balance all the drivers out. So there's goods and bad side. Now, when Uber first come, the whole idea of um, having, you know, like no one behind it, it's just a technology. So you go into the app, you log on, and vice versa for the customers where they didn't have to keep picking up the phone and ringing up to find out where their cab is. You know, so it got rid of that middleman, but over time we started realizing that although we got rid of a human and there meant to be no favors in the system but there is an issue of favorism so in london we have like two sets of drivers you have some paying 20 percent commission you have some paying 25 percent commission so you know the guys that are doing 25 25 percent commission are getting more jobs and at the same time like we don't know how these algorithms work how it's programmed there's no transparency yeah so, you know, like, it's just like, how is all this working? You know, what kind of, is it because I'm an Asian guy, so I'm going to get less job. There is no, you know, like, even though I don't see it, and the whole idea is everything is hidden. And like I mentioned, the model is heavily based on people that are desperate. So an average driver, the reason why they like it is because, you know, it's just a lot easier. Like, don't get me wrong, and I just want to say something out there. So, for example, you would find people that would work for £2 an hour and £3 an hour, not because they want to work for that price, because they're desperate. But that doesn't mean because they're happy to do it because they're desperate and they're grateful they got a job. Someone like an Uber should be saying, yeah, that's right, that's okay. No, it's not okay. It's your job to make sure, one, you obey the law, and the whole idea of the law is to protect people. So what we're seeing is, especially in our ruling, like the, the government is failing to enforce yeah, and what we're seeing in California is Uber could afford to buy the law. That's what they're doing because they got so much money that the workers can't, um, you know, like the whole idea is they rely on a set of migrant workers or group of workers that are so desperate that would never stand up. So therefore, they could go in. It's all about making a killing in the background for the big guys. All the liabilities is with litter guys, yeah. Uh, and, and the reason why I, I'm grateful for what I achieved because I was able to break that. And one of the biggest thing about Uber is they just don't like people unionizing. They don't want them to deal with a group of drivers together. Uh, and and as um, my role in the App Drivers and Couriers Union, we were able to break that barrier. So we're growing so fast in the UK, in different cities, Um you know, so so the whole, like, what I'm trying to say, my message here is, look, if Uber is a good company and can be a good company, if they want to, yeah, but they're not willing to do that. It's all about the end goal, and then we've got the driverless cars and all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, and that money, it's like how much money they spent to fight me, you know, when they could have spent that money and gave it to the drivers. And during the pandemic, we saw like it is the hardest time for us guys, especially for me as an organizer, because you know I spent years with the drivers working with these guys, and one of the saddest things was to see my fellow drivers and comrades die because they're forced to go out and work during time just to make meet their basic expenses. Now you know like Uber sort of then over the years while we're fighting them, they introduced this AXA insurance, 
You know, so that's one of the features. Like, look, we support our drivers. We work with our drivers. But what we found is that um, AXA insurance during the pandemic suddenly disappeared. It's went into hiding. So what we're going to see in the coming day, Uber's going to roll out some new programs of how great they are. But those, it's all PR. You know, my point is, look, you know, there's a lot that can be do, done to make the model better. But the main thing here is if you cannot obey the law, don't go into that country. Why do you go into that country, resist everything uh, and try and rebel against everything, you know? Right. David or Rariki, do you have any questions that you want to ask? Yassine? Yes. Rariki, you go first, please. Oh, thank you, David. Yeah, Yassine, thank you very much for coming on. And um, I'm in London, too. So really By the respect. Way, um, I, I just want to say one thing before you speak. I'm not personally attacking you. Even like Jamie Hayward and all these guys, it's not nothing personal against any of you. It's just the whole model and the concept. Yeah. I just don't want to see you thinking that I'm personally attacking you. Thank you. But if you could personally attack each other, it would be good for my numbers. So if we, could, if, we could, if we could have a little name calling and then later, you know, we can patch it up. But it would really help my show if you could attack each other personally for about five minutes. Go ahead. Yeah, David, David loves David loves a, a little bit of um, inter, inter-left uh, rivalry. So I just need screaming. We'll try, we'll try. I just need screaming. Just you can agree with each other, but just scream at each other while you're agreeing, <laughs> agreeing with each other. Go ahead. Fantastic. So, yeah, really, really appreciate everything that you've done. And uh, also James and, and all the other Uber drivers. I mean, um, it's it's a critical part for, you know, society in UK and, and for life in London, having, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the hackney cab, the, the Uber driver um, servicing us. But if we can't give you and give our people in our society, um, you know, a living wage and an opportunity to earn a good wage, then what's the point? You know, I mean, I think um, Uber's model, just like Amazon and uh, other gig economy um, stuff is all based around disrupting and taking away our value and our surplus from what we do, you know, as workers. And um, my question to you is, is twofold. One is, firstly, I understand that this isn't something that uh, you went into court, you know, sort of a year ago and you came out. Now you've been in court for a long time and you've won successes time after time. You know, this is this is just the, the next part. Now you have to organise more than the 22 who supported you through this case and get thousands and thousands of other Uber drivers on board. When you get those um, workers unionised, is there an opportunity to take the model, like you say, take away the controller and use the benefits of... Um, of the, you know, the, the sort of um, the Uber model, but use it as a cooperative rather than as a um, exploitative system. So you take away the value that you give. And also the other question, which I think most people know, but no one actually says, is that you pay for all the capital, you put all the money in, you take the, um, you take the cost, you take the insurance, you take the risk of being mugged, you take all the risk. So what's what's the point of Uber? Yeah, you guys seen? Wait, what was the question again? Sorry to... 
Okay, so you're saying what's the point of Uber? So Uber's given job from A to B, yeah. So so the yeah. point is, look, you know, like who's carrying all the liabilities? So if I'm my boss, I'm in charge, and you're sitting in my car, and let's say you had a bit too much to drink, and you're sick in my car, for example, why can't I, you know, decide? Uh, tell you like look you damaged my car or whatever you saw this so I can't work so I want to charge you 50 pounds that's what it's going to cost for me to clean it why can't I do that secondly let's say um, you know why can't I have a right to say how much it should be the fares when it's keep going down and down yeah and what we're finding is like I said uh, Uber comes so aggressively into London yeah for example 10 years ago the fare from central London to Heathrow Airport was about £75, yeah? Now it's £25, so it's all about doing more and more jobs, but they're getting less and less, yeah? So, I mean, I agree with you to some element, but the point is, when you're saying I'm in control, then I should be in control. For example, if a customer rates me badly, I get kicked off the platform. I don't have a right to challenge it. You know, I'm being performance managed by you. And on top, like we're seeing more and more drivers getting deactivated from the platform, based on the fact because they, um, you know, like we're seeing this a lot where we get drivers deactivating for fraudulent activity. But when we look at that, we realize they didn't commit no fraud. What they've done is they canceled a few or one or two many jobs. So therefore, to avoid any employment liability, you turn around and you accuse a guy of dishonesty in a way, you know, especially from someone like me, if I'm being accused of dishonesty or fraudulent activity, how do I feel? Or how would you feel if I said that, done that to you? You know, so mm-hmm. the reason why they do it is because they don't want to say we're controlling you. The whole idea is, let's say you're driving one way and you cannot accept that job because you it means you have to get off at the next junction and come back around again. You reject it. Maybe you might get three or four jobs come in a row straight away. Yeah, you reject it. So what Uber system and these algorithms, the way they work is they just kick you off. Now, we had a driver who grew a bit, and I'm not talking, I'm talking about a month time, who grew a bit, and the facial recognition failed. It failed him. He lost his license. Uber reported him to transport for London. The guy, um, and the reason for that was they were saying he's sharing his app. Okay? So he lost mm-hmm. his job. Sharing his app as in he was having a friend do the driving instead of yeah, him. Yeah, that's right. But it wasn't. Right. The only thing is, it's like me, the way I just suddenly grew the right. bed. Yeah. So you could see, I mean, I could show you the pictures and everything, but I just don't want to know. But just to give you, this is just not isolated incident, just to give you a background of what's happening. So you got a driver, when Uber revo- uh, blocked him on the app, he then gets reported to Transport for London. So they turn around and say, damn, this is quite serious, because this guy is sharing his app. So they revoke his license. Now the guy got no source of income, especially during the pandemic when things are really hard for drivers, they got expenses. On top, he now has to go into court, pay for legal fees to get his license back. Now this driver was lucky, where when he went into Uber's office with the union support and everything, we were able to fight it and Uber realized they made a mistake and they admit it. And then TFL were able to revoke, I mean, um, give his license back. But my point is, I was speaking and we're being in touch with this driver. He was suicidal. Why? Because he had a certain period where he wasn't working. On top, he was worried about how he's going to get his license back. What happens if he loses it? And the guy was completely innocent. And on day to day, like I said, if a passenger assaults me, like in a nutshell, um, someone could jump into my car, 
you know, be racist, give me a few punches, get out of the car, click the one star button, feedback is driver was rude, and then he gets a refund, and then I lose my job. How is that fair? I have a, I have a question about Uber. We're convinced here in the United States that it's an American company that was founded in San Francisco. I don't understand how a company like Uber can move so quickly into London, get past all those hurdles, and why London would allow Uber in unless Uber's really an internationally financed corporation where your your brokers and your investing your investor class has skin in this game why would london you have to unmute yourself yasin why would why would london not have its own ride sharing app i mean the thing is like you know like like i said uber has been good when they first come yeah but they have lost their license twice and they recently got And has back. there been any ride-sharing app that filled the void that was made well, made in Great Britain? The problem we got is you can't because Uber got a lot of money. They're really good, like I said earlier on. But is it British money as well? Is, is it the... Well, I don't know where they... I'm not here to say where their money come from and who the funders are. Um, but the point is they're quite aggressive... Um, in terms of how they come into the market. But being a driver, as I remember, you know, you have the knowledge. There's mm -hmm. pride in being a, a taxi driver mm -hmm. in Great Britain. That's correct. Like when, when we talk about the taxis, so we have like 25,000 licensed taxis and then we have 110,000 private hard drivers. Now, there's also an issue between the taxis and the private hard drivers, and a lot of it goes back to discrimination, racism, and you also have the regulator transport for London. So before Uber, people of color, people of a certain class couldn't become cab drivers. It tended no. to be a, a white men who had, quote unquote, the knowledge. Yeah, that's correct. So it takes three years or two years, whatever. You've got to learn every street, especially nowadays with sat-navs and Google Maps and all that. It's just like a lot of people. It's just a lot easier to drive from A to B. And uh, someone like myself who've been driving in the industry for years, I'm not brilliant with every single street, but it's enough for me to know and be a good driver. So what is happening to these these men who were cab drivers before Uber? I, I think... They were mostly men, and it was a profession. They could live uh, a middle-class life. Is that that's, fair? Yeah, that's correct. Like, if Uber was to obey the law and, and weren't fighting us, and the fares weren't going down and down, everyone's happy. The taxis are happy. We're happy. So what's happening is they started this rat race. You know, the prices are going down and down. And as uh, you've got taxis sitting around doing nothing, because they're not getting the job because more or less uh, the app is everywhere yeah so you're virtually you know available so it is causing a problem for everyone and you need to put it's not like a supermarket where you walk in and you're like just stack them high and make them cheaper and cheaper and that's the whole model if they stop doing that then everyone is happy you know so for me right now i don't know if uber is going to reduce their fares tomorrow 
I don't know how many more drivers they're going to recruit on the platform. And it's all about to Uber. It's all about trying to make it that you get your cab a few seconds quicker. That's what it's about. But the point is, look, people used to wait 10 minutes for a cab. Yeah, so, uh, 15, 15 minutes. Yeah. But why do you want to, you know, flood the market with drivers just so you could just get get it faster a minute, uh, a few seconds? You know, and that's what it is. It's just that network effect where we got oversupply, and in order to sort of fill that supply, you make it cheaper and cheaper, but you can't make it cheaper and cheaper. And know? what and about uh, autonomous cars? And is is that a fait accompli in Great Britain the way it is here in the United States? Uber is they've given up on autonomous cars, but I mean, they're moving ahead. Other companies are moving ahead with autonomous cars and they say it's inevitable. And I always go, why don't we get a say in this? Yeah. I mean, it is scary. Like I don't think a driverless cars are going to come into London too soon, but at some stage they will. Yeah. We're talking maybe 10 years time, but the point is, look, once you've got driverless cars and that's Uber's long-term mission is to get rid of people like me. So they got no overheads and they could, being good. But that's a different story. But until they get to that stage, they need to respect the workers and make sure that they're not being exploited. Yeah. To me, I, I was going to take a side tour on uh, autonomous cars. Let me ask you about drinking, because they've done studies showing that when Uber comes into a new city, binge drinking increases. It goes up by 8, 10 percent because people aren't afraid of drunk driving. I think in Oregon, once Uber came in, uh, alcohol-related car crashes went down like 70%. Uh, restaurants and bars do better because people don't have to worry about drunk driving. But the problem is Uber drivers like you have to deal with drunks, arrogant Drunks. How big a problem is it driving alcoholics around? I mean, it's um, a massive problem. And that's what I was talking about earlier on. Yeah. My campaign started around, you know, all this respect for drivers the way we were assaulted. Now, James Farah, one of the other claimants, he got assaulted and it took 10 weeks for the police just to get that information from Uber to find out who the uh, customer was, yeah? now having And they will that, side, as you said, they'll always side with the customer. They would always side, but having said that, London has um, a good transport network in terms of like buses and underground, yeah? But because Uber's becoming so cheap, why would you catch jumping? It's a habit, seat? it's become yeah. a habit. Do you do yeah. Uber Eats? Uh, no, I don't, I do Just Eat though. Um, you deliver for Just Eats. Yeah, that's great. These are habits that can't be broken. Once you get accustomed to inexpensive private cars, which are bad for the environment, once you mm -hmm. get accustomed to having food delivered to your apartment as opposed to, you know, putting on shoes and taking a bath and getting it yourself, you it's really hard to break that habit. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is my, I mean, I'm not here, like, how Uber runs their business, that's their choice, yeah? What I'm trying to say is, the way they're doing this habit is they're making everything go down, 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 but where, where's the floor? And the whole idea of this law and this ruling was to put a floor in the market, 
yeah so that means this is the lowest you'll ever go yeah um you know like i've seen the fares go down and down and down yeah so the point is how far where when do we break that habit is it just going to go down and down and we're going to have drivers sleeping in their cars full time like day and night i slept in my car at heathrow airport you know and there's so many drivers that do because of the pandemic you know things are way hard to pubs and clubs and we've got no airports and stuff like that so drivers are making about 30 pounds a day sometimes if they're lucky they might hit 50 pounds yeah so they're not they're not making a lot of money but even now uber re- recently changed it to a fixed price uh, structure which is it, in a way um um what do you call it reducing the fares yeah so the point is like how where is the bottom line am i going to be picking people up free and dropping them off at some stage like where does it stop you know, and the whole idea of this ruling is it just puts the floor. So we shouldn't be fighting. Uber shouldn't be fighting us. Now, I was lucky that I was able to fight this for six years. And the whole, like, you can't expect a worker to be fighting it for six years because the model is based around draining these people out, you know. Um, and, and that's where, you know, like someone somewhere, and, and, and the problem we have is, the government is also the regulators are failing to enforce Uber. They sort of give them an easy ride just because they have the power and the resources to do that. Yeah, but I think the tide is now changing, uh, especially with our ruling. We're seeing more and more drivers and campaigns and unions and people coming forward. So even like in South Africa, the drivers are there getting ready to file a mass claim again, and we're going to see like even in London, even though Uber's saying this ruling applies to 22 people, which is totally, um, which is true in a way, but the ruling is binding for other people as well. So they don't have to now fight for six years. So you're going to see mass claims come in. But my point is, why are you fighting them? Why are you spending more money to fight them? Why not just give these people their rights? Well, maybe because once you give them these rights, you know, other rights may follow as they should. But Yasin, I just wanted to take you up on that point, actually. Um, So you've won this case and Uber is saying that it only applies to like 22 claimants who were driving for Uber in a very specific time frame. Um, But my question is, is is anything going to materially change for Uber drivers in the UK as a result of your ruling? Or is it more that this is kind of setting a precedent and kind of shifting the culture a little bit? Can you answer that? I mean, the main problem we had in my case was, you know, like the way Uber was manipulating the laws and the contracts and all this stuff, like one minute their transport companies or the law should not, uh, I mean, technology companies or the law should not apply to them. So because we dragged it all the way to Supreme Court, it means there's a clear ruling and a guideline of how such cases and what our working arrangements are. Yeah. So therefore, if you were the next Uber driver, working in London, even though Uber written your email saying you're not entitled to it, you could now go into court and easily assert your rights. Right. And the whole idea is we shouldn't be fighting anymore. That's my point. The point is, is now someone spent six years of their life, their kids suffered, their family suffered, you know, um, you know, but Uber still wants to repeat history again and fight these guys again and again. And it's not isolated to London. They've done it in California. They're doing it in every country. So, you know, like, you know, and that's my point that when do they give up? When will they put things right? And what's happening is over the years, like I said, I started off as a pro Uber driver. 
and a lot of drivers start off with pro Uber, but eventually they go through a cycle where, you know, it's you know like you want to see the back of Uber, and that's mm-hmm. not that's not a good attitude. And Uber should be ashamed if drivers feel that way towards them. And and Yasin, have you in some of your labour activism work, have you um, engaged with? other groups of drivers overseas and kind of linked up with them and can you give us a bit of a kind of status report on various campaigns that might be happening in other countries yeah i mean sure i can so um like i mentioned earlier on uh, more also on the steering committee on the international alliance of app-based transport workers which we set up last year so uh, we have drivers from 23 different countries so it's not just um, uber it's also like grab all uh, you know, like all app-based uh, workers. So we have an uh, um, uh, organization from India working with us. We have an organization from Australia. We have Malaysia. We had Cambodia. We had um, South Africa. So we have Kenya, um, Ni- Nigeria. So, you know, like we got drivers from France, Paris. Um, so it's all over. But the main issue that we're seeing is like for example like if you look at france the supreme court similar to what we have in the uk the supreme court gave a ruling in favor of drivers yeah in california we're seeing the same thing now in new york we had the tlc impose something similar to uber where there's some kind of restriction but the driver's income went up from it even though uh, uber would claim that drivers can't log on whenever they want but it's like going to work if i went into my local supermarket and I said, have you got a job for me? And they said, sorry, we haven't. You know, I'd rather come home knowing there is no job than them saying to me, come in tomorrow, but sit around. But if we have a job, we give it to you. So, mm. you know, and like I mentioned, it's all about having oversupplying the streets with drivers, which is not good for the congestion and all kind of other stuff. So, you know, like in a nutshell, it's the same problem everywhere. It's not just isolated to London. Right. All right. Okay. David. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Yasin. How do people contact you? Do you have another question, Grace? I, I mean, I could ask another question. I Go ahead, please. Please. Just, just to give us a sense of how Uber have treated its drivers in the context of the pandemic and whether... They've, you know, provided drivers with PPE, this kind of thing. Because, Yasin, on this show, we we have a, a semi-regular guest called uh, Christian Smalls, who is a former Amazon employee who was fired over raising concerns about the lack of PPE in Amazon warehouses. And, you know, he's doing great work himself. Um, but I was just wondering, how have Uber kind of fared with that uh with their drivers in the uk well <clears throat> to be honest um, it was really bad to start off with i remember in new york uh you know all they had to put up was a plastic sheet that separates the driver from the back seat and it wasn't until recently where every uber driver had it how much does a plastic sheet cost hmm. 10 bucks, 15 bucks. Go ahead, Yasin, I'm sorry. Yeah, so it's like when we hit the pandemic last year around March time, yeah, um, no one knew what was happening. But during that time, I don't think Uber did it 
anything to help the guys. There's no PPE. There's no one taking responsibility, whether it's Uber or the regulators. So during that time, we saw a lot of drivers uh, contract the virus. And like I mentioned, we saw a lot of our friends, drivers, comrades that passed away. Um, and then one of the issues we had is we were trying to get that plastic sheet put in. Uh, into our cars that one that you mentioned cost 10 bucks but then we had the way we work in london the car has to be licensed so we have a regulator that regulates the car and and we had issues like saying this doesn't meet the health and safety and stuff like that but towards the end uber just started providing ppe yeah but the problem we have is um is just like you know like it was far too late they meant to do as a worker there's some health and safety obligation um which was done a well later on but the point was look drivers like they uh we like i mentioned earlier on we have an axa policy so for example let's say i have to go into isolation you pay 200 um, they would pay you 200 um, pounds or i don't know what it is in dollars but 200 pounds yeah now that axa policy was difficult to claim for yeah, and nor did Uber make it easy or give assistance to drivers, but they did offer drivers, uh, Uber actually themselves offered drivers £100 when they went into isolation, but it was pennies. Like a driver needs to work 35 hours just to offset their expenses. So if you're not working, you're minus 35 hours in a way. You know, so you're off. Um, so, so there was a lot more they could have done, but to be honest, I would, I would say... Um, I would say that if we had this worker status, things would have been a lot better for drivers. And I would go as far as pushing it as we should be employees because of the way Uber is treating us. So therefore, we would be entitled to sick pay. So for example, when you're off with coronavirus, you're in hospital. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen a lot of drivers go into hospitals and stuff like that. You would benefit. Yeah. So, like I said, it's, Uber would bring out all these PRs or how great they are. They're offering free NHS rights and all that stuff. So the government loved them and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, there's there's a massive issue there where because drivers get deactivated and Uber is the biggest firm in London. So if you get deactivated from Uber, you more or less get kicked out of the trade with a stranded assets like a car whatever it is yeah insurance and stuff so what what we're seeing more and more is with the mask like everyone has to wear a mask in their cars but sometimes you get some bad wrong customers in your car that won't put up a mask yeah so you were seeing like attacks toward drivers and it's unfortunate that um last week we had a driver murdered in london he wasn't working for uber he's working for another company bolt yeah so just to give you like it's the same problem but when he um, he got murdered and the app was running for 300 minutes, yeah. So Uber at the same time they have all this brilliant data and so do these other app companies where they monitor you how fast you're going and everything. But when something goes wrong, it disappears. It's not there for you. Thank you, thank you, Grace. Thank you. We've been Thanks talking. So We've been talking with Grace Jackson from Literary Hangover, who brought in Yassin Aslam, who brought his case to Great Britain's Supreme Court and won. And so you are now classified as an employee of Uber? Workers. Worker. And Okay. But you're not an independent contractor anymore. 
Well, we're still, basically, worker status means you're in a way self-employed, but you're running someone else's business, like we're running Uber's business. Yeah, it's a legal category. There's employee and worker and contractor. And so far, it only applies to you and the other plaintiffs, but not the rest of the Uber drivers. According to Uber. According to Uber. Okay. Rariki Weekly Marks. Give out your uh, Twitter handles because we're supposed yeah, to sure. we're supposed to support that evil company as well. <laughs> Boy, the less time I yeah. spend on Twitter, the better I feel. They say Trump is happier. Seriously, people say he's much happier now that he's off Twitter. Yeah. I think we should put him back on Twitter. I think yeah, we give him, actually. Give him pref- back. I think it was euthanasia taking him out. I think we took him out of his misery. Let him go back on Twitter. God, yeah. I hate Twitter. Yeah, we could have. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, it's as uh, Yassine's saying, these things that have become every day in our life, like Twitter, like Facebook, like Uber, like Amazon, are killing us. Um, but hopefully, like Yassine's doing, he's helping give his... Uh, when you when that guy threw up in your car, you had to pay for it. Uber didn't reimburse you for that. Correct? You've got to contact Uber. Uber then decide if you're going to get paid or not. Yeah. So they're in control. So I could come and smash your house up, everything, <laughs> damage everything, and someone else needs to decide whether you're entitled to that damage or not. You know, being a driver is a noble profession. You have, you are, you are, it is, you are transporting human life from one point to another, keeping that life safe and that's how industry, you know, that's you are the, the soul of capitalism. And without transportation, everything stops. It should be a lifetime career. You should be able to drive a, a cab, a taxi, an Uber for the rest of your life. It's it's a very satisfying you. You enjoy driving a, a, a car, don't you? That's correct. That's why I come when I, I come from an IT background. I was made a redundant back in 2006. So I started a minicab like driving and I enjoyed it because although I was happy to sacrifice my. There's you know, a Zen like, to it. You get in the car. You don't know where your day is going to be. You're on a every day is different. You meet people and, you know, the, with the, the app, it's it's safer. I think it's safer than being a cab driver, at least in New York because you're supposed to know who the, but uh, there's no such, anyway, go ahead. I was going to quote Dr. King again. Go ahead. Let's wrap it up. Thank, we have to wrap it up. Thank you, Rorikey. Get You get the last word, Rorikey. Okay. Well, firstly, thank you to your scene. Um, weekly Marks, at Weekly Marks, and at Morning Marks. We've just finished today, David, um, reading uh, 940 pages of capital, so 200 days of reading and studying with our community here. Um, so this um, Sunday we have uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud and Professor Wolf at 4.30 um, Eastern Standard Time. That's great. On uh, Discord. Come join us. Uh, no, we're doing it on Zoom. Oh, you're so, doing it on so Zoom. Great. We are, yeah. How, so how contact can... us at... Contact us on the evil Twitter machine right. at 
Morning Marks or at Weekly Marks, and uh, we'll send you a, a link to the to the um, to the uh, lecture. This, yeah, it's this Sunday. This Sunday, four thirty. And if you want a link to the Zoom meeting, give it one more time. That sounds great. At Weekly Marks mm-hmm. or at morning marks and either professor adnan hussein or myself will respond with uh, with a link to come and join us fantastic well we have breaking news we have to go to the newsroom where dan frankenberger is standing by he's our resident pretentious douchebag what do you have for us pretentious douchebag hello david <laughs> That's how I know now. The signal is, I, I, I know that Dan is ready when he dresses up like a pretentious douchebag. I wish our <laughs> listeners could see this. It makes me so happy. How are you? I understand Glenn, Glenn Kostick uh, has been eating. Yep, we're going to get to him in just a second. Okay, and I have couple. pictures. It's the mo- it, is the, it should be the lead story, but it's, you know, it's your choice. Come on, Bill Dub, he's going to back clean up. That's good. Okay. At at 5 p.m. on p.m. on Friday, February 26, the brains of Kathleen Frankie and Lance comes, yes. and they've created Valley Vox Theater. And uh, this week, their episode has Gary Smith, and he's going to lead us through this a screening of John Waters' cult classic Polyester. I, that, wait, wait, when is this? It's before office hours on Friday. Depending on when you're listening to this, it's today or right. tomorrow, and um, it's at 5 p.m. Eastern. Now, but that's in Smell-O-Vision, So, how do they do that? They're gonna put up the, a Zoom link through Discord, right? And uh, they're asking to bring your friends, and we'll uh, distribute the Zoom link on Discord. You can send it off to your friends and and check it out. And they're they're saying that Gary Smith is a filmmaker, graphic artist, musician, and a proud son of Minnesota. His youth can be described as a boy's own adventure story. And when he wasn't traveling the rails, he was working in a film in film houses and driving theaters. And have you ever seven, seen Have you ever seen Polyester? No, I have. Not. Okay, let, I, I'm, I I swear to you, when I was living in New York, Polyester came out. I swear to you, there were two movies that I just kept going back to over and over again: Polyester and Apocalypse Now. I I must have seen, I'm not making this up, I easily saw, paid to see Polyester six, seven times when it first came out. And it was in Smell-O-Vision. So they would give you this little card and they would, throughout the movie, you'd have to, it was a scratch and sniff thing. And then you you would smell like... uh, the like the inside of a car, the leather, and you would scratch it and sniff it, and it, uh, perf- did, they know, get, ba- did they list off the scenes like when you should smell it? And the stuff? number would come up on the screen, like scratch number three, and so you could smell the the bad air freshener in a car. Uh, you could smell, I think, uh, Divine's perfume. That that I believe that that's John Waters' best movie. I think that is uh, just amazing. Oh, Francine, you're the drinkingest woman I know. It's just unbelievable how great it is. I smoked a lot of dope. <laughs> so they're showing that in our Discord group. Uh, 
they're distributing a zoom link in the discord group okay so that might forego the uh are we allowed to screen are we allowed to screen movies I'm, if you go to Discord, I'm, I'm sure uh, Kathleen and Frankie and Lance have some details on okay. exactly what's going on. All right. But, um, in the in the chat on YouTube and in the Zoom room here, I've posted a link of the trailer of what's going on. Okay, great. So that's good. Yeah. Uh, we, we received a message from Tim in Canada. Yes. He uh, sent me a Hunter S. Thompson quote that he wanted read from okay. Rolling Stone in 1971. And it says, Jesus, what's happening in this world? What indeed? The bag boy grinned, the desk clerk grinned, and the cop crowd-eyed me nervously. They had just been blown off the track by a style of freak they'd never seen before. I left them there to ponder it, fuming and bitching at the gates of some castle they would have would had never enter. <laughs> so that's from Tim in Canada. That's Tim in Canada. Yep. Okay. Now we're on to Glenn Kostick. Oh, let me uh, share that information. This is this is the big I have, story. I have one that doesn't have a picture first. So this is a, he had a post last week that said, with no place to go, I don't think I will clean this truck off for a while, which was a, uh, it was a 3D picture of a truck with like tons and tons of snow on it. I was like, oh, there's Glenn out there okay. on the wilderness. And this is the big story. Go ahead. Every year around St. Patrick's Day, I buy five or six corned beef briskets. This is the last of them, so St. Patrick's Day can't be far off. So That's he's pretty good. he's pretty consistent with his. Uh, it's got to be once every couple of months he breaks one of those bad boys open because he's yeah. about to run out and it's he's about to buy some more. They look beautiful, don't they? Yeah, I I buy them too. I buy a few of them during during this time of year, and I smoke a few of them because yeah. that that makes pastrami. Are those mm. chickens? This is the the last one I have for him. He posted a video of his chickens sharing the water got a bucket of water out there and on his facebook this is actually a video oh, but okay. they're they're in there uh, pecking around sharing water they're they're walking in and out pretty awesome i want to move in with them yeah we'll go there we'll, we'll yeah. make some glass beads and uh i want to get some... out of new york i want to ken man makes handmade stay lit tips and he's a luxury joint artist he twists folds and cuts and glues every bit of the stay lit tip by hand making it the most expensive disposable paper smoking product in existence so please subscribe to him on the big hairy americans show on twitch and he does put on a good show no matter what he does according to office hours he's, a, he's the best he's a fun singer and he's happy if you're if you're if you're kind of bumming and feeling down you want to watch ken man so go yes. to the big hairy Americans show on Twitch and his Instagram is at super cone man man with two ends patreon is at Ken with two ends underscore man with two ends and he has a cash app super cone man um, I want to reiterate a message from Randall in Harrisburg that Andy and Sarah uh, spoke about the other day he's got a, a group called March on Harrisburg and he writes for listeners in Pennsylvania March on Harrisburg is holding their monthly meetings via zoom so they're gathering up for this year's lobbying campaign and will be pushing for ranked choice voting, mm. public campaign financing, and making it easier to vote. So you can go to that events page at mohpa.org, and that's short for uh, March on Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, mohpa.org. And uh, you can RSVP to a local, local chapter meeting near you. Uh, Tom and Barb Weber. Yes. They've been rocking it out on Tuesday nights. Um, I, I missed their one this week because I had to go back to work. But um, their group 
as a duo on Facebook, they call themselves the singer songwriters fair Weber. Um, and they do shows on every Tuesday at eight Eastern and Tom Weber sells his art on, uh, online at Tom and Weber has two B's. Um, next we have David Feldman. You should be on David Feldman's Twitter if you're not. So his uh, Twitter handle is at David underscore Feldman underscore Facebook. It's real David Feldman. And uh, this is a pledge episode. So go check out patreon.com forward slash David Feldman show. Thank you for that. Yeah. And lastly, send your messages to the community billboard. Uh, send an email to Dent Feldman at gmail.com and someone will eventually read that. Very good. When we come back, thank you, Dan. I love you. I'll talk to you this week, and we we need to catch up, Dan. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna uh, come back. This is a pledge episode, and when we come back, we will be joined by Alan Minsky, executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, and Harvey J. K., author of FDR on Democracy. Harvey J.K., he's got a lot to say about Thomas Paine and FDR. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey J.K. is on the show today. Harvey J.K. J.K. wants you to be radical. He ain't dogmatical. Won't take a sabbatical. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey J.K. is on the show today. Harvey J.K. Welcome back. Joining us is Alan Minsky. He's the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America and Professor Harvey J.K. I was watching you. You didn't see your your little uh, effect. Professor K. My effect or his effect? Your your effect. What's my effect? On the uh, on the bumper. We Oh yeah. I saw his I saw his name. Yeah, I didn't see my you. effect. Yeah. We'll have anyway. Run it again. Run it again. Oh no, no. <laughs> Only to hear Professor Mike Steinell sing. You know what you know what's funny? I this is I know this is like hours before we would normally go on, and I appreciate yes. your willingness to Are you kidding? I'll do it. I'll start whatever you want. Well what's I funny work around is, your schedule. You realize this is the first time in it's got to be a year that I've talked to you in the, with sun out. Yes. And which means spring is on its way, I think. You know what else? What else? Dan, tell Professor K. What, how many weeks has it been? Off. Had week number 
46. 46 weeks of Friday night, Friday office yeah. hours? Yeah. Wow. But now here's something about time, Alan Minsky. We've been doing office hours, and it hasn't even been a year. And yet it feels like we've been doing it for five years. I, I, I've gotten to know this group of listeners, and it, I, it's like they've been in my life for for five years. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know. So. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I've never had a year of, of being this efficient and achieving this much, and I'm dreading the fall off that'll occur when reality returns. Well, let's talk about COVID, because the story seems to be that Johnson & Johnson has a new, a, a new shot that you only need one, and they're going to start hopefully producing them as of Monday. We may have hundreds of millions of shots in circulation by what June yeah there's talk of herd immunity although on this show my experts say don't be too optimistic things uh, are going to be dicey for another year but uh, what are you sensing in Wisconsin Professor K where it was really bad yeah, on a personal level, I think I mentioned to you about a week ago that uh, I had both vaccines, both vaccinations, I mean, both of them. And in fact, tomorrow, for the first time in a year, we're going to drive 500 miles down to St. Louis to see our grandson for his birthday on Monday, my sixth birthday. So that gives you know, that, that makes me hopeful. But I'm fully aware of the fact that my behavior in route and on return will probably be exactly the same as it's been for the past year. And whether I was one mile from the house in a car or now will be 500. And what, what I find is what I find unsettling. And I guess, I guess Henry could speak to us. He's probably more on top of this than anybody. Henry Hackamacki um, is the fact they're talking about a New York variant, which they, I know that, which they don't fully discuss because they don't know what its implications are. So, I don't. I honestly don't know. The feeling amongst my friends that I speak to, which is not as often as I would if I got to actually see them, is that uh, is that they're feeling they're feeling pretty good about things, mostly because we we're not spiking in Green Bay any longer, which right. was not uncommon in the autumn. But that doesn't mean everyone's feeling you know upbeat about telling me when they think it's all gonna you know run its course, which nobody knows that. Right, Alan and. California. Well, they've already they've already had uh, what they've thought has been an LA variant, and they think I think they believe it was quite lethal, which is why mm-hmm. we we still have some, you know, the the mortality rate's been a lagging indicator. Just yesterday, they announced about a thousand deaths between December third and February third, just in LA County alone, uh, are now attributed to COVID nineteen um, that hadn't been attributed to COVID nineteen previously. Um, but, uh, you know, the contagion rate is down to where it was in the summer. Uh, so before the big um, explosion occurred. And don't forget the first the first wave, which was so tough on New York City, did not impact Southern California very badly. That didn't really happen till about November. Mm. And so uh, the fact that we're back down on the contagion rates, people are very hopeful. And in fact, when I'm done with this earlier uh, appearance on the David Feldman show, I'll go pick up. My daughter, not at school, but she actually, with four friends, 
a friend of ours hosted their first social distancing in-person day at school. I mean, they're Mm -hmm. still on their computers, but they're together in person for the first time in almost a year. And she couldn't be more happy. Well, I want to talk about our friend, Lindsay Boylan, who Professor Harvey J.K. introduced us to. But one quick uh, caveat about COVID that we're going to be up against. Uh, The uh, University of Tufts, Tufts University, did a study and they looked at 575,000 COVID hospitalizations here in America and concluded that they were preventable through diet and exercise. This is what we're going to be up against from the Republicans. Studies like this. Two-thirds of people hospitalized for COVID either had high blood pressure, diabetes, or were obese, which we are told is, you know, preventable, supposedly. 30% of the people hospitalized were obese, 26% had high blood pressure, 21% had diabetes and heart failure. Those are what are deemed as preventable. I don't buy into that. Did they uh, did they account for occupation, class, things right. like that? That cause all those. Well, you know, I mean, I think we, Thank we you do for know that. that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, that 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 may be true, but it may also be the case that people who are lower income and working two full-time, well, you know, a job and a half or whatever are, you know, I mean, it's all of that that that, that probably goes along with it, I would assume. I mean, just otherwise, I, I don't know. I mean, the stress of commuting, the stress of being in an office, the stress of driving a truck, the pressure, the... Uh, eating at the last minute and being forced to get, you know, a Cinnabon to keep you going. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, Yeah, right. Absolutely. And then, of course, the Republican trick is personal responsibility. Well, what kind of personal responsibility can you have when there are food deserts, when you work in an office where all they feed you is crap? Uh, So, yeah. Yeah. Well, Lindsay you, Boylan. You mentioned, you mentioned Lindsay Boylan. I, I have to say that I, I'm. This is going to sound funny. I actually don't know anything about that. Well, of course, and I'm glad you don't because and you should. I don't. Is this morning? You shouldn't know anything about it. This guy, a, so this guy tweeted something uh, this morning or late yesterday. I'm forgetting what his name is. Chris is his name. He's up in the northwest of the USA, and I. He said, "I believe Lindsay Boylan," and I said. I tweeted back and said, because I didn't understand what he meant. I said, you believe her or you believe in her? I mean, what, what do you mean? And he said, oh, you don't know what I'm talking about. I said, no, no I don't. So, and I'm no better informed now. So, Well, you're I not supposed I- to be informed because it involves okay. Andrew Cuomo, the governor of California, governor of New York, New whose York. brother is Qu- Chris Cuomo. CNN, for about 30 hours, made no mention of this story. MSNBC made no mention of it. It wasn't on the evening news that the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, appears to be uh, guilty of sexual assault. According to Lindsay Boylan, he forcibly kissed her and uh, was pursuing her, uh, wouldn't leave her alone and harassed her. And 
uh, other women have now come forward and said they've, they've been sexually harassed by Governor Andrew Cuomo, and he has created a hostile work environment, that he's a terror, and his... Uh, and this ass- comes on top of the fact that he was already... Murdering our grandparents mm-hmm. and lying about it. You know, and on, top, and on top of the fact that the mainstream media anointed him the greatest hero in the world when he had previously cut public health funding in New York tremendously. Yeah, right. that was astounding. I mean, let's go, if we go back a year, yeah. even as he was proposing the, the, the budget cuts in New, in New York yeah. to close hospitals and right. then going on TV to, you know, to, to, you know, to, to portray himself as a leader, you know, a model governor. Yeah. And he's busy writing his autobiography and getting Emmy Awards. His PowerPoint presentations during the COVID crisis won an Emmy. You're kidding. They yeah, did. they gave him an Emmy. Or they did, I should say. Yeah. So he won't let go of power. He should go away. He should disappear. But he won't. That whole family is despicable. The, the brother is despicable. Countless stories of Chris Cuomo getting into fights with people, threatening to punch them. The sense of entitlement these two brats have because their father was Mario Cuomo, who was this mediocrity who could string a series of sentences together once at a national convention. <laughs> and they have, they have this inherited... They, they inherited their father's entitlement... They wouldn't be where they were if it weren't for the fact that their father was Mario Cuomo. We have this aristocracy. It's not a meritocracy. They try to pass it off as a meritocracy. I just keep reading about the the idiot kids of. Yeah, but Anderson Cooper pulled himself up by the bootstraps. Yes. I mean, come on. Yeah. It was a Vanderbilt, I believe, who went to Yale. <laughs> He was my classmate, Ian. <laughs> well, uh, as was Brett Kavanaugh. And yeah, this is not a uh, this is an aristocracy. I only mm-hmm. recently discovered who Alan's father was. Well, his father. Intellectual aristocracy. The only saving grace I have as a Yaley with a famous father was that my dad was posthumously celebrated for the most part. So I didn't have the derangement syndrome of having a celebrated father as I was growing up. But, you know, yeah. You know. Here's my, what's going to happen. I have to my, check myself in one. You know, I, I, I do my best to try to, you know, um, be uh, accomplished on my own terms, you know, but, you know. You wouldn't know, know, Alan, because you were out on the West Coast or somewhere else in the world during those years. But David would remember Murray the K. Yes, he was the fifth Beatle. Yeah, Yeah. right. So my father's name was Murray. So and (laughs) coincidence, and he would sometimes wear the kind of cap that Murray the K would wear. And when he would go place and people would say to him, hey, are you Murray the K? And he'd say, you bet. You, know? <laughs> you bet. When are we gonna? When are we gonna start punishing the children of these people? You, you know, Ben Burgess is on right after this, and I actually was on a, a town hall uh, with Pete, which was a great town hall on tuition free public college. And I talked about Ben Burgess because Ben Burgess had a piece on Jacobin about 
um, having public domain, the, the turning public Harvard, Yale, Columbia. And I, I, of course, liked it and I brought it up on the thing. But, you know, that's political, too much of a reach. But my, my thing is like, you, you know, Yale, they're so attentive to having, um, you know, representation at Ivy League schools. I think that the one percent should be allowed one percent of the population in Ivy League schools. I think there's at least and ninety ninety nine percent of our prisons should be filled with one <laughs> percent. Yeah, there we go. I, I, you think I'm joking? No, I don't. I don't think you're joking. Yeah. I, oh. I I know you're not joking. I hate these, but it's still I, funny. It's, it's, it can be serious, but it's still funny. I hate them. I I hate their kids more. I understand. Here's what I understand. I understand hating oneself, feeling so bad about myself that the only way I could find somebody to love me is to be successful. I get that. I, I understand the need to have something to present to a potential lover in lieu of character. And, you know, <laughs> so I get that. But your effing kids, they shouldn't be allowed to keep the money or 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 the reputation. Andrew well, Cuomo catches his father's there. reputation. There you're with the founding fathers. In fact, they 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 definitely did not think people should should inherit great sums of money or land or anything else. They want or reputation or reputation, which is what the Cuomos inherited. Or Mary Cheney, who is Dick Cheney's. Well, is that a reputation you would want? In the Republican Party, it seems to uh, yeah. get her somewhere. They should they should be ashamed of who their parents are. It calls into question how they got there. When you know, all I hear about is oh, David, all these David, David. You need to invite Ron Junior. You know, Ronald Reagan. He's Jr. a good kid. Yeah, I, I like him. I mean. he, and I liked Patty. Yeah. Here's what I like about Ron Jr. Ron Jr. Not not Michael Reagan, the adopted kid. Yeah. Right. I know who you mean. I'm talking Ron. Jr. Ron Jr. is a great American and, yeah. and, and he has a complicated relationship with his father's legacy, but he still loves the man. And Patty Davis, this is what you know. You look at Chelsea Clinton, who married this hedge fund cuck and 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 and, and, and Jenna Bush, who gets a job on the Today Show and traffics in her parents name and reputation. Patty Davis didn't approve of Reaganomics. And she not only didn't disapprove, she went and posed for Playboy and spread her legs. She hated Reagan. I'm being serious. That yeah, I, did I'm, she do I'm, that because she hated Reaganomics? She hated her mother. She hated her father. She hated his policies. So she went and spread her legs for Playboy. Yeah, that, I know the Playboy's um, spread in quotes, but I didn't realize that that was a protest of his political economic policies. I don't know. I, I was so busy looking at the pictures. I, <laughs> I had to reach something into it to make yeah. it to justify but, yeah, I, it. I've been listening to a podcast this morning, um, five episodes of a podcast from this guy who's Canadian American, Paul Jay, I think is his name. And he's interviewed five times now. The mm -hmm. guy who's produced the uh, series on, Showtime, is it where it's the Reagans? Oh, it's great. Yeah. Which I, and I've got, I haven't seen it yet. I, can't I saw the first one. I saw the first installment because it was free on some platform I had. It was very, very good. And I was very upset. I couldn't watch the second, third and fourth. Ron Jr. is amazing in that because he talks about the legacy. He talks about. Yeah, that's that's why I bring him up, because yeah. he 
the, the producer and the, I don't know if he was the writer as well as producer, but the guy who who's behind it talked at length about apparently he's got hours of interviews with Ron Jr. And the question is whether or not he can find a, a venue or release it in some fashion. <clears throat> yeah, I would love to hear Ron Jr. talk about the legacy. You know, I'm just I'm just sick of these 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 kids. You know, Obama's kid graduates from Harvard and she goes and becomes a television writer. Uh, you know, uh, Ke- uh, Ke- uh, who's our pre- vice president? Karen did more than you did, David. Who's the vice president? I forgot her name. Harris. Right now, Harris. Kamala. Her, yeah. Her stepdaughter mm-hmm, showed right. up at the inauguration. And, model now. and she's yeah. a, she's been signed as a model. And mm-hmm. th- that reveals something about the values that they come from. You, you you have the privilege of having parents who who served this country. You you need a life of public service. Why isn't that being instilled in their kids? I judge people by their kids because they're judging me. They judge well, us. I do understand that Ivanka will run for president. If that makes you feel any better, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I feel bad for Jenna Bush because only just a few years ago she really had a line on the on the White House, and now I think she's been really usurped by. Uh, uh, Ivanka Trump. So, people say lay off the kids. All they do, these people, all they do is judge us. All they do is tell us to pull up our pants, and you know, stay home with your kids. And you know, we can only do so much. It's the parents who have to instill the values. Pay your deregulated energy bill. You know, freezing hey, your yeah. house. I pass sure. judgment on their parenting skills. Hunter Biden. It turns out now had an affair with his dead brother's wife and then was carrying on an affair with her sister. What? Yeah. It was in the Daily I, I Mail. Say, well, well, this is actually something that's, that does come up a little bit on the show. And are these, I love, these are fantastic dialogues. I absolutely adore being on the show, but I do. I am beginning to discern that you follow segments of the news more closely than I do. I <laughs> judge I judge Joe Biden's, you know, he's had some tragedy in his life. Maybe he shouldn't be president. Maybe he should spend more time raising his grandkids. Well, how did you find out? Wait a minute. He's, I mean, Alan's question, I think, was meant to probe where it is you hear these details. Because I'm superficial. <laughs> I'm not, I don't have a PhD. No, I'm not the son of a, an economist. Attract the partner, you know. But wait, no, I'm asking because I'm obviously. Look, I haven't had a chance. I, I don't. I can't even get New York Times hard copy. I might as well read National Enquirer hard, co- hard copy. Is that what you're? Uh, I, I don't have. I don't. I'm not one of the world's leading experts on British Marxists or FDR. <laughs> I didn't get the education you have. I only get by on rage. Ad hominem rage. That's it. And I, I, I hate their kids, and they should be ashamed of themselves. We got, we got a fresh David here today, Harvey. Usually, we get the tired, you know, six hours. After, you know, now we get the fresh David problem. Are we going to see a fifteen dollars minimum wage? Hmm. I like Bernie's take on it today. I thought that was sharp. That, what did you know, he say? I didn't. Oh, that Americans are sick of uh, of subsidizing McDonald's and Walmart. Great. Yeah. That that should be every day some major Democrat of the left or some major leftist ought to get some airtime on that very question. You bet. Absolutely. Even at $15, they're still going to have to go get get aid. 
And fifteen dollars is not a living wage. It's it's Bernie's kids, but Levi, his kids, perfect. Bernie's kids all turned out great. You know, but you know that family suffered a serious tragedy right around the time of uh, of Bernie's heart attack that didn't get a lot of press, and that Levi's partner died. Yeah. And he met. It was a beautiful story how they met. They were met. Yeah. They they met doing oh yeah some yeah. kind of uh, work for the impoverished. You know. It's the values you instill in your children that reveal what kind of leader you're going to be. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so sick of the 1% telling me, questioning me, what do you do for a living? What do you do? Where'd you go to school? How are you raising your kids? You send your kids to public school, not private school? Go F yourself. Seriously, these people are degenerates and they're all miserable and they raise drug addicts for children because they're they're so out of touch. How is Ted Cruz's kids? I'm sorry, then I'll shut up. How are Ted Cruz's children, those two daughters, gonna be normal when when the father teaches them that when your neighbor is suffering, you go stay at the Ritz in Cancun? How is that in what universe is that moral? How how are those kids not permanently damaged from that? I, you're right, you're right. But, but the maybe that is, can, go ahead. Go ahead. I know. I was going to say maybe because he married someone who works for Goldman Sachs. Maybe if you get two negatives, you get a positive. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any oh, anything funny. coming out of Washington that. Uh, that, that makes me feel good. Yeah. No, oh, come on, Joe Manchin. We're we're we have to be, we're cozy, cuddly, strange bedfellows, right? So we're all cozied up with Joe Manchin this week because he he was trying to block <laughs> Nira Tandon and agreed to support Deb Holland. So you should have Nira uh, Tandon on the show, David, and read all of her hidden twitters. Nira Tandon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All the toxic tweets that she deleted. Uh, the ones against Bernie and rank them. Have a have a competition to rank. Well, there them. there were some. I mean, the the stuff she wrote about Bernie was disgraceful. Do you have mm-hmm. any sympathy for Neera Tandon, Professor K? Do you have any? Me? Yeah. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Are you? No. I, no. I think she's actually very dangerous. By the way, Why? she has been a hardcore neoliberal, anti-union. Yes. Stuns, and so here's the thing: they if they want to bring back neoliberal austerity. Who has who has the intestinal fortitude to stand up and take the hits and be the advocate for in the administration right now, other than near attendant? I think she's very dangerous and she still might yet get through. Yeah, she might. In fact, you bet, because the Democrats apparently are rallying. And all I can tell you is that Bernie should just make the phone call to Joe and say, Joe, just halt it now and let's move on. Okay, but he's probably too nice a guy. Joe Biden, not Joe Manchin. Uh, I think I think Bernie's hoping that she just doesn't go for it. Yeah, no. Bernie's definitely. He should call Joe Biden. He should Joe Biden. Yeah, you know, he said I, y- y- we're supposedly friends, we're comrades, and this is what you this is what you want to put in my way when I'm moving ahead with this stuff. Come on. In fact, when I heard that she was nominated for the OMB, 
I could not believe it. I thought, in fact, I want you to know that's one of the things I have on a list that that lead me to believe, which I tried not to believe, that he's not that he's not all there. Biden. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things they did to Bernie on this is the person who was floated, whose name I can't remember. I have it sort of on the tip of my tongue, but can't recall it right now who was considered very right wing for the position. And so the fact that he didn't get it and they named Tandon, that created this dynamic where, well, you're going to have to approve her because the person who's going to follow her is going to be worse. Now that person's name has sort of faded away as a backup, which suggests that if she does falter, that might've just been this particular strategic thing they did to try to paralyze Bernie's opposition. But again, mainly Bernie's lack of opposition is because Bernie's, I think Bernie's trying to use his, I got to hate the term because George W. Bush used it. What's a better term? Well, political capital is what you want to say. Yeah, I don't want to use it because Bush (laughs) is. Bernie's trying to use his political capital and things he feels are most constructive. That's right. Yeah. But but, uh, he also isn't, doesn't want to get in a conflict with Biden over something like this. He's hoping that that Murkowski doesn't go over because I think it really now is on Murkowski is the only one who might go over and give them the votes to pass Tandon. Because it only takes one to knock her out, and that mansion is over. Well, I mean, he's head of the budget committee. Bernie is. And Biden nominates the one person Bernie probably hates more than anybody else in the Democratic Party. So maybe Biden was putting her up as as a fall guy that they never intended her. When you were racing... Maybe they hoped it would send Bernie well, they, over the edge. They, they put, don't forget, they put her up before the Georgia results. So they thought she would lose. And I actually wondered if she was being put up sort of as somebody who would um, be sacrificed so did to I. Yeah. the other people and to give some red meat to Mitch McConnell to knock down, which as strategy wouldn't be bad. But again, they won in Georgia, which again, that we know Democratic leadership was not anticipating. So now this is this is a fight. But I do think there are powerful people inside the Democratic Party who we can't stand, who are who are really going to bat and probably directly pressuring for near a tandem. But again, yeah, David, you're right. It's terrible that she's there. And and now with Manchin saying what Manchin said, the fact that they're doubling down is pretty ugly. Also, can I can I bring up one other thing? I know we're probably going to be pushed off soon, but what is with this administration that they reopen these centers, these camps, these jails, these cages. Right. What, mm-hmm. what is with this administration? Who's making the decisions in this in this place? Not to mention, well, why is it that they came out the other day and, and in favor, it, it appeared, of reinstituting the sort of, you know, what do they call those those exams in schools? The uh, what are those called? The. You know, those exams that they imposed that that would measure Students, not, Te- not students alone, but the teachers quick. You go teaching know. to the test or something, teaching to the test stuff when they don't even have a secretary of education yet, I believe. I mean, what is with this administration? OK, I don't get it. I thought Ron Klain was smarter than this. I, I maybe he's not in charge either. There is an influx of uh, there. The, the, it has increased the number of immigrants coming from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. There's been a surge since Biden got elected. They, they come in waves. 
So yeah, no, I grant, and the numbers are one thing. The point is that when you make such an issue, rightly, of those centers in quotes, right. and then you 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 reopen them without any kind of consideration at least preparing people to say, well, we're not going to set it. We're going to set it up differently. And you bring right. the media in, you do something not to mention if they're kids that presumably coming in to, to hook up with aunts and uncles who are already here or whatever else, there's, it just dropped. Right. Okay. In addition to whatever sins they commit in reality, I also have to say they, they don't have a message for shit. Right. Right. Uh, they certainly don't because I, I, I agree with you hundred yeah, no, percent. There is some justification for their policy that, and they're not messaging properly. For example, they're buying tickets. Any kids they spot along the way, they're flying into America and, and, and mix matching them with their guardians, but they're not messaging. They're not saying that because that's not political. That's not politically well, look, expedient for Biden. Because to- they have because they're cowards. Yes. Okay. They're cowards. OK, when is it when are, when are these folks going to realize how to look? The majority of Americans are not the folks who invaded the Capitol building, period. And when are the Democrats going to realize that Americans want America to be America? OK, and there are right ways of doing things and gross ways of doing things. And that's the th- and this administration, by the way, I mean, I started out with a sense of possibility in this administration. And I, and I could tell you that I'm seriously concerned that they are wasting the first hundred days, badly wasting. What have they done? You know, what's true, too. And this goes right to Harvey J.K. stuff, too, which is, um, you know, compared to the clarity, again, not just of FDR, but of Reagan, even or Trump or Trump. No, there was clarity. I mean, this this but this is mangled. This is getting pretty mangled. For instance, one of the things that really irks me is is they don't clearly don't know how to contend with cinema and mansion yeah. because and the administration is shy about the confrontation but think of this <laughs> okay gun control is, is just not even almost on the radar screen but that's that's an example the pro act with the labor unions um immigration reform huge issue for so many communities across the country all of these are dead s senate bill one hr one right to support voting rights is dead without reversing the filibuster none of those have any chance at all of getting into any reconciliation package you're going to have massively massively disappointed constituents when none of any of that goes forward with the democrats holding all three you know the, the having the trifecta and they in no way have a strategy or tactics or messaging to prepare for the battle that's necessary in order to either achieve those things or at least have people fully recognize why they're going to fail. Can I ask, can I call an audible here? Let me ask Professor Ben Burgess, because this would make me very happy if I could talk to the three of you together. Well, I got to go in about three minutes. And of course, I'd love to talk to Ben because I brought Ben up on. Yeah. Professor K, can you stick around a little longer? Yeah. Yes, I can. Let me just let me mute myself so I can shout downstairs to make sure I'm not holding everybody. up. Okay. I I really wish I could stay. Um, And again, I should. Can I let Ben know right now? Yeah, you were Professor Ben Burgess joins us. He's a columnist. I'm okay now. Good. Good. I I haven't seen Ben in a number of weeks, so I'll let you guys go. I'll leave in about three minutes, but I brought you up because I was on a call, a national call around tuition-free public college, and I brought up your beautiful six-minute piece that they cut from for Jacobin around uh, the Ivies, and had a little debate back and forth with some people about it. Of course, we're oh, free. Good. 
we're all for tuition free public college. And I support, I, I'm an Ivy League graduate. I fully support the idea of turning them into public institutions. I think it's quite a political battle we would have about that, that level of concentrated wealth and political power that is represented by their alumni. But um, yeah, we had a nice little debate. Well, their alumni it. are the problem. Their alumni, <laughs> they're, they're, they're incestuous, you, you they're problem. weak, yeah. they're, they're incestuous cowards. And they, and they have to be called out on that. They are incestuous <laughs> cowards. Yeah. But Sorry, uh, you, you but should I, be ashamed I, of where if you went to Yale, you mm. should be ashamed. You should I, be ashamed. I don't disagree. I disagree with that. I, I think that we I don't think that we should have these ridiculous institutions to perpetuate um economic privilege but uh, but i don't think anybody should be ashamed in the future when they're a member of what will then be the uh, uh yukon new haven alumni association oh i do right. disagree with one thing about your um your oh, yeah. go for uh, it I, much like oxford and cambridge i think they could still be called yale and harvard they could keep the brand i think they have to be just as not with the you know nurturing the the ruling class of the immediate future right but they can still remain they are exceptional institutions they i mean love sterling library love Beinecke library i'd love for those to persist but they should be public assets and they should not be just this thing that generates yeah, i mean look i i think that the uh, whatever you want to call them i mean uh, i'm obviously having a little fun with the yukon new haven umass yeah, cambridge yeah. stuff but uh but what was no the problem. thesis of your proposal okay. oh uh that uh, that we shouldn't uh we shouldn't have uh, these these uh, elite institutions uh, like like Harvard and Yale that um, if you think that the um, basically if you think that the purpose of those institutions the thing that justifies their existence is that you get a much better education there than you get elsewhere then that seems like a good reason not to have them uh, exist in their present form so as to distribute that education. Uh, you know, more evenly. Uh, certainly, if you start looking at the stats about the economic background of, you know, students at these institutions, it's, it's pretty astonishing. Uh, and, they, you know, they, I, it's all one percent. There is no they bring in minorities and they do the diversity trick. But in the end, it's the one percent. It, it's uh, or the top 10 percent of this country, no matter no matter what the complexion, no matter how much they change. Yeah, the re- I mean, it's the, the overwhelming majority uh, of the of the students come from the upper income brackets. And if you if, on the other hand, you think that the purpose of these institutions is largely for uh, networking for the future ruling class, then that's also not something we should have now as far as what you want to call them or whatever. I mean, look, I, I also take seriously the criticism from the opposite direction of what Alan just said, that, uh, that you know, my, um, you know, like I'm very serious about taking them into public ownership, but my slightly, you know, playful naming suggestion uh, assumes that we still have the kind of state university systems that we have in the future. I think there's a good case for uh, consolidating those nationally. Uh, you know, I, I think that there's there's a lot of uh, of inequity, you know, between uh, the different state university systems, and and more generally, I think that if you're thinking about like serious social change in a country like the United States, I think the degree of uh, federalism, the degree of decentralization that we have, is a huge problem. So, uh, you know, I mean, maybe uh, you know, like. I'm I'm less uh, I'm less concerned with what you call them than I am with uh, with who uh, who control. 
controls them, especially because we're talking like some of these places have like endowments that are bigger than like the GDP of entire countries uh, and, uh, and who gets to go there and, you know, all of that stuff. Right. I mean, I think those are the, the bigger issues. But Alan, I, uh, I know you have to go, but um, while I'm thinking about it, you should uh, you should come on and give them an argument sometime. I'd love to do that. Uh, I'd love to do that. Let's get in touch through David. And uh, thank right. you. Yep. Take it away, everybody. I, I don't work on that. Sh- I've been fired from that job. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I was, I'm no longer been asking David to do the thing that he was doing for free. So this is a. Uh, I was. Obviously, as me, I talk about how he's fired. He, he uh, fired me from that <laughs> job. Been replaced with a Harvard grad. <laughs> yeah. No, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, I'm going to be fired by my daughter. So I got okay. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, thank you for writing. Where where are you? There you are. Thank you for writing that. I appreciate that. Have you been following what's been going on in Smith at Smith college? Uh, I have. Yeah. Actually the guy who wrote that piece, Michael Powell was, was a guest on my show. Uh, I don't know, a few months ago or something about something else he wrote, but, uh, but that guy actually, I think has, has shockingly good politics for a, a New York times reporter, uh, and uh, and I think he I think that he's absolutely right, you know, in the uh, in the implied commentary. I Can think. you tell us what, what what this is about? Sure. So um, so Smith College, uh, exactly the kind of uh, exactly the kind of elite private college that we shouldn't have. Uh, Seventy eight thousand dollars a year. Yeah, exactly. At least not in um, seventy eight thousand dollars a year to go to Smith. Yeah, well, and, and I think that shows in the story because uh, when, when people are paying you that much and when you hope that they're going to be paying you a lot more in the future as alumni donors, uh, then uh, you are going to uh, cater to them in a way that like at the kind of places that uh, Harvey and I have taught, uh, people are just not going to cater to students, uh, you know, because they're more working class students, you know, who, who aren't going to get that kind of like, uh, that degree, you know, who aren't going to have that degree of entitlement in the first place and certainly aren't going to be catered to in that way. Now, if you're uh, even if it's a full ride, professor, yeah, you're still beholden to the richest one percent. You you can be this whiz kid from the ghetto, but you uh, get that full ride. You are sucked up into the upper class and you're part of them now. Right. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, like, again, that's that's certainly a lot of the function of uh, of those institutions, you know, that they have. I mean, obviously, your Smiths and your Oberlin's are in a slightly different niche, you know, than your Harvard's or your Yale's, but all of these elite educational institutions, a lot of what they do is, uh, as you say, they acculturate people uh, into uh, into the future ruling class, or at the very least, a very high echelon of the professional managerial class. Uh, they have, um, you know, so so they they teach people to see the world the way that they see it, uh, and and to network with other you know with other members of it, uh, and this is also how you end up with. I mean, this is not. I, I want to talk about the Smith story, but I mean, just as a side note, which is not entirely unrelated, this is how you end up with like uh, what Thomas Frank talks about in, in his great book Listen Liberal, uh, which is about the way that the kind of liberalism that's dominant today, that the kind that's like the dominant ideology of the contemporary Democratic Party is very different uh, from, from the, uh, the kind of, um, 
of liberalism, you know, that, uh, well, you know, that, that, that Harvey writes about when he writes about the new deal, uh, or, or even like, look, I mean, LBJ was committing war crimes in Southeast Asia, but he was still in many ways a good New Deal liberal in his domestic politics. He was, you know, he was doing the Great Society, and and his domestic agenda was very much shaped by the fact that like organized labor was a huge part of the Democratic coalition at that time, and you know, and and, and there was you know push and pull, of course. But I mean, like it, it got to push and pull a lot more uh, than the considerably weakened version that exists today. And the kind of liberalism that's dominant now that Frank talks about really redefines uh, social justice, uh, not as creating a more egalitarian society overall in the sense that, you know, like income is more evenly distributed or, or anything like that. Uh, it's, about, uh, it's about a more perfect meritocracy about having, you know, the, the best and the brightest from each group get to uh, get to rise through the top by doing things like going to Harvard and Yale or, or Berlin or Smith or wherever. Uh, and I, I think you see some of that in the story because I don't know how much, you know, whether you talked about this on the show before I came on, you know, whether, whether you know, uh, listeners basically know what you're talking about at this point or not. With Smith? Yeah. Nothing. I don't. Uh, we, okay, okay, okay. So, so real quickly, right? No, take your time. Uh, this is important. Uh, there was a, there was a story um, that went around uh, a little while ago about a student at Smith, a black student uh, who said that they were, they were told at the, um, you know, they were like eating at the cafeteria uh, and, and they, and, and they had, there was like a racist incident. There was a, you know, like a campus security person, you know, it was like, because they were a black student who was there told them, oh, you know, you're, you know, what are you doing here? You, you obviously don't belong here. So that obviously puts it uh, in a, uh, in a certain light. Uh, and, um, and that's the light it was reported in. Uh, and the, uh, the, the security person, uh, you know, who, uh, one of the thing, one of the many things actually in the Michael Powell story of the New York Times that came out is the original report said the security person was armed, but of course they're not. Smith security, you know, is not armed in general. Uh, the security person and also the janitor who called the security person, I believe, uh, you know, were were both. Um, uh, I think fired. I think, one of them had a mo- an emotional breakdown. Is it? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think one of them, uh, one of them was put on leave, and one of them uh, was now. I think that to be fair, it could have been that like they were a victim of general layoffs, but also their name had been all over the place with this, since they couldn't get hired anywhere else. Uh, and uh, basically, I'm sure at seventy five, seventy eight thousand dollars a a year, the, the the janitor is well compensated. I'm sure there's a a hefty severance package, union job. I'm sure Smith. Yeah, right. Uh, none of that. So well, that's not part um, of your identity at Smith being working class. They don't no. identify the working class as part of your identity. No. Uh, and, and, and as it, and as it turned out, the whole thing, uh, the whole thing basically was, was not at all like the way it was reported originally was not at all what happened. Uh, the, um, this, you know, it was, it was a closed off area no student, you know, was supposed to be there at that point, you know, uh, over, you know, over the summer, I think there's some summer program there and they're using it for something there, oh, yeah. but, but no Smith student was supposed to be there. Uh, they have, uh, the, but the fact, I think the janitor who ended up alerting the security person, um, let her in anyway, 
because uh, basically something that Powell gets into in the article is that they don't, um, they're very reluctant, you know, to pretty much enforce any rule, you know, with Smith students. Uh, so they, they kind of let him in anyway, said, hey, just FYI, there's, I'm not sure this person's supposed to be there or not, right? Did exactly what they were supposed to do, right? And it's, instead of rebuffing them themselves, said, no, you can't be here. I went to talk to the security person to talk to them. And all the security person did is say, hey, this is a closed off area. You're not supposed to be, be there right now. It's, it's what they would have done uh, with, with any student. And these, these two completely powerless working class people, uh, you know, really got uh, dragged through the mud as well as having, you know, employment uh, consequences, uh, you know, for, for the whole thing, you know, being doxxed, you know, having their identity be out there and associated with, you know, being told, you know, that they, they'd done this terrible racist thing. Uh, and, and so I, I think it's a, um, you know, I think it's a significant story in, in a couple ways, uh, one of which uh, is that, uh, well, that one they're of which, so busy teaching these Smith girls about identity that there are you, everybody's identity must be respected unless you're poor. There's well, no identity to poverty. There's no, or if you want to yeah. unionize with that identity, we're not going to recognize, but you're different and you should celebrate your difference and that should be respected. But being poor, uh, well, that would unite everybody, wouldn't it? We don't want the girls from Smith to have solidarity and to find common ground. So let's celebrate our differences. So you you have this identity and you have this identity and you have this identity. We need $78,000 a year and you have this identity and another $78,000. But God forbid they all come together as the 99%. Smith can't allow that. So we have to celebrate your differences. Yeah, and, and I'd, I'd also, I mean, I'd also just say, like, so we, we kind of covered the the angle of um, of the sort of the lead entitlement issue and of the bad incentives of the, the Smith administration to again, you know, cater to the students and future donors. Uh, I'd also say, I mean, not not for nothing. I mean, not to be too squishy about this, but like, I, I think that by um, like just you know letting these people go acting this way going along with it i mean honestly i think they're doing a really di- real disservice to uh the student too uh because i mean look the the way that she reacted to this uh was kind of ridiculous uh i think it's not totally you know like like i i can understand it a little bit i think that the I think that sometimes when people feel flustered or messed with, they reach for whatever interpretation makes them feel righteous about the interaction. I, I'm sure we've all been there, you know, in various situations in our lives. Also, not for nothing, like this young woman is what, 19, 20? Uh, I mean, I, I I did a lot of stupid shit when I was that age, right? Like, like, and, and I think but you that, didn't go to Smith. Well, no, I did. I went to, uh, in fact, probably. That would have been. Uh, sure, go ahead. I'm, go ahead. I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I was at Lansing Community College, and uh, who would Michigan, send their so. daughter to Smith? Uh, what, what are you going? What are you going to? I mean, rich people, basically. But I was just going to say, right? I think it's. I think it is somewhat of a disservice to her because I think that, I think having her, like, I think if she could have just been politely but firmly rebuffed no, I'm sorry, there's no, 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 there, there. And it hadn't become a thing. And maybe it would have like gone viral online or something anyway, but if it hadn't, right. If they'd just been able to do that, 
then I think this would not be like attached to her going forward in a way that's going to make her very hard for her to evolve in her like understanding of the world in the way that we would kind of hope that people who are that age will as they as they get a little older and and to and to you know like 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 ideally you know somebody says or does something really dumb when they're 19 then like nothing comes of it because nobody takes it very seriously and five or ten years later they think back and they think oh eesh. all right well whatever uh, like, like they, they, they get over it. They, they don't think of, you know, they feel a little bit embarrassed that way and, and that's fine. I mean, that's, that's, that's the way it should work. And, and if it were a different kind of institution, maybe I think that's the, uh, that's the way it would work. But I mean, I don't think that certainly in terms of the chance of like this person becoming a reasonable adult, I don't think they're doing her service. And of course that's like a minor footnote. Like the real issue here is, uh, is that the, people in, in these like service jobs and you know and i know that like some people who generally agree with me about politics will talk about abolishing the police and stuff but i don't know that anybody really wants to abolish the unarmed campus security at smith college uh you know like that's 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 a pretty like uh that's a not terribly well compensated and and not very you know how do like, they what do they stop or i'll condescend to you based on the way you look yeah, I mean, it's there's no. This is not a person in a great position of power. This is uh, this is a person in a very economically precarious situation, and um, and they, you know, I don't know what else to say except that it sounds like they need a union. Gee, am I wrong in saying that Nixon's daughter went to Smith? Yes, oh, did she? Yeah, Julie. Julie <laughs> Where does Eisenhower. Where that come out of my memory? That's all Ju- I can Julie tell you. Nixon. Julie Eisenhower Nixon, right? Julie Smith. Nixon. Okay. Yes. Okay. And she married David Eisen, who married the grandson of Eisenhower, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. It's the uh, um, recently found out a very random fact about Nixon's other daughter, Trisha. Is that her name? Trisha Cox. Yeah, before she was Trisha Cox, when Nixon first got to the White House, uh, apparently she went out on a date with uh, George W. Bush. That, uh, <laughs> right. So yeah. uh, it, it's. You know, if you've, I mean, so it's that basically it's that old uh, clip of George Carlin talking about how it's one big club and you're not in it. Yeah. Uh, uh, the husband, Cox, was a Nader's Raider briefly. Oh, really? Yeah. There were, uh, the Nader had a problem with the right wing joining him to learn his tricks so they could go out and, uh, you know, fight him. But uh, yeah, that's. Uh, those are the. Uh, you know, I don't ask for much. Look, David. Now I got to go. So I okay. Say thank you, Professor my, Harvey J. Thank you. Yeah. Good to Hello. see you, Harvey. Got to talk soon. Thank you very much, Harvey J. K. Pick up FDR on democracy. I don't ask for much, Professor Ben Burgess. I really don't. If if you're successful and you have power and uh, money, fine. Yeah. I have no problem. But all I expect is 99% of this country to hate you. That's all I'm asking for. I'm not asking, I'm not saying to confiscate your money. I'm not saying that we should be storming your home and taking away your art. I think you should be taxed. I think the marginal tax rate should be about 97% if you're making $2 million, $3 million a year. All I'm asking is that 99% of this country hates you and hates your family 
and, and looks down on your kids and says, oh, well, you've achieved nothing in your life because you've had everything handed to you. That's all I'm asking for. That the kids of the wealthy should be ashamed of their parents. Well, and, and, and I think that this does this does also go to to one other dimension of this, which is that, like, there's a lot of, I, you know, there's a sense in which, like, a lot of the way that uh, what happened uh, last year, last summer, you know, after after the, the murder of George Floyd, uh, which, you know, of course, um you know, very good and supportable protests and some very good local reforms that came out of that. Uh, but also the way it was processed in the larger culture, um, you know, think like, you know, the uh, runaway sales of Robin D'Angelo and all that, what a uh, friend Adolf Reed calls uh, the great awakening. Uh, like it's, it's, it sort of uh, lends itself to a, uh, a politics that's like almost this this um, this symbolic pseudo politics that uh, that has uh, that's 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 about everything you know that's that's much more about like examining personal interactions and you know and how things can be read uh, than it is about basic uh, power relations, you know, even like how policing works, which is how all this started, but, you know, never mind the larger issues that are in the background of all of this, uh, like the fact that, uh, and obviously there's a racial component of this, you know, like the fact that the, uh, the distribution of, of wealth uh, in the society is, is, is just grotesquely lopsided. Right. Professor Ben Burgess is the author of Give Them an Argument, he is a columnist for Jacobin. He was recently published in The Nation. He teaches at Perimeter College. And he has a new book coming out entitled Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left, which is very relevant to what we've just been talking about, about the uh, the difference between real politics that's about structures of, of, of economic and political power and uh, this kind of symbolic pseudo politics. Uh, and, uh, and it has, um, and, you know, I'm very proud if you look on the inside there, there are, uh, there are quotes from, uh, lots of, uh, uh, lots of people that I have a lot of respect for. And, uh, also, uh, David Feldman. I blurbed it. Yes. I gave you a blurb. I think that's the first blurb I've ever given, by the way, you have to go, but, uh, Mike Ward, this, yeah. com this comedian up in uh, Montreal is taking his right to make fun of the disabled all the way to the Supreme Court of, of Canada. He made fun of this kid who's deaf, wears a hearing aid, talks different facial yes. deformities. He's kind of a national treasure. And Mike Ward made fun of him and he was fined by the Human Rights Commission. And he's taking it all to the Supreme Court because it's a slippery slope once you're no longer allowed to make fun of deformed children, pretty soon you won't be able to what? Make fun uh, of Amazon on television? Talk about the Bessemer, the the people, the the, the five thousand Bessemer Alabama yeah. Amazon workers who are trying to unionize? You can't. All you yeah. can do on national television is make fun of the deformed. Well, They've already well, taken that away from you. Let, let, let me say this. Let me say this about that, and then I really do have to go. Okay. If uh, if I 
if I were a family member of the of the child, you know, who you know who was who's being made fun of, uh, and I and I actually saw that guy, I might very well punch him in the face, but I'd still be on his side of that legal battle because because I, I do think that uh, that that free speech uh, is uh, is important. I think that uh, I think that that's something that historically the the left has uh, has understood, and I think that we minimize that uh, at our own peril. But uh, but we can uh, you know we could argue about that perhaps. Uh, I'm going to get the me. last word on this, and you'll come back next week to talk. I'm yes. going to taunt you. Yes, please. You know what? This is the last word on this. Of course, okay. Mike Ward should be allowed to make for- fun of a deaf kid who's has facial deformities. Just once, I'd like to see a comedian fighting for the right to attack Jeff Bezos, not allowing his Bessemer, Alabama employees to unionize. When are those cases going to be brought to the Supreme Court? When is the comedian going to go on stage, uh, go on a, a network television show and make jokes about McDonald's? spying on their employees and then firing the ones who are sympathetic to a $15 an hour minimum wage. Where are we, when are we going to see that comedian taking that right to the Supreme Court? It's always the F word or, or making fun of midgets. The first, if, if all the First Amendment is for, for comedians is to make fun of uh, children with disabilities, I got the last word, Ben Burgess. Now you'll have to come back. Thank you. Let, thank you so much. I love you, buddy. Thank you. All right. I love you too, David. Thank you. Talk let's soon. let's go to Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, psychiatrist, and Ethan Hershenfeld, son of a psychiatrist. Not and, a psychiatrist. And you're is it called an album or a CD? Thug Thug Jew? I think they call it an album. I was going to release it on vinyl, but I never got around to that. I had environmental qualms. No one uses vinyl. It's cool to have it, but yeah, I have a, I have a question. I'll, I'll, I'll ask you and then, damn it. I forgot the uh, sound effects. Um, I can do those. I'm pretty okay. good. At- Here, here's a question I want to ask your dad, but you, you answered the, the gift of the pandemic for people who are lucky enough is to slow. We, some of us, people of privilege, have been a, been forced to slow down and, and reexamine what's really important. And we've been, some of us occasionally have practiced mindfulness that, you know, stirring the pasta sauce is a lot more entertaining perhaps than the garbage that we were watching on television. Some of us are learning that what we really want in life is peace and quiet, somebody to love, some nature, some friendship. So when you look at somebody like Jeff Bezos, it's never enough for this homunculus. He's got to buy the the Washington football team now. Uh. Don't we as a culture have to start pointing out that Jeff Bezos is is disease has as a diseased mind? Shouldn't should, he should be portrayed not as a hero, not as a titan of industry, but somebody who hates himself 
right? Um, wow, that's such a that was. You're not auditioning for any Amazon Prime movies. No, no, that, that was. A, it, it, let me finish. In that case, let me finish. I probably am. I probably just did. I probably just submitted a for some. Uh, well, then let's move on. Theories. No, no, no. Um, yeah, I I agree. There was a lot in that question, um, David. But uh, yeah, we uh, we have our priorities. Is it healthy for somebody? Is it healthy for somebody to never stop? Is it healthy for somebody? To just get up every, I want, I, I want to. If you're crossing a six lane highway, it's healthy to never stop. Because <laughs> the likelihood of getting just smashed into. Um, here's the thing about this. I like where you started with the slow and the fast thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the idea of slowing down in the pandemic, that's great for a lot of people. And, and yes, it does. It, the, the, the first requirement for that is that you you're privileged and you're lucky enough to be able to like work from home or not work from home. Um, but for a guy like me who has always really, really enjoyed and valued and explored the many ways to take a nap. <laughs> Slow. Slowing down is not, it's not, it hasn't really been a boon. Uh, let's just say um, slowing down was not, I didn't need to slow down. I've, I've enjoyed it, but it was not really necessary. But I get a sense, see now, not to embarrass you, but uh that's what makes you so lovable is that you're not that you're you at least what you present to the world you what you present to the world is yeah i could take a nap well yeah i i mean i have that flip side i have my little uh, bezos living inside me where i'm rating myself against my own ambitions and well i don't want to put your father in an awkward position is it fair to ask him whether or not it's healthy to be worth a hundred and eighty, two hundred and eighty billion dollars, and want to own a football team. Doctor, yes. Um, can I start with a preamble, please? My whole family is always attacking me for my preamble. <laughs> But that's how I talk. Okay, here's my preamble. Um, in this hot bed of pinkoism, <laughs> do we allow dis- do we allow dissent? Yes, we do. Okay. So first of all, my primary identity, even though I am a psychiatrist, my primary identity is as a psychoanalyst. Okay. Because you know. That's yeah, you get better, better parking spots. <laughs> Secondly, David, did you ever hear of fifth century Athens? Or did you ever hear of... Um, Is that Germany? a clothing line? Yeah, right. Germany and, and Austria... Uh, you know, between 1880 and, and 1915, let's say. These were hotbeds of fructification. What, of, is, what does that mean? 
<laughs> fruiting um, uh, of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Aristophanes and Sophocles and these people fed off of each other and Freud and Jung and Einstein and there is, you might call that elitism but I would also say that in that kind of an environment unimaginable heights of thinking and creativity are achieved so I get your point about the economic um, disparities in the in the elite universities but there's another side to think about also at the same time so getting back to your actual question about but in my I, i don't think plato turned to sophocles uh uh plato and uh socrates socrates yeah i don't think plato said to socrates before i write this down what lyceum did you go to? Where, you know, where, is this, did you go, can I see your? <laughs> no, but, you know, they all belong to the same one. Given, you know, leaving aside the fact that Plato was a total fascist, but. That's I, just, I agree with uh, Socrates about music and poetry and the children being raised by the state. That I, I agree with that. <laughs> I mean. It's not the dumbest idea, but go ahead. My only point is I don't want to totally condemn elite high, uh, institutions of, of higher education. Um, City College in the 30s and 40s and even the 50s was a, an elite institution. And it was free for much of that period of time. And I don't know if this is still true, but at one time, 5% of the PhDs in this entire country were graduates of CCNY. They saved Jewish intellectualism. While Hitler was exterminating the intellectuals in Germany, City College was replenishing them. And also very important about City College, whenever a show like Law and Order or Blue Bloods has to film a scene at an elite college and they can't for their budget, they don't want to travel 100 miles. They just go up to 138th Street and shoot that scene. They shoot. They always shoot that scene at City College because it's got those beautiful stone buildings. City College is beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And it produced. Uh, neoconservatives like Bill Crystal's father and uh, the other one. The, a lot of good thinking. Well, no, 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 that's bad thinking. Argue, arguing the world. Did you see yeah. that documentary? Yeah. That's amazing. That he, it, it produced Trotskyites yeah. who became Reagan Democrats. <laughs> Somehow they made the journey from Trotsky to Reagan. And I think that has something to do with assimilation and uh, money in the bank. You just put on a red hat in honor of the show. Look, I'm not a, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a pinko. All okay. I want is class struggle. I'm being serious. All I want is my side to hate the other side with as much vitriol as they have for us. I, I want it like a game, you know, I, I'd like 
have like one party that hates me and one party that fights for me. That's all I want. And then you then you can have centrism. So maybe this is why Bezos bought a, a football team so he could have people <laughs> fighting with other people <laughs> for him. But if you were treating somebody like that. Yes. Well, let me ask your son, because I well, the first thing you do is you raise your rates. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's obvious. And also you you uh, you explain to him this is going to take a long time. This treatment. Tell me about tell me about your great, 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 great grandmother. Let's yeah. start with her first. Then we'll get to your mother in a couple of years. Is it tribalism? Is the that people need to belong to a group that they're proud of, and so they they cling to these schools, they cling to a religion that they're proud of. Is that what it's about? That they that they have so much, or a football team that they're. I mean, people's identity is. Can you really be? Can you create an identity for yourself by being a Mets fan? Does some does a guy really believe I'm a Mets fan? That's who I am. Meet the Mets. Meet the Mets. <laughs> I mean, that was a pretty good theme song. Is that a theme song? Is that what that's called? Do most teams have a theme song? That's so bizarre. They have a mascot. They didn't even have a mascot. Their mascot was a guy whose head was a ball. <laughs> <laughs> Hydroencephalitis, I believe. Is yeah, that is some lazy mascot making. <laughs> okay, let's uh, just stick a big head on that. Stick a big ball on that guy's head. There you go. Go. <laughs> come up with an animal. I mean, it's, it's literally, they took the word metropolitan, cut it, cut it into a third, and that's the name of the team. That's not okay. And the, so it was the Jetropolitans who also played at Shea, I guess. Yeah, what are the, oh, they're right. Yeah, that's terrible also. They were just near an airport. So they were trying to, <laughs> never thought of that. It's terrible. That's a team basically named after LaGuardia. No wonder. <laughs> after a nuisance. Yeah. After a, a noise. Noise. Yeah. Noise. And a nick. What is a nick? <laughs> Isn't that a kind of pants? Is that a knickerbocker? Those, no, those are knickers. What is a knickerbocker? A guy who's like prancing around the town? <laughs> a knickerbocker? I think they were like the Brahmins of New York, the knickerbockers. Oh, like the fancy pants. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they yeah, didn't wear fancy pants. Right. They wore shorts. Um, peace and quiet. If, yeah. if peace and quiet, I'm going to ask your dad this. Yeah, if peace right. and quiet were readily available to everybody. Yeah. I thought you were going to say if peace and quiet went head to head in t a 10 round. <laughs> well, wow. let me ask you, what do you prefer more, peace or quiet? I prefer. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take quiet any day. Yes. Because without quiet, you cannot have peace. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. But without peace, you can have a state of warfare that's very quiet. A stealth bomber, yeah, a silencer. Okay. Yeah, well, um, uh, like a, a booby trap. Very quiet. <laughs> Not peaceful. <laughs> but quiet is better than peace. Quiet, I'll take quiet. Any for who? For whom? Not for everybody. There are plenty of people who cannot stand peace and quiet, who need agitation, 
who need activity, who need to be running around constantly with five different projects. You're referring to the Jews? (laughs) Just just say. (laughs) I'm referring to myself, if you must know. Hello, I must be going. That's the problem. But... I don't let me ask Ethan this. Isn't the problem that that the psychiatric community should train people to slow down and be quiet because you have you have a neighbor, you have you have neighbors and they're trying to sleep or take a nap like us at two in the afternoon. People don't know how to be quiet. And if people could be quiet You know, if I could change one attribute about myself, it would be my oversensitivity to noise. Me too. It's gotten me into so much trouble in my life uh, from childhood through. Me too. If I could just not care. So I got these custom made earplugs made a few years ago and they're great. They cut out a lot of noise. Um, But I have noise canceling earbuds. If my neighbor is making noise, it fires uh, mace in their eyes, and they—that's the doctor. Her- yeah, out of my ears. Yeah, Doctor yeah. Hershenfeld. Uh, yeah. Noise has been my bet noir. Uh huh. If if and it's certain types of noise. If, if I know what the noise is, I pass judgment on the noise to decide whether or not it's acceptable. If someone's practicing the violin that's good noise Uh if somebody's blasting top 40 music i want to you know (laughs) there's good noise and bad noise i would say it's a form of irritability i would say that it may have a neurological basis a hypersensitivity to sound. I do not have that, by the way. I, I just somehow block it out. I would also say that there are probably psychological and historical aspects to every person's relation to sound and to noise. I mean, I used to be on the phone with Ethan from up in the country. And he would be complaining about my neighbor <laughs> with his leaf blower. The leaf blower. Over the phone. The leaf blower. I, I wouldn't even hear the guy. And and I was offering I would drive the hundred miles up there and murder your neighbor. You're up there for he's up there for a weekend of quiet and he's got a neighbor who's got a who's got an armada of gardening tools. <laughs> all, of them, all of them powered by like kerosene. It's just, he doesn't care. I would drive up there and strangle the guy just to give him some quiet, but he doesn't care. The Which leaf blower. Yeah, they- the leaf blower is a is a scourge on humanity. I mean, forget that not just the noise, but the air pollution. Yeah. And also what it does is it heats up the ground in the air. It kills microfauna and microflora. It's bad for people's breathing. It's bad for everything. Um, meanwhile, I, excuse me it. for one th- second about the leaf blower. Yeah. I met a former head of Greenpeace who's going crazy about the leaf blower. Yeah. And I said to him, 
let's go. Let's find out where the the owner, the, the Black and Decker guy is. Yeah. We'll rent some leaf blowers and we will stand outside his home. That's great. And, yeah. and all day just have leaf. And he goes to me, oh, that wouldn't be, that's not nice. And I go, well, this is why nothing gets, this is what I'm talking about. Listen to Remember me. Remember Greenpeace when they used to. Yeah. Right. yeah. And it was not called Green Quiet. <laughs> it should be called Greenpeace and Quiet. Yeah. Right. By the way, the leaf blower, just as a concept, it's it's absurd. There's a leaf. It's here. Why does why do you want the leaf over there? <laughs> leave the leave the leaf. The name is a leaf. Just leave it where it is. Leave it where it is and just leave it alone. That's my product. Leaf it alone. Take a nap. You don't need a leaf blower. Yeah, what is wrong with leaves? Yeah, just leave it. It's just it's it's brown, it's nice, it's crinkly, and then it turns into dirt. It's it's been for millennia. That's what it's been doing. You know what I'm gonna do if you have a neighbor? You get glue and just spray the glue on the leaves so they don't fall. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. I had I had a one of my most I had a, a an, an opera gig in in the winter of two thousand seven. An opera gig? Well, well I've never heard it called. Oh, I was yeah. Well, I was singing at the at the Hawaii Opera. They don't pay you well, but they fly you to Hawaii and they house you with one of the patrons of the opera. My patrons, very nice couple, and they lived in a nice area in Honolulu, and beautiful. I had a bedroom in their house. Their kids were grown and living in California. How wealthy were they? They you know moderately they, he was a lawyer he wasn't like a big shot whatever but um did you tell him that he that he's wrong i did not oh, i was okay. i was I, but every day that beautiful place every day a, a, a phalanx of 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 landscapers would descend on this neighborhood for several hours with their leaf blowers that was it this was like the most idyllic neighborhood you could imagine uh, on the planet every day for a few hours ruined by these leaf blowers. And, 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 they, and they say to you, uh, it, it's daytime. Why are you trying to sleep? Right. They pass also, judgment on me for for being depressed and sleeping 23 hours a day. It's my fault. It is your fault. Yeah, I think it's it's a pursuit of perfection and certainly to have a leaf sitting there on your beautifully manicured lawn, which is a stupid thing to have anyway. But but that leaf symbolizes a defect, and you are responsible for that defect. So you but want to get rid of it. When, when you were a child, they didn't have such things as manicured lawns. They had lawns. They had lawns. But then, you, do you know why lawns are, it was in the 50s. Because during World War II, the uh, the bomb makers were making a lot of money, and then suddenly people didn't need bombs, so they convinced middle class America that they needed fertilizer, and so they said, "Well, you have to and pesticides. Well, we'll weeds are bad. They." I, I, it's almost as some. It wasn't Bernays, but it was somebody like that who said, "Convince the American people that weeds are bad, and that grass is good. They'll buy pesticides, and uh, you'll continue to make money." It's it's a form of it, it's a, a control thing. It's like the business of America is business. Yeah. 
when I was a kid, we had one, we had that, uh, manual lawnmower, which would, you know, you would push it and that would make that blade spin. And it made that nice, very quiet. You would smell it. It was very nice. Just sharing a memory. I'll, t- I'll share a memory. Did I tell you about my mother, Dr. Hershenfeld? Lay down and tell me. My, my father bought a lawnmower. And he said, you're going to mow the lawn every Saturday. Oh. oh, yeah. And I said, no, I'm not. He said, if you don't mow the lawn, mommy will. I said, great. He says, that's not, he says, you're not ashamed that the neighbors will see your mother mowing the lawn? I said, I'll be more ashamed if I don't get to shoot baskets with Howie Greenberg and Jeff Tatarian. And Saturday morning, my father says, your mother's about to go out there, mow the lawn. And I said, give her something. For, you know, give her 50 cents. And uh, I went off and played basketball. And my father was furious because my mother ended up loving to mow the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> he came home. He was furious. <laughs> I said, so you're embarrassed. You're embarrassed because you won't mow the lawn and you're trying to pass this off to me. Have you no shame? That's, Mr. A, that, <laughs> that's a true. That's a true story that yeah. if I could make my father laugh, I could have been a serial killer. But if it was funny, they would have went. What's the angriest you ever made your father? That's easy. I remember <laughs> the exact moment. Um, I think I've told you about it. So my brother, was, my brother was putting up a stink. He wasn't going to sign his, uh, his draft card or whatever. When you turn 18, you have to sign a thing that says you're willing to, you know, fight for your country. Do you remember this, Dad? Vaguely, vaguely. Yeah. So, he was being like, you know. Uh, being 18. He was being a hero and saying, I'm not going to sign it. And finally, my father convinced him to sign it after a few weeks. And my brother brother was there with a pen poised over the document at the dining room table. And and I was there. I just walked by and I said, wow, you're really caving in there. <laughs> and, and, and my brother said, yeah, you're right. And he put and he put. He put the pen away, walked away. My father looked at me and said, I am fucking mad at you. <laughs> I, my father smacked me in the face once, and he was right. You see, I, I believe, I've never hit my kids, but uh, my father hit me in the, smacked me in the face, and he was right. I, uh, I graduated from Dwight Morrow High School. Really? And, yes. And where Bert Ross's wife went, I think we were in the same class. I'm, I'm, and uh, I had early acceptance to college. The last semester or two, I was barely in in high school, and I owed like fifty dollars in library fines, and so. Uh, my dad comes to the graduation and I don't get anything. I mean, I'm, I, I'm not mentioned. There are no awards. You know, I'm, and I get home and he says to me, so where's your degree? And I said, I didn't get one. 
And he goes, what do you mean you didn't get one? I said, uh, I owe 50 bucks and, uh, you know, I'm going to college. What do I need a high school degree for? And he went, boom, and said, you arrogant prick. And I went, I needed that. Thanks, Pop. (laughs) No, you didn't. uh, I don't know. I I don't believe in hitting, but that triggered something in my father that, was uh i don't know that was wrong yes it could have called you an arrogant prick i think that would have been totally sufficient and he would have made his point yeah i know but uh you know uh sometimes people nope all right you're right you're right (laughs) you're right i'm do I? Power, uh, okay. The power differential is too great, and you still remember it to this day, even though you sugarcoat it by saying I deserved it. Well, I was eighteen. If I and I was a strapping no yeshiva booker. I mean, a real strapping. <laughs> In fact, I had my straps. I was. Uh, <laughs> I had my prophylactories. I was wearing. I was. Uh, I could have taken my father by then. You're strapping eighty year old. My dad knew if I wanted to, mm-hmm. I could have taken him. All right. All right. Now uh, I'll deal with that trauma. Thank you, Doctor Hershenfeld. It's a pleasure. I love you guys. I really do. This is you model the best behavior. Uh, you you. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Very it's much. all about the model glue. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hey, so modeling, modeling is much better than preaching, by the way. <laughs> yes. That's why, that's why they pay him the big bucks. That's why. Okay. <laughs> Thank Fine. you. Thank Bye. you. You want to stick around, Ethan? Sure. I'll, okay. uh, I'll, hover, I'll, I'll uh, lurk in the corner. Okay. Joining us is... An American hero, Bert Ross, columnist for the Malibu Times. Hello, Bert. Uh, David, I think, you, I think your audience needs to know something. Yes. A few weeks ago, now understand that you are a progressive. You are to the left of Bernie Sanders and AL, ALC. Is that her name? A, uh, ALS. No, that's not her name, ALS. It's a, whatever. Yes. Cortez, Ms. Cortez, Congresswoman, Congressperson Cortez. AOC. To the left, AOC, okay. And not only was I fired from your show, summarily, without notice, and no severance pay. And it's only because your mother and your sister called you up and threatened not to have you for stating <laughs> For Seder this year. <laughs> you didn't put me back, but I want to tell everybody you've tripled my salary. <laughs> Anybody notice I was gone? I know, yes, nothing. people were asking. People are asking where you are and Dr. Jen. Yes. And Jackie. Jackie's backy and you're back. And we're trying to get Dr. Jen back. People get sick of me and have to take a break. So. Yes, I can understand. So what is your column this week? Well, the one, that just, the, the one that just appeared in the Malibu Times, and most of my humor is self-deprecating, and normally 
I take something and I exaggerate it. Unfortunately, what I'm about to read you has not been embellished or exaggerated. Okay. It's called utterly useless. Let's be frank with one another. We all know people who are useless. Actually, we also know people who are utterly useless. I unfortunately fall in the latter category. <laughs> I know what you're thinking, that I'm being unnecessarily harsh on myself. Okay, I'm willing to change utterly useless to absolutely useless. <laughs> a week or so ago, I drove my bride to a stone yard in Van Nuys where we met our interior designer and our stone contractor. <laughs> this sojourn, like many similar ones, is simply part of a marathon process called rebuilding your house. I have never seen so much stone in my life, all kinds and colors of granite, marble, and so forth. Whenever I am confronted with infinite choices, my eyes tend to glaze over and I daydream about being anywhere else. <laughs> After what seemed like eternity, the group located a piece of stone and for reasons I still do not comprehend, there was universal excitement, assuming that I was not part of the universe, <laughs> <laughs> which which at that point was true <laughs> somebody said i see movement in the stone and you might have thought they had come across a major gold find <laughs> the first thing i did was look around to see whether anything else was moving and whether uh i was not experiencing an earthquake <laughs> i looked at that piece of stone i looked closely i stared but for the life of me, I did not see that stone move one inch. I still have no idea what they were talking about. I so wanted to be a part of the team to contribute something to our morning activity. Suddenly, among the thousands of slabs, I spotted a beautiful stone. It contained a speck of pale blue. I excitedly shared my friend with Michael, our interior designer. He did not share my excitement. <laughs> You are looking at the back end of the stone. <laughs> oh, so for my contribution. Things went downhill from there. <laughs> we could reconnoitered at the Pacific Design Center, a complex design specifically to make your feet hurt by the end of the day. <laughs> we went to several stone, uh, showrooms, which unfortunately were becoming more familiar each month during this laborious process of furnishing a house. After what seemed like a chunk of the day had passed, we walked through a store which displayed some absolutely beautiful furniture. And then I saw exactly what I wanted, a wooden night table which would be perfect by the sight of my new bed. <laughs> I Michael over and shared my enthusiasm with him only to be told, Bert, you chose that exact table two months ago and we ordered it. <laughs> I was being consistent. <laughs> The day finally ended, and I drove my back my, my bride back to Malibu. I guess you could say I am not entirely useless. I did provide the chauffeur. That's, that's hysterical. That is a classic column. That is a that could be taught, and that's in the Malibu Times this week. Yes, but if you go to Malibu Times and under opinion, they have blogs where you type my name. There are, I think, now 400 columns, but who's counting? You've written 400 of these. I think so. It's, uh, I do it every week. And uh, Have you, thought, have, of, have you thought of putting out a book? 
Well, a lot of it is geared specifically to the local scene. So some of it would have no meaning. Most of it, you would, I think, audience elsewhere would appreciate. I think I would think people would be fascinated by Malibu. I want Ethan's uh, feedback on what I'm about to talk about. Ethan, Ethan come back. I'm here. Here I am. Hello, Bert. That was great. I just read that something, some outfit called Travago did a survey and concluded that because of the pandemic and the feeling of of people needing to to get out of their homes, that 36% of the people they surveyed would give up sex for a year in order to take a trip. Well, okay, that's, okay. The dice dice are loaded there because what are they going to do on on that trip? They're going to go have sex with someone else. (laughs) That's what that's all about. Well, first of all, I have a a feeling that Trafago has something to do with the travel business. That's right. Just a suspicion. Now, try to come up with the people who, because there are, there's a list of them. I've been thinking about this. This is what I spend my stupid time doing. What group of people would give up sex for a year in order to take a trip? People, I'll give you, I'll start it off. I think people on death row. No, you don't think people on death row have given a choice? I think people on death row are sick of sex by the time. People in solitary confinement? Nuns? People in the ICU? You're not helping at all. I thought you creative geniuses would help. No, I'm just trying to think uh, giving up sex. That's a privilege to give up sex. Usually sex gives up me. The idea of I, I would choose the, the, the need to dead to return. The the, the, yeah. the idea that you can decide ah, I'm tired of getting laid. That's a privilege. I I can't relate to that. You're tired of getting laid. No, you're what? saying giving up sex like I'm gonna choose travel over sex. I, I don't agree. I, to me, it's just, um, and this, I was going to write a column about this, but apparently not. I mean, <laughs> if, this is, if this is the feedback I'm getting from comedians, fuck that. Let me go on to a new Suppose she says, I'll go around the world with you. Oh, here we go. <laughs> this is a, a community station or whatever the hell we're on. All right. I, I read, not again, not making this up. That a woman, 21 years old, I forget her, Jasmine Harrison, was the, just happened, the youngest woman to row a boat across the Atlantic Ocean. She did it. You want to guess how long it took? Um, 93 days. Yes, I think it was 70 days. She went from, I think, Spain to uh, to Antigua. And this was just after giving up sex. <laughs> there was no little man on the boat with her. And that's, why I love, and that's why I love Ethan. The, what, what do we have to say about this one? First of all, if she's the youngest woman to do this, it means 
that other people have done this. And there's actually a challenge, if you can call it that. It's not that hard to do it. You, you get the trade winds, you get, I'm serious, and you find out what the, the currents are, you don't even have to row. <laughs> right, right, David. Well, well I, pardon me for knowing, I know a little something about navigation, that if you get the right currents, yes, right, that's it's a straight yeah. shot to Antigua. Wow. You know, she wrote. She's a fraud, is what I'm saying. It was a wonderful opportunity to get away from everything. Social media. You would think there'd be simpler ways of getting away from everything. Yeah, and also without getting blisters. That's that's a blistering nightmare. She, by the way, these are her words. She only capsized twice. Now. What do we know about this woman? <clears throat> the first thing we know is she's not a member of our tribe. <laughs> Imagine she has no Jewish mother. Imagine if you're sitting at the breakfast table and your daughter comes to you and says, you know, I really want to get away from everything. I think I'm going to row across the Atlantic. I predict that before dinner time that night, she would be in Dr. Hirschenfeld's office lying down and talking. I agree with that. Also, if you if you ever out on a lake in the Catskills, um, in one of those resorts, the, the boats always had pedals. There was no rowing. Like, who's the youngest woman to pedal boat across? The- <laughs> like paddle. Boat. Yeah. Let me ask Ethan a question, if you don't mind. I don't, why would I mind? What do you prefer, rivers or ocean? Ocean. See, so you're wrong. Bert? <laughs> By the way, that's the amazing thing about David. <laughs> Anytime he doesn't share your opinion. Well, that's a stupid... I, I love Ethan. Who doesn't love Ethan? But how can he say ocean over rivers? It reminds me of my father, because and whom I love dearly, and who did not hit me at graduation or any other time. But he like a certain flavor of ice cream. And he could not comprehend, he could not begin to comprehend why Howard Johnson's pistachio, right? I think it was vanilla. But it it didn't matter. It was like, that was the only, why they would bother having 27 other varieties. He could not begin to comprehend. Yeah. All right, let's I'm get gonna, back to... I want to get back to Leafs. No, no, hang on for one second. A river is fresh and calm. Okay. It okay. makes a consistent babbling sound. Mm-hmm. That's a brook. <laughs> and, and you can find peace and quiet along a river. Here's, here's something. I was thinking about this actually today when I was getting into the bay here, with the bay, which is not quite the ocean. But I was thinking about how we really have one word for this body of water, but it's many different things. When you, you go down there on any given day, it might be calm like glass. It might be totally turbulent. There might be birds in it. There might be, you don't know what, there might be a Labrador retriever swimming up behind you that happened to me. We just use one word for it. So like the word river, it could be many, many different but things. But a river, we know what a river is. A ri- and they're consistent. There's, you, do, we, do we, because like the Hudson, 
not a river. It depends. Tidal, it depends where along the river you are. Tidal estuary, the East River, tidal estuary. So it flows both ways. It, it's is that true? Yeah, yeah. The East River, it's salty. It can flow up and flow back depending on the tide. I didn't know that. Yeah. See, so do you still like rivers after learning that? Well, I, that to me, that's then it's not a, a river. It's an estuary. You're right. You're right. If you go Good. to the beginning of the Hudson River, if you go up into the Adirondacks, right? It's really narrow. Yeah, it's all, it's, it's like a, a wide brook. Yeah. Did you ever see the River Jordan up close? You know, they sing all those songs like "Crossing Over the River Jordan," and then you're there, and it's like, it's like, uh, you know, what feeds the River Jordan? Uh, the uh, Yam Kinneret, isn't it? The uh, the Sea of Galilee. Hmm. I think. I think we've now covered all the water in Israel. <laughs> and now I have to pee. <laughs> Thanks. I went to, that reminds me, I went to my 55th high school reunion a few years ago. And a friend of mine actually asked in front of, you know, 40 people or whatever. He says, how many times do each of you get up during the morning to pee? And that's when I said, I think I've gone to enough reunions. Yes, that's it. Well, what's yeah. the answer? I walked off. I said, this is, this is, I mean. Yeah, can I, can I tell you I, something? You, you were describing, go ahead, Ethan, go ahead. No, I do that a lot. I get up a lot, but not, not, not just to pee. I just like the exercise in the middle of the night. I like to take a little stroll a few times. So, okay, go ahead. So James. I was listening to Bert talk about buying stone for his home and making his wife happy i have never lived that kind of life and i wish i could and i, no, and no. I believe me right now do not wish that anybody <laughs> listening to this show if you ever have the urge to build a house suppress the urge i agree with you i i even when i was doing really well when my kids were young i i thought any time spent with things is going to take me away from what I want most is to, you know, be with my kids. Anything that you own is taking you away from other people. You buy things to get away from other people. I, I have other things to do, like um, read. No, take a nap. Take What's a nap. It? It's a good preparation for the end, you know? Right. But he, I, I will confess, I'm going to confess one new delight in my life that I shouldn't, but I'm going to. I live in an air shaft, no sunlight, no vitamin D. My only friend is Morris, the, the rat who checks, or they say it's a mouse, but I think it's a rat. And uh, I have, you know, very simple life. Now, the water in the toilet has some kind of iron in it. So after three days, water from the toilet? Huh? Did you know that? What? Are you drinking from the toilet? Did you know? No, you look down, oh. <clears throat> and and after three days, there's a layer of of iron on the mm. toilet, and uh, you know, I go, well, what does it matter? I'm just by myself here, to you know. And, uh, and I picked up some uh, liquid Clorox. 
My mother told me to do this. And you just pour a little Clorox into the turlet <laughs> and the iron disappears. Like it, it, it just disappears. And it's making me really happy. Like, so I feel like, whoa. So when I go to pee and I look down and it's a white bowl. And I, think this I, I just told you a story about how I walked away from my reunion. <laughs> But the classmate was asking how many times we all urinate during the night. I was shit. And the host of this podcast responds by telling us that there's iron in the toilet and his mother told him if he put some Clorox and now when he pees into the bowl, he doesn't see the rat. (laughs) No, I mean, I'm seeing a white bowl every time I pee now. And and I'm thinking, what? I'm so happy for you. And And I noticed that Maybe I do like nice things. Maybe maybe I could be convinced to take you up on that offer, Bert, to move in with you when the house is finished in Malibu and, and look around and go, you know what we need right now? This room needs a flat screen TV, Bert. Yes. And a massage chair. Why don't you let me move in with you? I could be the the younger brother you never had. Let me count the ways. What? As Shakespeare said, let me count the ways. Don't you think I'd be a good house guest, Bert? Ethan, what is the strongest word <laughs> to, this, to articulate the negative? Um, I went, I went, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. I can't, I can't get involved here. I feel like how, do, how does he know? How would you know if you're living well unless I'm there keeping score? I feel like you should have him there as like a as a coach, apprentice, a housing apprentice. Or a coach. <laughs> Ethan, Ethan, who asked you? <laughs> I, I, this, is, this is true. God's honest truth. I go to this design center. We're picking toilets and you go to these. They're like 400 of them. I mean, so I'm Do you test that. drive them. I don't know what you do. You just sit down. Is it comfortable? Who the hell knows? I finally say to the lady, I think I like this one. She says, Mr. Ross, that's not a toilet, that's a bidet. <laughs> Classic. Classic. That's, you know, they have, I have a friend, close friend, he has a toilet that is like, I don't know, $5,000. Yes. And it's made in Japan. Yes. And it, it uh, I would not get anywhere near it. I had the distinct feeling that if I pushed the wrong button, Right. I would be attached to this rocket ship. I would be circling the earth attached to a toilet. I mean, it's the, who needs this crap? Yeah, people That's people rave about fun. that thing. I have what? friends who have that thing. I, I would never do it either, but I, I, I know people who rave about that toilet. I'm waiting for if Elon Musk comes out with a toilet. That's when I will. It, make- it, it comes with uh, feces already in it. <laughs> you don't even have to go. I have to go back. I, I, I'm, I'm late at the, to the to the party, but I have a memory. We were talking about leaves, getting rid of leaves and all. I was in Assateague, Virginia, and there was a trailer, and there was a, a side yard, almost no lawn. I would say maybe eight foot wide, and there was a guy on a tractor on a tractor mower driving around this little, I think the tractor cost probably 20% of the trailer doing this tiny strip of, of lawn. 
Yeah. I, I, I brought you to silence again. Another no, no, no. I know, I've seen that. That's just boys with toys. That's like my dad's neighbor upstate. He just, he'd spend all his day riding on those toys. Uh, boys with toys, I believe, is Lindsey Graham's favorite porn film. Go ahead. For a, for a store. What's that? Boys with toys. There I don't you. know who would sell there, but it's, it's a good name. Okay. You remember, I don't know if you're old enough, but when I was a kid, uh, I guess it was they stopped it because it was terrible for the environment, but we burned leaves. You, you got all the leaves, put them in the street by the curb, and the smell of burnt leaves was fabulous. Hmm. They stopped it because it was... Uh, do you remember... Do you, do you remember, Bert, uh, in New Jersey, they, they would rake the leaves and put them out on the street for the, the garbage yeah. people yeah. to pick up. And you would drive, when you're learning to drive, you would drive through the leaves because there might be kids playing in the... <laughs> do you remember you were, when I was, you weren't allowed to drive through the leaves because there might be a kid who's, you know, playing in there. And I used to think, what idiot kid, what, like, what are you, what are you, mole people living in, in leaves? I can't drive through never the leaves. Dumped in, in a pile of leaves? Not on the side of the road. No, that's not. I cannot believe that your mother. Yes. She says hello and she has a crush well, on you. Well, you tell your mother that if the men in your family forced her to mow the lawn, that is a shanda. I didn't even think Jews were allowed to rake leaves. They, I, they've been known. I, I thought that was a Gentile activity. <laughs> uh, just, what, are you, what are you reading? Let me guess, I, Obama's autobiography. I bet you... I, bet, I, I finished that, and I'm reading a book. You read Obama's? Yes. Okay. The thing that's very confusing is I read on Kindle. Yeah, that I was at the seventy-five percent mark, and then the book ended. Mm -hmm. So I kept, I spent about an hour looking for the other twenty-five. That, that's uh, that's Obama. That's you're lucky you got seventy-five percent out of him. Usually, he just gives you twenty percent and says, "I tried." A, I'm reading a book called, and it's, and I'm about halfway. It's something like uh, "Keep the Dead Close," and it, Ethan, I need you here because it's interesting about our alma mater, Ethan. It went out. Okay. Um, a book called something like Keep the Dead Close, and it's about a girl, a woman, around 21, who in 1969, uh, she was a, an a, a, a student of anthropology, I think a graduate student, and she was killed. And they never, I haven't gotten to the point, they may have found the murderer. Huh. But they were suspecting that it was a Harvard professor and that Harvard had kind of put the kibosh on the whole thing. Uh, Covered and, it up. And the woman who looked into it, uh, also a graduate of Harvard, I think, looked into this. Almost it was a, an obsession on her part. She didn't know the person who had been murdered. And she um, looked into it about 20 years after the fact. And I think she may have discovered. I, that's why I keep reading. Wow. Uh, I, I, you know what I, I like about you, Bert? You're, you know that um, you're my hero. Uh, you're brave. You're a brave man. And uh, nothing frightens you. And the fact that you would come on this show and not be ashamed 
to say you went to Harvard. I I salute you for that. I think that's I, I think 100%. that that takes courage and that's accepting who you are as a human being. You're owning that some would call it a character flaw, but I don't think it's a character flaw. I'm gonna I'm gonna email you something that Joan gave to me about half an hour ago. An article about a young girl who just got into Harvard <sighs> uh, and totally um he, her father, I think, was here illegally, and she was able to save him from being deported. And I haven't read the whole thing, but well, one of the things that... Uh, That's fantastic. And now she can join the oppressive really, class. One of the things that uh, David said, which was... Nobody's about, in this country illegally. They're undocumented. Undocumented. Remember Merrick Garland? Did you see Merrick Garland testifying? Yes, and I very moving. Very moving about how this country yeah. saved his grandparents yeah. Yeah. and he wants to pay some payback. Yeah. And uh, there are no, I, I, I don't even know if my grandparents were quote unquote legal. Well, most of the people, nobody's from- trying to come to this country. Don't flatter yourself, America. The numbers of something like 70,000 people are trying to come up through the border. That's a, on a good year. Nobody's trying to get here. That's interesting. Anyway, one of the things, Ethan, if you recall a few weeks ago before I was fired summarily without suffering. You were. Uh, let me finish, for God's sakes. This is a comedy show. People can understand uh, that I'm joking. If they can't, get another audience. Anyway. <laughs> Believe me, you th- I've been trying. He, he said, David said, that uh, people who go to Harvard, they can't wait to tell you they went to Harvard. And I told David a story. And the story is that when I was going to college, I went down with a group of football players and they were all going to play rugby. And it was college week in Bermuda and there were many, many thousands of college students, all of whom were wearing sweatshirts and hats with their college insignia. Not a single one of the group that I was with, and we were probably 15 or 20, had anything that had Harvard on it. And I saw several people on the beach who were wearing either a Harvard hat or a Harvard sweatshirt. And I stopped them and said, hey, where did, you know, what dorm are you in or whatever? Not one of them had gone to Harvard. So that is entered as evidence to contradict what you said. But I'm also tired of telling people when they say, uh, you know, where did you go to college? And I said, uh, you know, in New England. And they'd say, where? In the Boston area. And after about four questions, you said Harvard. And it's like it's like the same thing with Malibu. You know, you, you tell people, where do you live? I live in Southern California. Where? In the L.A. area. Where? It's like you're embarrassed about it. It's, it's, yeah. You know, I'm showing a book. picture of uh, you with Martin Luther King. Amazing. He got uh, got his uh, Ph.D. from Boston University. Absolutely. Across the river at Boston University. Uh, Who turned out better? You or uh, Martin Luther King? He didn't go to Harvard. Well, why don't we why don't we word it differently? Who lived longer? Oh, my God. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) It's a fucking comedy show. Michael. David, Look at that man. Look at you and Martin Luther King. David, one of the things that gives me the absolute payback. What, what a great pick. How lucky are you that you have this picture with Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King? 
it, it is one of the possessions. There are very few possessions that are very meaningful. I mean, you spend a lot of time accumulating crap, but that obviously has great meaning. Um, and of course, I forgot. Oh, so when I when I see two comedians laugh at something I do, we, we laugh at. I was on a show. I was on a podcast with David, and there was a writer who had done some writing, I think, briefly for uh, a Seinfeld. And there were four comedians who had just done a set, and they were with David. And I remember how we ended it because you know we came to the time limit, and I said, you know, we had talked a bit about the bribe, and I said, you know. David, I've been, I need to interrupt the humor for one second. And I just, after this conversation, I just, I'm reflecting upon my past. And I just want you to know that if I had it all over to do again, I would have taken the money. <laughs> and to me, now do you find, okay, you guys, both professional comedians, do you find that getting other comedians, your peers to laugh is more enjoyable than your audience or not? No. No. And they will only laugh. Yeah. Yeah. They only laugh at self-destructive material. Stuff that won't make... I, I have found that if you play to the back of the room, uh, you're in trouble. Yeah. My favorite is to make... Uh, it's nice to make a stranger, a stranger laugh, a civilian a civilian. Yes. Yeah, so you don't find like when you're in the presence of other comedians that there's there's just something nice about that. Yeah, that's nice. That's a nice compliment. Sure, I think. But uh, um, all right, we're gonna wrap it up, yeah. Bert. I love you. Thank you so much for Ethan. Thanks for hanging out. Thank thanks, you, Bert. Ethan. Thank you. you, Bert. Hi, Rev. We're gonna doing? talk. To, we're gonna talk to the Reverend right now. But first, I want to show you. Some work by uh, John Hayes here. This is, uh, I spelled his name properly. Let me start it again. John is a friend of the show's, and these are some of his memes and photographs. And I had shown them, I think, on Monday's show, but I misspelled his name. These are some of his photographs and memes. And while I'm showing these, let me remind you who are listening at home and not watching this in Zoom or on YouTube. This is a pledge episode. Please go to, that's funny, Jeff Bozos. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and uh, hit the donate button. We accept all major credit cards. We also have a Patreon account and no corporate funding here, no commercials. Thank you for listening. Let's go to Rodrigo. Did it end? Is it still? Yeah, it's still going. Uh, Rodrigo. Hi, David. Thank you for bringing uh, Kale on the show. I appreciate it. You weren't there, though. I was watching on YouTube. Ah, okay. (laughs) What's on your mind, sir? I had a question for Dr. Herzenfeld, if he's still here. Well, Ethan can answer it. Okay. Yeah, I'm a, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not licensed. I'm not re- uh, registered. I'm not board accredited. I uh, was pre-med in the eighties, but I'm totally willing to answer. Shoot. I don't understand how so many millions of people are happy to believe that the 
ex-president's wife is running a baby-eating child trafficking ring out of the basement of a building with no basement, but they are incapable of believing that Fox News literally pays people to lie about the news every day, all day. That was my question. Um, well, that's a big question, but um, let me just start with uh, the obvious, which is that the idea of cooking babies in a basement is just, it's absurd. Everyone knows you got to do that above ground. With the ventil, it's, it's, it costs a lot of money for the ventilation. Yeah, and the humidity underground. Right. It's, it's too humid and it's, you, can't, you can't cook a... No, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this to the theologian and the, uh, the guy who knows jurisprudence. I think the reverend is better qualified. You also need some kind of dietary supplement if you're eating babies because they, they have about three of the nine necessary amino acids necessary to i mean it's it's worse um, than you know they always say and, and b12 uh babies have no b12 in it so right niacin and niacin so yeah not a good uh, idea to eat babies and no. you don't even know if you're getting a baby sometimes they pass off a baby and it's a toddler that's right it's like that olive oil they say on the bottles from italy but where right. is it really right yeah. it's a scam so <laughs> just be if you're going to eat a baby if, you, if Hillary's watching or Huma, you know, it's like Subway is not really serving tuna. Did you read about this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I heard that. Be eating a baby. That's like the that's like the veal of cannibals. Mm hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Rodrigo. We have to talk to our reverend. now. <laughs> um, Joining us in. Uh, in Washington, D.C., I believe. Yes. Uh, is is uh, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, besides being a uh, an attorney, he's also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. And for nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for Separation of Church. And I hope I'm pronouncing this properly. State? State. State. Yes, it is. Church and state. <laughs> Yeah, you, you know, you're going to have both halves right. The churchy <laughs> part, the governmental part right. You work on this another couple of weeks, I think it'll be perfect. By the way, of all the people listening, I bet I'm the only person who actually has eaten at Comet Pizza. And the pizza, in my opinion, is so terrible there, I'd be looking for something in the basement. <laughs> It's, really good. <laughs> uh, uh, it's ping pong comet pizza, right? Yeah, there's ping pong. There's a ping pong table outside, and in good weather, you can play ping pong. So, you, uh, am I missing something? I, how do people believe these things with QAnon? How is it possible that? Well. QAnon, you know, the other night, um, Tucker Carlson said he had researched the question of the existence of QAnon, and they found no evidence that it even exists. None. I, he can still find the Antifa 
but he can't find QAnon. Right. But we have an enormous ability as humans to believe nonsense, to just delude ourselves. And that's one of the things I think that makes me less than completely optimistic about the future of the political system in the United States. We have a we have a political crisis in this country. We really do. And it gets bigger every day. Right. And there aren't two sides to some issues. There's uh, there's one side and then a party that pretends to represent another side. But it doesn't. I mean, there are universal. I was reading somebody last night talking about there are universal values in this country. We all believe that everybody should vote. We all believe that African-Americans should not be denied the right to vote. Only a fringe element believes that people should have AR-15s. But they've manufactured a, a political party that somehow has convinced the media and voters that there's another side to th these issues. There aren't. No, there aren't. But uh, as we said a couple weeks ago, the other side is remarkably good at making simple statements that sound like everybody should be in favor of it, like the death tax. You know, there is no death tax for 95 or 99% of the people in this country. But when you say it, people go, I mean, I remember my mother-in-law was obsessed about, she didn't have much money, but she had enough money to worry about the fact that there was a death tax. And that's why she fell in league with Senator Rick Santorum and other people where she lived in Pennsylvania who were not just Republicans, but were not Republicans. Thank you, Frank Luntz. Frank Luntz yeah, gave Frank us Luntz. the, the no, death Frank tax. still... He still does these focus groups. People still take him seriously. And um, he, like a lot of other consultants and a lot of other people in Washington, uh, make out like bandits. You know, Frank had a stroke. And, I didn't know that. Huh? Yeah, he had I a stroke. Yeah. And uh, he told me that he somehow let some of his health insurance lapse. And uh, so he got stuck with a horrible bill. And uh, and I said to him, what about personal responsibility? Why'd you let your insurance lapse? And uh, that wasn't fair for me to ask him that. It's interesting how it when true. it went. Huh? Is this all true? Yeah. Yeah. When did this happen? Uh, I spoke to him uh, about six months ago. Huh. And uh, he was shocked by... Uh, now, he's a multimillionaire. Sure. Uh, but he was shocked by what it costs when uh, yep. your, when your health insurance yep. lapses and and he was complaining about it. I said, why don't you have the personal responsibility to uh, not let that happen? Hmm. Can't, and, and when you spit it back, I, I remember... Uh, one of these guys, I'm not going to mention his name. I remember uh, there was a, a right wing guy I knew 
and he was beating the war drum for uh, in 2003 to go into Iraq. And he went on Chris Matthews. This is about like a month before we go in. Yeah. And Chris Matthews says to him, body bags. And this guy goes, what? <laughs> he says, body bags. How many body bags should the Pentagon order? And this guy was so incensed at, at Chris Matthews because, like, why would you ask me that? That's not fair. Mm. He, 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 he felt hurt by that question. Yeah. They, they really, uh, I, I, don't, I think you have to attack these people personally like that. I, I think they, they, they are, there's, there's something missing. There's something, you know, you see Ted Cruz, mm. Greg Abbott. Yeah. Uh, these people, the, the uh, lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick of Texas. Yeah. Who, who says maybe some of us older people should die from COVID. So yeah. some herd immunity kicks in. Uh, these people, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I mean, they are contemptible. And, um, you know, they, they always call people like us snowflakes because we uh, are too sensitive about certain things. But when you go and say anything about them or their family, with the exception of Ted Cruz, of course, who you can say anything about his family. and right. But no, care. he got a little snowflakey about Heidi being pissed off at the neighbors for... Yeah, that was yeah, recent. He, <laughs> It, but these people, you just, you just have to be honest about it. You have to be honest with it. You have to say to them, what you just said is nonsense. What you just said is wrong because, and then you, you correct it. Now, this, this character, Ben Shapiro, I used to get him mixed up all the time with Ben Ferguson, who was the youngest right-wing talk show host in America for a long time. And because they had the first same first name and i'm old I, I kept getting confused but ben shapiro is going to have a new segment on whatever show he does wherever it is where he will take one liberal idea and completely destroy it in 15 minutes a different one every day yeah. now that's that's good if you can do it hey uh just was handed this. Joe Biden carried out an airstrike in Syria targeting Iranian-backed militia structures. We're uh, bombing Syria. No, uh, no $15 minimum wage. Nope. No Medicare for all. Nope. But money to bomb Syria. Yep. That's what the man said. And that's what he's... That's what he did uh, just yeah. hours ago. He's bombing Syria. Yeah. Because. Oh. Uh, <laughs> no, nobody ever said he had a pacific foreign policy. Least of all you. I mean, this, yeah. this doesn't surprise you. Why does he get out of the way and just start bombing us? <laughs> it would be cheaper. 
would say it would be better for the planet that our, our B-52s or wouldn't have to fly all the way across the Atlantic. Just start bombing us. Sure. It's better for the planet. Well, he doesn't want to bomb places like Alabama or um, be, because he wants to be he wants to be fair. He wants to he's trying to talk across the divide of Democrat and Republican. So he doesn't want to go bomb just southern states. So he'd have to bomb. Remember the book Failsafe. Yeah. Failsafe, the premise of Failsafe was that there was an attack um, on, I guess, the Soviets attacked. Oh, man. No, I, I remember, I'll tell you what it was. Yeah, the trade-off. Of- it was mutual sure destruction. Yeah. So if the, if we bomb the Soviet Union, they bomb us. And right. the, uh, the, the we accidentally, there was a computer malfunction, which gave the order to send our flyers into Soviet airspace. Mm-hmm. And they reach a fail-safe point where no matter what you say, there's no turning back because... The, the flyers have been trained to believe that anything they hear will be the Russians jamming the signal, trying to convince them not to drop the bomb. And the trade-off is uh, because our our boys bomb Moscow, they have to bomb. We let them bomb New York City. No, Atlantic City. Oh, that's right. That's I, but I don't remember. No, no, no. Seriously, New York City, not Atlantic. No, I think it was Atlantic City. Well, the movie was New York City, and to me, it had well, a happy no, ending. Going, who would possibly go to a movie where you bomb Atlantic City? Oh, okay, so you're putting me on. No, I'm not. I, I believe in the book. Oh, in the movie, it's New York City. Okay. So to me, it had a happy ending, because if a nuclear bomb went off <laughs> on New York City and destroyed Wall Street... There would be jobs and a middle class in America. So I enjoy failsafe. Yeah. What if? What if they had bombed New York City? What if? Well, the values of New York City, Reverend. Tell me. You visit. We we we've walked around New York City. Yeah, we even had uh, dinner once yes. in New York City. Yeah. It, it is purely transactional here. Everybody looks at everybody else and says, what can I, what do I have to give this person in exchange for what they have to give me? There's, there's no decency here. It's, it gave us Donald Trump. And uh, there's really, I'm hoping that this city uh, gets emptied out and the, the inhabitants are forced to live elsewhere out of the state there there are no good people in new york city no good people no good people if if you're thriving in new york city then then you're a bad person if you're struggling in new york then you're okay but if you're right now if you're doing okay you're you're part of the problem no there are no jobs that pay a livable wage in new york city that are moral You're either a lawyer, a plastic surgeon, you're in advertising, or you work in finance. 
you're a bad person and you should be judged by how you make your money in this country. I think people have to ask themselves when you look at somebody, how do they make their money? What do you do for a living? Sure. That's how Hollywood was built. Hollywood was built because the the Jews who invented it knew that there were thousands of rich people who didn't want to tell people what they do for a living. Mm. So you get money from them. And instead of saying, I'm a mortician, you get to say, I'm a producer. I produce movies. And that's important. If you have a lot of money. Sure. You don't want to go to a party and say you're a mortician. You want to say you produced a movie. That's that is how movies are financed by people who are trying to change their identity and they launder money for the drug cartels. That's how movies are made. They're money laundering operations. Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. He, he had a return. Leonardo DiCaprio had a, had a return. All those paintings that he was given from the Wolf of Wall Street movie because uh, it was a money laundering operation. What's on your mind, Reverend? Movies, actually. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, so we saw I, what I think is literally, I, I can't imagine any movie. First of all, I'm, I'm not sure that I care what the Oscars do, but the, the movie that's winning all the awards or should is Nomadland, based on the book, uh, written over a two-year period. The book has Francis... Uh, Frances McDormand in it, and I could watch her literally read a telephone book. And what's a telephone book? Telephone books, they, they're. Um, I'll tell you what they are. They're the same things. They raise an interesting question: Why is it that all of the symbols on computers <clears throat> this day? are things that are not recognizable and are not even sold anymore, like <laughs> floppy drives. Who the hell is the floppy drive? Mm-hmm. Or how about a, a, a phone that you would put up to your ear? Nobody has a phone. Right. Nomadland, of course, is based on the premise that there is a large there are a large number of people who during the great recession literally found it impossible to live they couldn't pay rent they couldn't pay their mortgage and so they decide to go on the road and they decide to get a camper and or a truck and travel the roads of america and uh, francis mcdormand plays the main character all of the people who play the nomads, the people who go from one public park to another, almost all of them are actually the people written about in the original nonfiction book. They've captured them. They are perfect. They, there is not one miscast. There's one little thing I didn't like about it, but there's nobody that's no good in the movie. They're only two or three actual people who are Hollywood stars and the rest are the ordinary nomads. And it's just a marvelous, marvelous film. And I strongly urge everybody to see it. Okay. And it is available on H. Uh, no, I had a Grinch. I had a Grinch, some new stream Hulu. 
I, I was able to don't tell anybody, but I had it before. And then, but I signed on like I was brand new. So I got 30 days free just to see that movie. Right. So Hulu yeah. is the lesser of three evils, I would assume. What's well, uh, Amazon Prime is evil. Apple yeah. is evil. Google. Netflix. Netflix. That evil? Uh, I'm sure it is. <laughs> How about Shudder? That's all horror movies. 200 horror movies, most of whom, most of which have, have never been shown in any theaters in the United States. They're really obscure or they come from other countries. And it's very interesting if you're a horror movie fan like I am to look at Indonesian horror, Korean horror, not just the one or two that everybody's heard of, but these are wonderful. And Shutter costs, uh, I think it's $10 a month. Do you, do you subscribe to Shutter? Yeah, absolutely. So that's interesting as a as a reverend watching horror films. Yep. Do do they scare you? No. Do they I amuse you cuz they are funny horror films, good ones. Some are funny. I just I like the idea that people are trying to think of creative ways to disturb people. I have only been disturbed by one movie ever, and I saw it right before the pandemic started, and it's called The Lodge, and it's about uh, people who end up in a lodge, and there's a family breakup, and it's literally, the, it's so creepy, it's so disturbing. I went out of the theater, Joanne was coming to pick me up, she had been at something else, and uh, I was shaking, literally shaking. Really? Yes. The Lodge. It's I wouldn't I would not recommend it unless you want to be really creeped out. I, in fact, I would not have seen it if I had known what it would what effect it would have on me. I wouldn't have seen it. One of the things I've noticed, I, I have been dragged to horror films and mm -hmm. and I really enjoy them. I, I think they're funny. And I've mentioned this before that I've noticed the way a lot of horror films work is they make the victims detestable where you're kind of okay to see them go. Yeah. Is, is that a trope? Is very that how common. they, Oh, that's very common. Very common theme is that the people who are being killed are people you really don't care about to begin with. And it becomes what I've noticed what the few horror films that I've uh, seen, how they define unlikable is kind of interesting. There's a nuance to it. And what makes you know, like the the clingy boyfriend or the clingy girlfriend who's needy uh, when he or she is uh, dispatched, there's a. A bit a whiff of joy watching that happen i guess that's obviously that's by design the yeah. exorcist was the scariest movie i've ever seen in my life really yeah no 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 i mean i saw that i stop me if i've told this but i saw that under very unusual circumstances i, I used to teach 
religion in a uh, Catholic girls' school in South Boston. And uh, I taught a class just on kind of uh, the occult. This is a very big thing. The exorcist was coming out. And I had psychics come in and I had people. And so one day I, I noticed that the exorcist was opening. They had a morning shows. And I had a, this class, I had 112 students in it. And I said, look, this is an R-rated movie, The Exorcist. But if you get your parents' permission, this is a certain day, we'll go, I'll collect your permission slips, and we'll all go to see The Exorcist. Well... Did you know what you were in for? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, William Peter Blattier wrote The Exorcist. I, I, I talked to him once. He lived in Washington, died not too long ago. But um, I wanted to see this movie. I thought this would be interesting to watch 112 seniors in high school, see how they would react. <laughs> it snowed the day that we were supposed to go. And uh, I thought maybe, maybe a few people will show up anyway. The school was canceled. Everybody showed up, all 112, and 105 of them at least had boyfriends. So now I had 200 plus people. Wow. From the time the movie started until it was over and the credits were rolling, no one ever stopped screaming. Mm -hmm. It was screaming for two hours. Me, I'm sitting there going, why did I do this? And I want screaming. But the woman who played, um, you know, Linda Blair was very young when she was in that movie. And uh, she was so young that she couldn't do certain of the scenes. They, the uh, motion picture people wouldn't allow it. The, the so scene with the cross. Including the crucifix scene in the private area. Yeah. And, but they did have a, a stunt double. And I've actually met her twice. She's a marvelous woman. She's very short. So she looked just like Linda Blair. And she, she's written a book. I guess that's the only movie she was ever in. But um, I guess it would be hard to get recognized unless she's at the gynecologist. <laughs> hey, were you in the? <laughs> Possibly, but I get. But she she is such a she's just a fun person to talk to. But no, but it didn't scare me. And then they, you know they cut it again and they released it about. 10 years after it was originally released. And my son and I saw the, the new cut of it, which has this very creepy thing, not that it scared me, but it was a creepier of um, Linda, the Linda Blair characters walking like a spider down the stairs, you know, like that. Yeah. Now they made two other exorcists and they, they were literally almost unwatchable. With Richard Burton. I remember the 25th anniversary of The Exorcist. So that must have been, what, 1999? Something like that. Probably. My friend Dave yeah. Foley and I went to see The Exorcist. It was playing at some big theater at UCLA and was a new release. <laughs> and uh, I said, this is going to be interesting because I remember I was a kid when it came out. It scared the hell out of me. It's going to be interesting to see how these kids react to it. It was 1999. I had not seen it since it came out. Sure. And when it started, when the coming attraction started, 
there was an energy in the theater was packed. It was mm-hmm. all UCLA kids, and they thought it was going to be campy. They thought it was going to be <laughs> like the way I remember my father showed me King Kong. Right. And he said, I know it's hard to believe, but this terrified people. And I just didn't. I, I said, how could this scare anybody? And they were kind of these kids had this idea that I can't believe my parents. Yeah. Said it's <laughs> this, 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 we're scared by this. And I said, this is going to be interesting because and they were laughing. You could tell they were laughing at the coming attractions and smoking dope. And. It was as scary as when I first saw it 25 years earlier. And these kids freaked out. There were boys and girls walking out of the theater 20 minutes in. It was one of the greatest shows. Just watching these kids having freaking out on whatever mushrooms or yeah. marijuana uh, and I realized wow I have a feeling these kids were raised in really religious families this has to be upsetting to you if you're raised in a in a God-fearing home right I think yeah I think it would be disconcerting but I don't think I don't think that's the principal thing that's going on. I mean, I think people really do get scared with these things. One the the thing I, I mean, like is any have our, you ever witnessed is there any truth not that the devil is possessing you but if you're schizophrenic, if you have some kind of uh, part of yes. your brain that yep. takes over, can't that Sure it could. Sure it could. But um, the the thing I like about horror movies is when they take a, a kind of non-traditional view of something, there are very few new stories that are horror movies, very few. But you find one like a movie called The Descent, which is a story about four women spelunkers cave explorers who find these incredibly weird creatures in this cave that they're exploring. And it's, um, again, it's very hard to scare me, but I mean, it's, it was creepy, very creepy. The descent there, I think there's a descent too, but the first one was the one that is, uh, and I've been informed that on Hulu right now is the movie, the lodge. Okay. So, well, there you go. There's the, there you go. Here's it. The parliamentarian of the Senate has ruled that attaching the fifteen dollar an hour increase to the minimum wage would violate the strict budgetary rules of reconciliation. So, they cannot uh, get us the fifteen dollar minimum wage here in America. Thanks to a parliamentarian. Well, it, it, in a sense, it's it's not her fault. What the, the fault is that you have to go through this process because we have the filibuster, because we have this obviously its sole purpose is 
it's racist. There is no other way to describe what the filibuster does. It stops everything from happening. And now we have the possibility, for example, even on some pieces of legislation that might actually have enough uh, Democrats to support it, it's never going to get discussed. It's never going to get voted on. Where is his bully pulpit? Where where is the hill that this president is willing not to die on? But where is his stand? Where is he? You know, you know, no, but he, David, he has no way to stand on any of these things. He wants to give statehood to the District of Columbia. He wants to pass the Equality Act that just passed the House with every Democrat, but only three Republicans. To go back to what we were talking about last week, when Nancy Pelosi said, we really need a strong Republican Party. No, we don't need any Republican Party because Republicans are, by definition, in this time in our history, completely useless, completely useless. But, you know, the $15, the $15 minimum wage, $15 an hour, which kicks in in three years, is, is it, itself a disgrace. If you look at the numbers, it should be $23 right now right now he's worse than obama there was a time when presidents gave addresses from the oval office and said this is who we are as a people this is what we believe this is why we're going to war or this is why you need to turn your thermostat down Mm -hmm. this guy is not using the he's using the bully pulpit to be the 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 griever in in chief to to light candles for the half a million people who died from from covid uh i'd like to think right now the president of the united states has better things to do than bomb syria Mm. and uh, uh, grieve for the half a million people who died from covid he, I think he's got better things to do to use what what's left of his political capital to get on television and say, folks, this is this is how this half of you can't come up with six hundred dollars for an emergency. You can't live on fifteen dollars an hour. If you work, you shouldn't be poor. I'm calling on my party, Joe Manchin, Kristen yep. Cinema. Let's go. You know, we are the party of the working class. They're they're poor. Let's help them. Where is what, what does he represent? But who did who do you think he would convince? Well, I mean, we he know should that shame he his own party. Yeah, but what would they then do? Would he get any Republicans to be shamed? Would all of a sudden Susan Collins say, well, you know, I thought about it and ask her next time she's on your show? At least. But, you know, this is this is why I said vote for Bernie. He's already lost Biden. He came in. This is this is the Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden. I'm going to reach across the effing aisle 
and yeah. make a deal with these people. How about taking it to the American people? You know, Bernie said, I'm going to go to Mitch McConnell's district. I'm going to yeah. I'm going to go into enemy territory and raise hell yeah. and, and fight f- for a $15 minimum wage. Joe Biden isn't going to fight for you. He's going to tell you he's going to fight for you. He's not fighting. This is this is this is exactly what the Bernie bros warned you about. This is exactly, you know, the first hundred days you get something. You always get something. Yeah. He's getting nothing done. No, he's getting he's getting plenty of things. It's just that they're not the big ticket items that you and I care most about. But I mean, t- to stop what? the pipeline, to, these there are other pipelines stop. that need to be stopped as well. Well, there's, there's another is another very big and important one. But I mean, nobody noticed it until the Dakota pipeline Yeah, the Dakota pipeline. But but it's not the kind of thing that was on everybody's because it's uh, only going through Native uh, American land. Right. But I mean, but see, this is the kind of thing where I believe he will eventually do the right thing that he he will. He needs to be shamed, too. This is what I said from the beginning. You elect this guy and then you push him and you push him and you never give up. And if there's bombing in Syria, I don't know the details of it, but if it's as bad as it appears to be, then you go and you fight and you you put people in the streets and say, this is not acceptable. This is warmongering. This is the kind of stuff Donald Trump didn't even do. But let's go to Bernie for a second. Do you think that Bernie could go on television and persuade Joe Manchin or um, a couple of Republicans to to back an increase of any kind in the minimum wage? I don't think he's capable of doing that. I just don't. We're too polarized. We're in two different countries. And one of them is good, more or less, and the other is evil. And that's the evil Republican. Yeah, but I, I think I agree with you that the Republicans are worse. And I've said this countless times on the show. If you have if you have a mother and a father, the father's abusive. You expect your mother to protect you. And and so you end up expecting more from your mother than your abusive father. We've given up on the Republicans. I mean, Rand Paul was talking about, I don't even want to repeat what he said to, to, at the hearing about transgender people. I mean, they are the, another son of, by the way, Rand Paul, son of Ron Paul, Never had a work. Right. Never had a work a day in his life, right? And thinks he earned uh, his medical degree. Sure, sure. Know, you know, Kavanaugh never had a work a day in his life, and you know, got got into Yale Law School because he never had a work a day in his life because he could focus solely on his studies. And when he wasn't studying, his sure. parents were paying for you know kegger parties at the beach for him to rape young girls um but these people they think they earned their way into yale law school sure no some people do but most people don't yeah but but what worries me more 
than this because I don't think I don't think there's anyone we could raise Jack Kennedy from the dead. He could give a speech. He's not going to change the minds, the hearts and minds of the cinemas and the mansions in the world. But what bothers me more is look at the setup that is to come. Two years from now ought to be a slam dunk for the Democrats to gain real control in the Senate so that they don't we don't have to worry about what cinema thinks or what mansion thinks because there's so many either open seats or highly vulnerable people but this is what i see happening thanks to cnn uh as you know i mean i think cnn is why we have had donald trump because they gave so much time and i've been looking at who they're giving time to now in the last three months or so uh senator sununu I mean, Governor Sununu of New Hampshire, he's wildly popular. The woman who's in there now, Maggie Hassan, is kind of a, a blah person. I mean, she's the just, senator, the senator, senator. Um, Sununu announced two days ago that he's is, in fact, considering running for the Senate. If he runs for the Senate, he has not only the hardcore Republican support of people in New Hampshire, but people who watch CNN go, you know, he's on so often, and he, you know, he has some kind of moderate, sensible ideas. Like because, Santorum, they have Santorum on. Well, they have Santorum. I think Santorum. <laughs> I know Santorum, and I, I mean, I think he. I think most people can see through that and just merely wonder why are they paying Rick Santorum to come on again. But with Sununu, they seem to treat him with dignity, that he is a person who's in the middle. He's a person who had sensible approach to COVID. And they do the same thing with a guy named Scott Armstrong, who used to work for McConnell. And he's their go-to, very traditionally handsome guy from Kentucky. I, he is wants to be the senator who the guy who replaces mitch mcconnell in ohio adam kitzinger who went to iraq and he but these people have the worst ideas the worst political ideas but it's like they're being groomed to be moderates to be moderates and groomed, therefore, to get elected to the Senate. So if Kitzinger decides he's so popular, he gets a lot of good feedback from being on CNN so often. And he stood up to Trump. And he stood up to Trump once or twice. Right. So what? So what is, I mean. Mary Cheney stood up to yeah, to somebody who just tried to kill you. Yeah, yeah. That's not a big deal. You don't get, right. you don't get, you don't get a, a gold cold tooth for that right. but so here you got three people in three states if they run for the senate they are likely to take those seats and it and on top of this look at the people that ran if if in uh north carolina cal cunningham have been able to keep his pecker in his pants, we wouldn't be having 50, we'd have 51 to 49 people going in there. He was way ahead, but he has to have an affair, then he has to lie about it, and he loses. 
So we have to blame our own kind, too. And you do. I mean, you've been blaming Biden for everything. No, I mean, I expect I expect one. If daddy's going to abuse me, I expect my other parent. Yeah. To do the work of both. Do both. Sure. But but we don't. um, This highly dysfunctional family we have is. um, No, and it's not just Cunningham. I mean, Sarah Gideon, who ran against Susan Collins, she she raised 75 million dollars in Maine, in Maine. When the election was over, she still had nearly $15 million left. So all these panic things, I, I, I got emails from that campaign and phone calls from that campaign every single day, all the way up to election day. Just send another $25. She didn't need any of that money. She didn't have enough places to spend it. If she runs again, she wouldn't get 10 cents from me. Because in my sense, so is it worth money? You know, <laughs> Henry Huckamacki said something that, that stuck with me. He said, you know, the, uh, the smug Democrats make fun of Republicans mm-hmm. and their faith in God and the church. He said, but the, the churches actually help the poor. You, yeah. There's a price you pay. Proselytizing, you have to be. Yep converted and or talked to or proselytized to but they'll give you a meal they'll give you a a place to sleep the republicans are in bed with the christian right uh if you know unless it's joel olstein they'll let you in supposedly (laughs) Uh, he, he said that uh where where are the democrats all the money that they're raising you talk about Sarah Gideon, $15 million left. Yeah. She didn't beat Susan Collins. That's now her campaign war chest. What would $15 million, if you were to spread that out over six years? Sure. Because you're going to run again in six years. Yeah. What could you do, Reverend, with $15 million in Maine? Well. Um, and, and use it as yeah. a way to get elected. Yeah, well, I think we talked about this two or three weeks ago. What Democrats need to do is start to buy people food. They start to need to go into the communities, not just say, hey, I'm running for the Senate. Uh, Vote for me. Uh, By the way, uh, I'll write you again tomorrow to ask for your support again. They would do something. They'd go in and start to feed people. They'd be the people who don't just do a a kind of... uh, uh, photo op like Ted Cruz did in passing out water, they would be doing that on a regular basis. Beto O'Rourke, I don't know what he wants to run for. He's an idiot. What? He's an idiot. Well, yes. Yeah, he he is. But at least at least he went. AOC went to Texas and raised two million dollars last weekend. I love her. Oh, I do, too. She she said to get rid of ICE this week and yeah. dismantle Homeland Security. And the Democrats are going, see, this is the problem with the, our this radical left on the yeah. that we have to deal with. She is the future. I mean, I, I do think she's the future, but I think she 
she doesn't have enough um, people on her team right now. Well, you would think CNN would, you know, even have a conversation and uh, and tell us what ICE does. Of course. We don't need ICE. They don't have time to do that because they have to repeat the same story with exactly the same footage and the same guests that they run you know, they've been running for the last 12 hours. Look at all these issues that we talked about, you know, the the new pipeline that nobody heard of until it was in the paper two days ago. Well, no, nobody, people did understand it, but the mainstream media didn't cover it. It wasn't even interesting enough. And there are all these issues that are literally lost in the coverage of the media. And part of it is just laziness. I mean, how many times do you hear on CNN? I'm kind of obsessively watching CNN again because I'm desperately trying to avoid finishing writing my book. And they they will say, well, there's bipartisan support for this measure. And then they go, who is that? Well, Mitt Romney said he might do it. (laughs) They go to the same three people. There are only three people who voted for the Equality Act who are Republicans. I have never heard of any one of them until today. And then uh, they came up, they popped up. I said, I wonder who they are. Three people I never heard of. There is nothing, there is no moral center to this party. And if the Democrats want to provide a moral center, one of the things they have to do is they have to show that they actually care, that they go out and do the things necessary, not say what they're going to do, but actually go out and distribute the food, actually go out and visit the people's grandmothers who need to be visited. Maybe. Yeah. You, you said this yourself a couple of weeks ago, that gains not just votes, but people actually start to believe, and maybe it's true, that you care about them, that you care about their lives. That's what Democrats are supposed to do. And that's what they better do in our next, you know, two years from now, the Senate's going to flip back to the uh, Republicans again. Yeah. Biden uh, nominated uh, Rachel Levine. She's the Pennsylvania uh, head of, she's the head of Pennsylvania's Department of Health and Human Mm -hmm. Services. And she's been nominated to be under the head of, our Secretary of sure. Health and Human Services, and she is, I guess, a trans nominee. Is that what you want to call yeah, it? Correct. And she was questioned uh, before uh, Health and Human Services Committee today. Rand Paul sits on that because he's the son of a doctor, so he got into yeah. medical school. Sure. And the question Rand Paul asked as millions and millions of people, 30 million Americans don't have health insurance. Uh, Something like 50,000 Americans die every year because they don't have health insurance. But all Rand Paul wanted to ask her was about uh, surgery for minors. Uh, Is it genital mutilation when uh, like point zero, I think there are more late term abortions than there are uh, yeah. minors having, having, that, having that yep. having those kind of surgeries. Correct. But that's what uh, 
the Republicans choose to concern themselves about? It's it's the question that comes to mind about Mira Tandon. Uh, I never was a fan of hers, but she's really a terrible person. And I am embarrassed at the number of my former colleagues. You said she's a terrible person. Yeah, she is. Yeah. And and she... Um, Bill Crystal said, you know, when they attack Neera Tandon, I can't help but think there's some sexism. And I thought if yeah. Bill... When Bill Crystal cries sexism, right. there's no sexism. No. There are a thousand... Not tweets that were deleted but the but the tweets aren't don't matter either it's her conduct you know the the stories of i didn't realize this until just this afternoon there's a wonderful woman who writes for new york magazine helped to organize writers in new york her name is sarah jones and i hired her long ago to write for the, the magazine that americans united put out and she was a marvelous writer and i thought this woman's going places she went moved to new york She's a fabulous writer. So I just found out this afternoon, Neera Tandon was so upset with some of the anti-Hillary stuff that Sarah Jones wrote that she tried to get her fired. Hmm. Who, who, what lobbyist at the Center for American Progress gets so ticked off at a very young writer who's barely making enough money to, you know, to live and writes to her boss and says, fire this woman. Who does that? Before you go, yeah. I, I love talking to you. It's an honor to talk to you. You are absolutely brilliant. You, 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 know, you have this vast wealth of knowledge because you're a lawyer, a minister, and you're married to a doctor. And yeah. uh, so the, the range, your, your range of... It's impressive. I'm going to ask you a difficult question. Sure. Uh, the people who, who stormed the Capitol, it's, it's chilling uh, yeah. what happened. And I've watched the videos over and over again. But you have to call something what it is. And just because it happened in the Capitol doesn't mean it's an insurrection. Just because everybody in the Capitol was terrified doesn't mean it was an armed insurrection. The, 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 the people who stormed the Capitol should be arrested. They should be locked up for life. Rudy, Trump, they instigated. They should be put away. Uh, and we have a problem with white nationalists and guns and militia in this country. And I personally think we should just start arresting people with guns. You know, forget the drugs. If you want to fight a stupid war, sure. fight a war against gun ownership and start locking up anybody yeah. who has an AR-15. Fill our prisons with people who, uh, who own guns. That's, uh, I think, it, you know, the, the, I don't even want to go there. Um, and we have a problem with uh, gun owning Republicans. But was this an insurrection? The head of the Capitol Police uh, said his name is Yagananda Pittman. He testified uh, before the uh, House Appropriations Subcommittee on Thursday. They're probing the, the January 6th, quote unquote, insurrection. 
And he says uh, these militias wanted to blow up the Capitol and kill as many people as possible. My question is, then why didn't they? Yeah. Let's call this what it is. And by calling it an insurrection, by uh, saying these people wanted to kill AOC or hang Pence or kill Nancy Pelosi, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. They probably did. But they, they were packing. They had weapons. They had stun guns and they could have fired those weapons. They didn't. So they smeared. It was the worst thing to happen to the Capitol since 1812. But I'm not so sure it was an insurrection. I'm not so sure it was as organized. The, The cops were were caught with their pants down, they could have done, if they wanted to, they could have blown things up and they could have, they could have fired their weapons and they didn't. So calling this what it's not, uh, doesn't help. No, it doesn't, but I don't see how it hurts either because I mean, this was an effort to delegitimize the, election results and to do so with with force and they didn't use as much force that's because a lot of people i mean look if you've ever been in even a mob that's just kind of interested in uh doing something relatively small but something that is dangerous i mean you might be most people are just not going to follow through this is a country where we don't even follow through on things we say we care deeply about the poor, we care deeply about racism, but we don't follow through, we don't do a damn thing about it. Yeah, I mean, Timothy McVeigh, Timothy McVeigh rented a rider truck, there was a conspiracy, yep. conspiracy among former military guys. Correct. He drove this rider truck filled with yep. fertilizer up to the, was it the Murrah building? Yeah. And In Oklahoma City. Yeah. That... Yep was an act that was a that this uh was something different yeah this was something different yeah it was um i I mean i wouldn't want to parse the differences too much because the motivation is the same it is to terrorize a piece of the government just to demonstrate that you hate the government. And these people on January 6th clearly hated the government. I mean, some, most of the, many of them, I don't know how many, but many of them hadn't even voted for Trump. They hadn't voted at all, but they wanted to make a point and they wanted to do it in a dramatic fashion. And that is, I mean, I don't know, what do you call it if you don't call it an insurrection, an effort to overturn a lawful election result through use of force? I mean, that's what an an insurrection is. Yeah, these people are despicable. They are a basket of deplorables. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. I, I well, all right. The Reverend Barry, I'll, I'll watch, you know, the, the, to be continued. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn is a member of the Supreme Court Bar, and he, for nearly a quarter of a century, ran Americans United for separation of church and, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, state? State. State. Yeah. And besides being an attorney, he's also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. I'll talk to you next Oh, I'll see you at office hours. Uh, that's next week. Yeah. Next week, I'm, I'm doing another reading of, from my book. And um, the Joe from Norway said he'd rather not hear a sermon, but maybe a discussion of my battle to preserve pornography. So that's I, I love sermons, especially well, you, about pornography. You could have a I could possibly do a sermon about pornography, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to talk about why it's so important, even if you are repulsed by this stuff. Okay. Got to defend its right to exist. But that's the sixth, I think, of uh, March. Now, Reverend, look, look at me. Yes, I am. Before you go, I just want to remind you. Yes. Stay out of trouble. Only good trouble. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Well, we have our, what should I call this? Our powerhouse? I don't know. But uh, thank you. Uh, Professor Marianne Cummings joins us. She is a physicist and a parks commissioner at Aurora, Illinois. Professor Adnan Hussein is back. He is the head of the religion department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, host of the Mudgeless podcast. Did I just lose him? Oh, there you are. The host of host of Gorilla History and the Mudgeless podcast. Uh, Professor Ian Faluna is a uh, I don't have it's a complicated introduction. It doesn't have to be complicated. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I threw you off the first time I sent you my title, which is ridiculously complicated, but it's just I'm an atmospheric scientist. You are an atmospheric scientist. Yeah, I study air pollution and climate change at UC Davis. So, and, and Professor Jonathan Bick is a political scientist, and he comes to us from Massachusetts. Well, Professor Ian Faluna, we have a problem here today because we like to talk about things uh, not knowing what we're talking about. Uh, so, like, I like to talk about. That's why you have professors here. That, that's that's our that's <laughs> no. our job. <laughs> no, I mean, if if there are uh, if there are no women here, then I'll talk about you know the Woody Allen documentary, that kind of if you know if that kind of thing. So we, I wanted to talk about climate change and the weather, but I can't because uh, you know all about hurricanes. It feels kind of unfair. It's not sporting. You had some news about hurricanes that you wanted to share with us? Well, I just, you know, I, just when you thought environmental catastrophes in red states were in the rearview mirror, um, it's coming up on time for the 2021 Atlantic hurricane season. So it usually takes a while to spin up. But is this, I ba- is this basketball or hockey? <laughs> it's uh, tropical cyclones. And uh, so, you know, in advance, they named, remember this last year, there were over, there were about 30, I think, which has exceeded the alphabet. You know, they, they named them alphabetically 
and they do that in advance. Well, wait a second. Hurricane season, I, I always thought hurricane season starts, you know, at, near the end of summer. That's when it peaks. That's when it peaks. But you can get hurricanes in the, in the spring. So it officially starts in the spring. But yeah, you're right. Absolutely. It's when the, it's when the ocean surface is at its highest. And in they come to us from the doldrums, right? Yep, exactly right. What are the so, what are the doldrums? Well, there's a region so near the equator, but it wiggles up and down with the seasons. Is where you're most intensely heating the Earth's surface, and so what that does is it drives really deep convection. Big, huge thunderstorms develop there, and that region tends to um, actually have low horizontal winds at the surface even though there's very strong vertical winds that create the, these storms. Um, and, and that's, then the doldrums are around that region where there's just the winds kind of die down. Uh, so in, when, when you were sailing from Europe to the Americas, um, you could catch in the, you know, in the, in the mid latitudes, you could get wind, no problem. And then the trade winds, of course, blowing east to west, but then you get close enough to the equator and you hit this you would just lose. You would just lose your wind power. You lose your wind power. And that's what it's called. Anyway, like sometimes they call it the horse latitudes because they would throw extra ballast over. Over uh, they would throw it into the ocean to say that again. You were breaking up. You were breaking. So, so you were breaking up in they, the. Street. They used to call those latitudes the horse latitudes because the ships would lose their wind and they wouldn't be able to go anywhere. So they would throw overboard excess weight, including horses. I yeah. see. Cool. And sense. having the doldrums means? Well, it actually does have an impact on, on how hurricanes form, because what hurricanes need is... No, what I'm saying is there's an expression, I have the doldrums. Oh, yeah, right, exactly. Right. The wind comes out of your sails. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway. That's so the most important... By the way, that to me is some of the most important information uh, all right, so go ahead. What are we? So hurricane season is upon us. So last year it was a it was a it was a whopper. They had 30, 30 hurricanes, uh, so it exceeded the naming capacity of the English language, which only has twenty, I think, really twenty five uh, letters that they use. And so you remember towards the end of the season last year, they started you started hearing about like storm gamma and storm beta because they just had to go through the Greek alphabet from there. So it was really an impressive season. Anyways, this season, they, they release in advance, the National Weather Service releases in advance the names they're going to assign in sequence to uh, any hurricanes that develop. And it's very exciting for us here. Guess who G and H are? G and H? The names, yes. They alternate male, female, male, female. Greta for Thunberg. That would be good. No, Grace. Oh, for Grace Jackson. Exactly. And then who's H? Henry. Your man, Henry. Hurricane yes. Henry and Hurricane Grace. Can't wait. Oh, they're going to be intense. They're going to be intense. Unfortunately, Hurricane Irritable. <laughs> <laughs> Hurricane, I think Hurricane Grace will be gentle and wise. And wise, right? And Hurricane Henry will be sweet, but will keep... Let, we'll keep uh, we'll never finish. He'll keep saying, let me fit one more thing. One, just a little more. Just one more. <laughs> a lot of rain. It's going to dump a lot of rain. <laughs> if I didn't love Henry, I'd say a lot of hot air. But uh, I have to 
So we've got Hurricane Grace and Henry. That's exciting. Yeah, that's all. That's all. I thought for, for the, this community, that would be very exciting. That's great. <laughs> uh, how And can we do we know how the hurricane season is going to be? Not yet. I mean, no. The forecasts at this point are not usually pretty worthless. A couple of months, a month or two, we might know. But I have a stupid question. I, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I just wanted you to know that I have a stupid. No, I was thinking well, about the the polar vortex. Is it conceivable that the weather can get so wacky that the polar ice caps freeze up again? That it just gets so weird that. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, it's a it's a good it's actually a really good question because it is a complex system, but. But when we say wacky, it's wacky in, in small regions, right, in transient manners. Um, the overall trend, I mean, the last five years were, uh, you know, five out of the top six temperature records that we know of since, since we've been keeping records. So the, the increase in warming that's, that's continuing, there's just no way around that. You're not going to, you know, you can't freeze ice when things are getting warmer and warmer. It just it goes against sort of the general thermodynamics. But you do get weird things happening, but they're temporary and they're local. Right. So, no, I don't think you can do... And again, all of the weather is just about mixing out. I think we talked about this last time. You're heating in the tropics and you're cooling in the higher latitudes. And the atmosphere and ocean are just doing their job mixing out that gradient. Because nature abhors a, gray, a wrinkle. It likes that iron everything out. So the weather's just doing that. And, um, yeah, but, but the, the long-term warming, I, there's just uh, no way it would just spontaneously reverse because we know, we know what's causing it. It's our emissions right. Does anybody have any questions for Professor Faluna? By the way, about, about the hurricane season last year, and I looked up the, you know, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration puts out the, the, the annual extreme weather events. And there was something like $95 billion of damage last year from, if you include wildfires and tornadoes and, and um, hurricanes. And um, it just got me thinking that, you know. In America or around the world? It, just in the U.S., just yeah. in the U.S. And, you know, we argue all the time about a few billion here, a few billion there. And it's like, this is just, this is just going to keep, Increasing and destroying things. And I this is the problem with the financialization of our politics, because I have no doubt when you say these storms are causing fifty six billion dollars in damage. Ninety five. Ninety five. I'm sorry uh, that. The Democrats and the Republicans in Wall Street are thinking, well, there's your infrastructure bill. This is good. I'm being serious. That they say, oh, this is good for the economy. Because I remember in 2000 and when was Harvey? 2017 in Houston. Yeah. yeah. Uh, people were saying it was good for the economy. Lowe's did well. It, it, it stirred up business. It adds to the GDP. Maybe Professor Bick can uh, address this. When you say it's $100 billion in damages, that's good for the GDP. That's like, that's a positive when the Federal Reserve hears about that. That means the economy is doing well. It's putting people back to work. 
Yeah, well, people aren't doing all that well. That's but the way we measure, no, I'm not, I'm not defending it. Yeah. What, what I'm trying to explain is we have to figure out a better way to measure our economy. You know, Alan Minsky, who was on earlier, explained to me that if I go get a carton of milk and return safely to my apartment, I add nothing to the GDP. I add like $3 to the GDP says, but if you were to get hit by a bus, you'd add about $300,000 to the economy. That's plus how they measure the, the GDP. The huh? Plus the cost of the milk that would probably be spilled. The spilled, but the, why cry over spilled milk when there's a $300,000 inflated bill from the hospital? I guess the question is who who pays for it, right? So if the government is paying for all those damages, then you know the conservative mindset would think, oh, this is an expenditure. Yeah, it's a Keynesian. It's a, it's it's Keynesian. It stimulates the economy. That's how it's viewed in the safe. When you're on the 80th floor of a of a building on Wall Street, that's how you see it. You see, okay, so land just move, press a button and buy property in Canada. Professor Bick. Yes, sir. What do you have for us today? Oh, David. Well, this evening I wanted to talk about the minimum wage and we got some discouraging news. What is a parliamentarian? Is that somebody plays backup for George Clinton? Yeah, well, in the Senate, uh, her name is Elizabeth McDonoghue, and she's the chamber's nonpartisan arbiter of the rules. So what she says goes unless the majority in the Senate overrules her, which the Democrats could do. And I didn't know that. Yes, they could. So say that again. So go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't. Yep. Yeah, so uh, she makes the decisions about parliamentary uh, rules, that is, the rules that govern the Senate, uh, which, by the way, can be changed by the majority. Um, But uh, the majority can also overrule her. Um, And but it doesn't seem like the Democrats are going to do that in this case because their hands are tied. By themselves, their hands are tied. She's the parliament. She just ruled. Yeah. Well, Ron Klain said um, yesterday, uh, he's the chief of staff to President Biden, quote, when asked about whether he would over, you know, whether the Democrats would overrule the parliamentarian if she should rule against them with regards to the minimum wage. He said, quote, certainly that's not something we would do. We are going to honor the rules of the Senate and work within the system to get this bill passed. So my question is, why? Because because on January 6th, they tried to. And Trump, Trump, come on, Trump. Trump. <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm like I voted for Bernie. I I I I Biden's a piece of human excrement. His son. Yes. But he did promise 
during the campaign to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Which but are, we I have think, to bomb Syria. Yeah, we can do two things at the same time, David. We can take innocent life and uh, raise the minimum wage at the same time. Come on, Professor. In all seriousness, this is a uh, Trump was an existential threat to the soul of postmodernism and existentialism. And, <laughs> you know, can we? Well, um, that may or may not be the case, but um, I can tell you that. Mitch McConnell has not honored the rules of the Senate in the past. When it suited him and the Republican agenda, he changed the rules. If the Democrats don't play by those same tactics, we are going to be rolled over continuously and forever. No, we're rolling ourselves over. It's much better this way. Uh, no, I'm serious. This is smart. It's it's weak. <laughs> Yeah, I know people are going to die and a million Americans won't be lifted out of poverty, but we can win in in uh, in 20. If there is a 2022, we can win because the Republicans won't have anything to run on because we will have done all their work and we will have proven that their platform doesn't work, that it doesn't help anybody. This is three dimensional. I think it's called three dimensional diarrhea. Yes, that's what it is. I can agree with that. I like the reddish tint of your glasses. It's great. It's a new felda. Me? Rose yeah, color. natural disaster. You're like, bring it on. Good for the economy. I'm, uh, I'll tell you, I'm looking at Professor Marianne. I'm going to go to Professor Hussein next because uh, Professor Marianne, uh, I, I don't want to, we have to wait about by let's continue because let's discuss this because i could put my fist through a wall I, I, this is uh not through my walls but probably your apartment yeah yeah i mean a 15 dollar minimum wage Let me just, can I just, yeah, please, what, I, I, what I'm ready to, I, I'm ready to, I'll what, talk what about Hunter 15, Biden in a second. <laughs> what the $15 minimum wage would do, even taking our time and raising it uh, to $15 by 2025, uh, it would increase the wages of over 40 million American workers. It would lift over a million Americans out of poverty. It would get rid of the tipped minimum wage which has been fixed at $2.13 an hour since 1991. Um, unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable that somebody in this country can work for $2.13. You know, it's outrageous. Uh, an, another uh, 11, uh, nearly 12 million workers would benefit from a spillover effect as employers would raise wages of workers making more than $15 an hour in order to attract and retain their employees. And it would generate almost $120 billion in additional wages, which would, uh, you know, stimulate the economy. Which they spend. Which they would spend, right. And, and it would, you know, create employment and create uh, incentives to invest in businesses. But, oh, no, we're, the Democrats are going to let the parliamentarian of the Senate decide what's going to happen in this country. 
You've got to be kidding me. No, we're a nation of rules that we write and obey when it suits us. And now it doesn't suit us. Professor Hussein, you want to comment on this? Well, just I think that they will find, it seems, any excuse um, not to actually do anything, maybe because they do believe that to do something would open them up to potential criticism that could be run against in 2022. But in fact, actually, the thing they don't seem to understand is that the Republicans can both oppose the you know raising the minimum wage and complain about the terrible economy and the fact that these you know neoliberal elites they won't call them neoliberal elites but they'll say that these you know Washington and establishment elites are not looking out for you and that's why you have to have us come in so what they really need to do is um, actually accomplish something that they can run on and say you need to give us more of a mandate to do more of this. But they have a majority. They have a majority in both houses of Congress. They've got the president. There's actually no excuse now. But the point here is, is that Biden never did run on raising the minimum wage. He didn't run on that. He said he supported raising it, but he didn't make that the centerpiece of his campaign. He didn't actually make any real promises about it that he would fight to make sure that it happened. He just said, yeah, I support it. And really, his campaign was exactly about the existential threat of Donald Trump. And so it was a moral and kind of... um, um, it was about quorum. It was about America being civility. We need civility. Yeah, and it was, yeah, exactly. And it was about our character as a nation and all of that. And so he's he can continue to accomplish restoring honor and dignity to the White House um, by doing nothing uh, other than you know following the basic sort of norms, acting presidential, and trying not to say anything controversial. When he should have been with his family, Hunter Biden, crack addict, uh, you know, F civility. Hunter Biden, we've just found out that there, there was tragedy in the Biden family and Hunter had an affair with his brother's widow. And while Hunter was sleeping with his brother's widow, he was also sleeping with her sister. That's just come out. Seems to me that... Joe Biden is neglecting his family. If that's going, if that's how you're going into your senior years, you should tend your own garden, Joe. You are neglecting your grandkids. F civility. You got a crack addict for a son. Spend more time with him and and your grandkids. For this, you for this, you take your eye off your family for what? For what? What what is the the greater sacrifice? I'd like to take care of my son and my grandkids, but I have to save the soul of America. Save the the (laughs) soul. I think he did that in 2016, right? He didn't run because he wanted to spend time with his family and then he saw that they were hopeless. So he came back. (laughs) I think that's (laughs) you know what? People are going to die because of this. F him. People are going to die. People are dying right now because of this. And meanwhile, we have to mourn the half a million people who died. A big show of sympathy for the half a million Americans who died from COVID. 
spare me your light shows and uh, give me uh, Medicare for all because 50,000 Americans die each year because they don't have health insurance. Spare me your emotions and your patriotism. Spare me these speeches about who we are as a people. And uh, anyway. Don't you think the question is, is who's really running the show? I mean, Biden doesn't seem like such a uh, forceful figure. Um, And in fact, actually, I just I'm reminded of a story out today about his first call and contact with uh, the Saudis. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he seems to want to isolate uh, MBS, uh, the crown prince who's really been running the country and um, doesn't want to communicate directly with MBS, but only with King Salman, whom he says is on his level, that they are, you know, really that's who he should be talking about because they're on the same level. But... King Salman isn't running the country, <laughs> you know. Uh, Mohammed why not? Bin is, is, is it, it. Yeah, why is we're on the same cognitive level? Like yeah, that. that's what I was wondering. And also, if if he thinks if he thinks you know uh, King Salman is uh, the person to be speaking about because they're actually equivalent, it means that somebody else is running the United States of America. Okay, so the question is, who is that? Because I don't think Biden is the one making these real decisions. Right, right, right. Tell me about Syria, why it's fresh. It may be too soon for you to comment on it, but why would we be phoning in airstrikes over Syria? Is this a well, apparently that's what presidents do. So the only time that Trump was actually regarded as being presidential and where the chattering classes in D.C. of the establishment uh, stopped uh, incessant complaint about him uh, was when he bombed Syria. Uh, So it seems that it's almost a reflex of uh, demonstrating that the United States is a major power, um, despite the mockery of our Capitol Hall, you know, pooch and all of the evident weakness of the United States, uh, some people still seem to think in the military and foreign policy establishment that the best way uh, to assert America's status in the world is by bombing, you know, people in the Middle East. And there had been a lot of hopes of some uh, rapprochement with the Iranians. Um, And what's so bizarre and funny about this attack on supposedly Iranian-aligned militias in Syria that were supposedly the target here uh, in um, response to an attack on U.S. military facilities, a base in, in the Kurdish part of Iraq by apparently a Shiite militia there. Um, The contradiction that's so bizarre is that on the one hand, the U.S. uh, under Biden has been claiming that it wants to restore the Iran nuclear deal and re-enter that without a lot of preconditions and to establish positive relations, which I would say is the one achievement of the Obama administration that actually contributed to peace in the region, one genuine accomplishment. Uh, So getting back into that is a good thing. But at the same time, uh, they're going to bomb and attack uh, Iranian uh, aligned targets in the Middle East and supposedly declare that this was done in such a 
proportionate way that it will help de-escalate the situation. I mean, you know, what will de-escalate the situation is entering into negotiations right away and trying to effect an agreement, not, you know, tit for tat bombings and, and attacks. So it is a very strange. Is he uh, sending a message to China or Russia? Because don't isn't China or I know Russia has troops in Syria it is. Yeah, it is definitely, again, as I was saying, in terms of asserting the U.S. on the world stage, we're back, you know, we're going back to, uh, you know, pre-Trump status quo ante where the U.S. is supposed to be the military and foreign policy hegemon in the world. This is, I think, an attempt to um, reestablish that without directly confronting China immediately. There's been a lot of more militant rhetoric. There's militant rhetoric from the Trump administration. So, again, this is the one thing that the foreign policy establishment, whether right or left, seems to agree on is that we need to have a hostile relationship of confronting China. This is a way of starting to do some of that without um, losing control, perhaps, and making a misstep in direct relation uh, you know, with, with China. Um, I just read somewhere, somebody was testifying for the House on Wednesday that in five years, China will invade Taiwan. Like, no question that that's going to happen. And I thought, well, that's scary. Oh, yeah. Right. I guess we have to spend more on military. I guess we have to bump up our uh, spending. You know, I not Trump was the worst president this country ever had, but he was so insane and so out of control. They couldn't talk him into a war. He, he killed Soleimani. I think he bombed well, I mean, Syria. I mean, he- yeah, he, he did ramp up uh, drone attacks yes, uh, yes. to a much greater extent, but he didn't get us involved in a large troop deployment. So you could say, interestingly, and he wanted to bring the he wanted to bring the troops home from Afghanistan. Yeah, that's when they invoked the 25th Amendment. If he had that, brought that, that's when he became a real dangerous uh, wild card. Yes, is when right. he's started uh, toying with the idea that you could end U.S. military presence in places like Afghanistan and elsewhere. And he uh, even threatened to remove troops from Syria. And he actually was blamed for pulling troops you know, out of, of How of much Syria. of this, when, when you look at a, a trillion dollar a year budget just for the Pentagon and uh, no money for infrastructure, no money for for schools historically speaking this is the oldest story this goes back to ancient rome and and ancient greece any this is uh great britain any, so yeah so this kind of imperial uh permanent state yeah in fact actually i would argue it does go all the way back there but i would i would say that there's a really interesting history to this kind of a a logic the logic of uh emergency in terms of uh, confronting a foreign and external enemy because of your imperial attempts to extend power and sovereignty um go you know to the crusades for example you could not have in the feudal system taxation 
taxation was humiliating to the nobility. They would not accept it. It was essentially tribute. It's what you do to conquered peoples. And they're not conquered peoples. They're military commanders. They're part of the structure. The kings were always trying to find ways to enhance their authority over nobles. Hence, we get Magna Carta and all of that as a reversal of royal prerogative. And this is the beginning, so-called, of liberty. They could not raise taxes. They could not collect taxes. The church could. The church had a tithe, but the kings couldn't really raise taxes. So the first time we see something like an income tax being imposed is when you had the emergency during the crusade after, for example, uh, the reconquest of Jerusalem by Salah ad-Din. Immediately, there was a tenth, a tithe that the royal, you know, that, that the king could take in order to prepare and raise an army to recapture the Holy Land, right? And you couldn't do it in a, under normal sorts of circumstances. And so you do end up having this bizarre way in which this emergency of foreign policy is what's used to authorize the suppression of freedom, the extraction of resources, and the centralization of governmental power right. because of this emergency. And we see that pattern. Well, in- and the citizens getting behind the government, right? Like it rallies everyone together. It's like a, it's like a simple fix, they think, to the even domestic problems, you know? Um. Let me uh, go back to the minimum wage. Uh, It's unconscionable, Professor Bick, that Chuck Schumer won't change the rules. It's unconscionable. Yeah, I I don't think he actually has to even officially change the rules. He just has to uh, say we're going to overrule. And I believe the vice president would have to be involved as well as president of the Senate uh, to overrule the parliamentarian. But she could certainly do that. Um, You know, in times of crisis, we've been known to suspend habeas corpus. Would it be that difficult for chuck schumer to suspend the filibuster we're in a crisis we have to move i know you love your filibuster we're suspending it temporarily you can you'll have it back in a couple of months but we have to get some things done here i think professor professor Vick's point is that you don't have to suspend anything I mean, Sanders came out at least two weeks ago with a preemptive uh, argument against all this stuff. He says, look, the, uh, the CBO came out and they talked about minimum wage and they talked about how that would affect the budget. Now, Sanders disagreed with their analysis, but he said, look, even the CBO has said that this is something that deals with the budget. We could do this with reconciliation. Like, that can be part of reconciliation. Uh, no, this is something came up in my uh, Yahoo feed. I get Yahoo news and it just kind of just almost as a random sample of the news. But one of the headlines was something like, you know, Ron Klain is quoted by saying they're going to fight their guts out. I, I was just I swear to God, I was just about near a tandem. Yes, that, that, that right. this is the hell they're going to die on. Well, they, they probably. Yeah, I, yeah, I was just going to, as you were saying that. <laughs> I know. The Internet. It's more like, important that near a Tandon had OMB than yeah. we lift a million people out of poverty. 
One yes. one job. It is it is more important for them because I, you know, and you know me, it just it just frustrates frustrates me more. And you have such brilliant people on your show, and they talk about Biden as if he's got his frontal lobes intact. They talk about the Democratic Party as if they're not completely owned by the same big money interests that own the Republican Party. I mean, they they talk about this as if they didn't bend all the rules and throw everything but the kitchen sink over a year ago to thwart, and it's only been a year, to thwart uh, uh, Bernie Sanders from getting the nomination. Remember how suddenly there was all this fake news Really, it was fake news about how Russians were interfering in the Nevada caucus because they wanted Bernie in there. I mean, it was just people talk about how the Republicans, you know, believe all this nonsense. And they do. And they don't stop to think that as late as 2019, uh, half the country and the majority of the Democrats believe that Russia directly interfered with the election in November, that they directly interfered with the machines. Most Democrats believe that. But, you know, you got Rachel Maddow, like, nonstop, you know, talking up Russiagate. You've got these people. So, in other words, this was all, of course, a distraction. I don't think Rachel Maddow believes that. If she does, not as smart as I thought. But it's all a distraction because they've got the same job. You know, the, the, the Democratic leadership and the Republican leadership have the same job. They've got different tasks on the like very different tasks. You know, they're the good cop, bad cop. They're the team A, team B, whatever you tell whatever you want to call it. But the sum and total of our uh, of our partisan politics is to keep us distracted while they are doing the bidding of the you know, of, of, of the big donors. So we're yeah. going to get four. But we're going to be distracted by a whole bunch of other things. We're going to be distracted by somebody saying that Neera Tandon and Deb Haaland and, and uh, who is it, Becerra, oh, you know, they're all victims of the racism of the right. Republican Party. Maybe they're weaponizing identity politics and even they're weaponizing even the politics of empathy. Right. I, I want to get back to something, Professor Bick, about right. so. This is why there's no critical thinking. Now, I didn't know, and I'm not ashamed to say this, I didn't know what, what you told me. I, I thought that there, the Senate par- parliamentarian will rule and her word is final, right? It does not have to be that way, no. But, but it's now a fait accompli. You read the New York Times and it's Senate par- parliamentarian disqualifies minimum wage. That's the headline. A fatal blow to the minimum wage increase. They're calling it a fatal blow. This is the sentence they use. The Boston, the Boston Globe said potentially fatal blow. This is the this is the language the New York Times used. Uh, she ruled. She says that it violates the strict budgetary rules that limit what can be included in the package. These strict budgetary rules you know like just after hearing you talk these strict budgetary they're, they're it's a and, and as it's a construct Cummings, 
as Professor Cummins just pointed out, we had the office, uh, the Congressional Budget Office just come out and say it does affect the budget. And now the Senate parliamentarians disagreeing with them and saying it does not materially affect the budget. Uh, therefore, uh, we can't use reconciliation rules to include it in this legislation. I mean, the, the real problem here is the filibuster. If we didn't have the filibuster, we would not have to worry about these arcane rules that are a part of this re- reconciliation. I, I think I just looked as you said that. Uh, and I agree with the look on Professor Marianne Cummings face. The real problem isn't the filibuster. The real problem is the Democratic leadership is full of excrement. Is that what you were going to say, Professor Marianne? Because there, because once you get the filibuster, once you get rid of the filibuster, you still need Mansion. You still need Cinema. Mm-hmm. Yes. But I think they could get them if they wanted to. I mean, really, I mean, is Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, are they really going to stop the COVID relief package because of the minimum wage? Yeah, that seems... They would not do that. They would not do that. Sounds like political... You know what, Professor Bick? You know more than I do. I suspect that if you asked Chuck Schumer, if you put... gave him some truth serum, he would say, (laughs) you'd say, do you really expect Kristen Sinema or Joe Manchin to block the minimum wage? And he would say... Well, somebody has to. If it's not them, we'll make sure that somebody does. Somebody does. Yeah, but but if if it's clear who it is, they would be in enormous hot water during the next election. But if only they, if the Democratic leadership wants them to pay a price. That's right. the whole problem. They don't seem to want to make these people pay a price. Exactly. Otherwise, they'd already have been sitting on them. The only play, time it seems that they will come out and fight about it will be about this near a tangent situation. Right. You know, try and get her through. They're going to be busy for the next week or so trying to press the flesh and, you know, exercise leverage where they can and so on. All the things that they should do for something meaningful, they will do to try and put near a tangent in right. there. Right. And the question is, is why? Why do they care about that? Right. You know, and well, even it, the Justice Democrats who aren't, you know, uh, uh, established with, you know, corporate donations and all of that, they're going along and playing the same game. You know, uh, they, they want to be involved and they think that they have to be loyal to the leadership on on, on this uh, on this on this question. I think it, it, you know, how can we explain it? I mean, it really is just that this is a sop to the wing of the party's establishment that is cares about the Clintons and their and their group. And he's shoring up his real base, which is bringing together the establishment. And he doesn't really care about the progressives because we've not proven that we're willing to make them pay a political uh, price. And so they won't even make mansion. I said when you know, when the Georgia election results came in, I said, this is now the era of Joe Manchin. It's because he will assert his will and the Democratic leadership and the president will not try and, you know, put pressure to bring him, you know, to heal. No, and it's so simple to and and, and just to like uh, put a point on what you just said, the easiest thing that the Democrats could have done politically 
uh, was was just write those two thousand dollar checks. I mean, Biden was explicit about that. He was going over. He was going down in Georgia and running on that, as were the two senators. And they said two thousand dollars immediately. And that would have been such I mean, if they did nothing else, that would have been for for most people to get to a check for two thousand dollars. That would have changed the world for a lot of people. And you would just have had this enormous swell of good feeling toward the Democrats, toward the leadership that it was. But they didn't do it. Why? I think partly because they don't want people thinking that government can actually do good for them. I mean, the cat was a little out of the bag when they got those paltry checks, you know, under under Trump. I mean, that mattered to some people to get that check, to get the $1,200 check and then to get the $600 check. Like, wow, the government can actually do this. And you're telling us now you can't do this, you know? And so I think that um, they there there is an order that they want to maintain, like Professor Hussein said, and it's going to be a little difficult because, you know, uh, people are getting so damn poor that you're going to have instabilities. I mean, people who are doing well, which is like a lot of my tenured friends are probably going to do better as, you know, uh, uh, coming out of COVID. But you're not going to have a society that's going to be stable enough for you to enjoy those 401ks when you retire. You know, if this kind of wealth inequality is just allowed. To, and, and, you know, I really believe, I honestly believe that my friends do not see it. My friends were just posting how they're, they're in, in California, their ski lodge in Lake Tahoe, rather. Yeah. And it's at the very least, at the very least, keep it to yourself. If yeah. you have a ski lodge in Lake Tahoe, at the very least, Keep that to yourself for the yeah. sake of your own self. When I was down in Peru in the in the eighties, uh, I we were, we stayed in Lima at the. There was a hotel that belonged to a, a couple of the, uh, young kids, really, like a couple of twenty year olds, a brother and sister. But they lived when they went about the town. I mean, they were not dressed flashy. They did not drive. I mean, they had to be kind of below boards because it, at that time was a there was a real business in people like them getting kidnapped and then which i'm know, against well we're all against but i'm against was, kidnapping that, of the kids let me just go on record here because a lot of people have accused me i, I believe that they should be raised by the state i believe the state okay. should take the children i'm being serious here and, and it's kidnapping, but seizure by the state. Is like, hey, it was good enough for Socrates. Read the Republic, Plato's Republic. Children should be raised by the state. No music and no poetry. Hello, little boy. Plato was a nut. Down to South America. Yeah, forget about these maximalist Nazi fantasies of the uh, upper 10%. What we're really heading is toward Brazil. Toward, toward Argentina, toward Peru, toward, you know, toward any number of South American states. Yes. Whose dictatorship come in a, comes in a variety of skin tones. You know, so. Right. 
But if, oh, if we're if we're gonna uh, talk about the Senate, and if we're gonna talk about these rules and entertain any kind of discussion about the democratic structures that exist, it seems to me what we should be pushing for in terms of how to lay the groundwork to get rid of all of these rules is we should be attacking the very you know, undemocratic nature of the Senate. This is not a body that really should exist in this form anymore. It's totally undemocratic. And we need to make the issue of democracy really crucial. I think we should say it is not representing the country. It is stif- it is giving power to uh, a minority that all that wants to obstruct and prevent government from being effective and that that's part of their ideology is to demonstrate the ineffectiveness of government and then try and use that to seize power through the frustration and anger that people legitimately feel that government is not doing anything for them. Uh, and so we should be attacking the Senate. Res- no, I think you're right. Rules, we delegitimize the Senate as a body and say, you do the people's will because you're not actually a democratic body and we're gunning for the Senate. So start acting on the people's behalf or we're getting rid of it. Because 10 years ago, I might have disagreed with that, might have said, hey, the Senate is for things to cool down, just like Jefferson or somebody said. But no, the results have been like the most radical kind of neoliberalism. The results have been this empire building and this vast wealth inequality. And, you know, it seems like it has pushed us to an extreme of politics that our de- democracies not, may not survive. Can I say something? Hmm. Chuck Schumer has two daughters. Jessica and Allison are both graduates of Harvard College, where Chuck Schumer went to college. Jessica, the older one, after graduating from Harvard, went on to become chief of staff and general counsel. She's a lawyer, general counsel of the Council of Economic Advisors. His other daughter went to work for Facebook straight out of college and is now a marketing manager over at Facebook's New York office. They've done well. Well, it should be no surprise that the children of the elite do quite well in this system. But I, I want to emphasize what Professor Hussein said, and that is that the Senate has to either be radically, radically reformed or abolished. It has no place in a democratic republic. It ne- it, it, we, we had to agree to it in order to get the Constitution because the slave states wanted the assurance that the Congress and the presidency would not get rid of slavery. That's why we have it. Bad reason to have it. It should have been abolished after the Civil War. What we can do is reform it. If we can't get rid of it entirely, we could say, okay, you can slow things down, but we don't need the Senate to pass every piece of legislation. You can, you know, maybe take an extra uh, month or two to, to talk about it and to point out to the country why the legislation may not be the greatest thing to pass. But in the end, if the House passes it, it passes 
and the president can sign it. It does not require the the passage in the Senate. Back to Chuck Schumer's kids for a second. (laughs) If I were Chuck Schumer, I would call my idiot daughters in and say, look, look, listen, I got you into my alma mater. Okay, I got you into Harvard. Do me a favor. I'm the the Senate. I'm now the Senate majority leader. It doesn't look good for you to work for Facebook. Do daddy a favor and go do public service. Do something that that shows that you actually care about. Don't go to work for the Council of Economic Advisors as an attorney. Peace Corps. That's why it was created. (laughs) Yeah, go do the Peace Corps. You you grew up in privilege. You, You don't need to work for Facebook. That's his values. They're reflected in his two craven daughters. That's all you need to know. They're the kids. It's the tale of the tape. Two daughters. He gets them into Harvard and they turn their back on everybody. The Democratic Party is supposed to fight for. Uh, Professor Marianne, do you have a story that you'd like to share with us? Oh, I was just reading, um, uh, I think over our friend Howie Klein, his, he had an interesting guest, our, uh, guest columnist talking about the climate crisis and the inevitability of rationing and conscription. It's an interesting read. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but, you know. Everybody we, should go we, to Down With Tyranny, yeah. Down With Tyranny. We will have to be dealing with this. And I kept telling people for years, we either deal with the climate crisis through democratic means, or we're going to be doing dealing with it through autocratic means. And that might mean that. But the, the biggest thing he was saying is the rationing of energy. And that's that, that's a problem. I mean, I think even climate activists do not understand the scale of the problem they're talking about, of getting everybody, billions and billions of us off the oil and onto like carbon free energy and then eventually like completely renewable energy. That is, I think the scale of it is so large, people don't want to think about it. But he's saying that, you know, we have dealt with crises before. And when we talk about conscription, rationing and conscription, we've done this. We did rationing during, uh, we did rationing during the Great Depression and all through World War II. We did even conscription of a kind, although... We had... uh... During the oil crisis in the 70s, yeah. even numbered and odd numbered license plates. Yeah, you know what? I told people I remember I'm old enough to remember that. But, you know, we did. And, and uh, as a friend of mine pointed out, who is a military history buff, he said, you know, the only reason why we were able to raise effectively raise such a big army in such a short period of time for World War Two is that we had literally sent millions of young people out, you know, with the CCC. That, you know, and had to deal with the whole logistics of, you know, barracks and laundry and food and, and transportation. But you're moving millions of people across the country, you know, to all the, the state and national parks to build roads, to build schools. And uh, and I was going to say that, you know, we can still do this we voluntarily. We could have what would, you know, an infrastructure project look like? It would mean, you know, like 20 million jobs doing what my friend John Lash wants to do in, a, in Aurora. And he had a great video out today. 
he's out and we're seeing all of our of course we've had we've had this tremendous amount of snowfall and it's melting so he's going to out in the neighborhood sees all of these um sees all of these enormous icicles forming on people's roofs and as a builder himself he says this is strictly because people's roofs aren't uh, insulated if people's roofs were properly insulated he said you wouldn't have all this sudden snow melt that makes icicles and water damming. I mean, I was over at my friend's house uh, trying to to deal with some of the leakage that came from the tremendous amount of snow on her roof all getting caught. So I'm thinking, you know, there's an enormous problem. There is somebody who at least locally has a vision to change. Because, by the way, there are all kinds of programs that do exist right now in, you know, from, from the state level, utility all the way to the fed level and it seems like our it's amazing to the extent to which our congressmen our local government people aren't aware of any of it because there just isn't this sense among people who are elected to public office these days that you know we've got we got an emergency going you are the lead Your, your, your job is to figure out how to get us out of this emergency bad situation. But people look at it as just another career. And, you know, I, I get criticized for criticizing the squad, but they absolutely need to be criticized. It's like they're all wonderful people, but they are in this swamp, and all they are hearing is when I'm being told, Marianne, you don't understand what they're hearing inside. Oh, I know exactly what they're hearing. It is nonstop, 24-7, what the big money donors want to hear, and you'll have a lot of very reasonable, nice, earnest people explaining reality to you that way. No, we need to be pushing them to snap out of it because there's not going to be a future for a lot of them if we don't deal with these problems. It's just astounding. And really, it starts with people, please don't pretend that Biden is all there anymore. Please don't pretend that there's going to be pushing him left or him coming to a realization or anything going on in his head, except for, you know, he may remember who Jill is. Maybe Bernie's his friend. Who are all these other assholes? I I have no idea, but it's not, you know, so uh, it, it starts with it starts with us. But, but the squad, you know, you think about the squad is maybe one or two percent of the House of Representatives. We're talking oh, about a bit. You know, we've discussed this before. I know, I know. You can outsize the leverage, but but it seems to me like you know. And for example, Chuck Schumer has at least made some noises that are somewhat progressive relative to Chuck Schumer because he's thinking he might be primary. Yes, I understand. And that. so that, and just like the IDW in New York, the way you got to do it is you've got to threaten them with primaries. I mean, I think that's our that's only right. answer. Is to just New York. Are any of the New York? I mean, any of the AOC New going out against Cuomo, speaking out against? Okay, whatever. The, 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 the there was the guy who yeah. he. There was one guy who said a Democrat Ron who said Kim. who said he threatened to destroy me. Right. That that was the guy who that Cuomo personally you know, attacked and threatened. And then this woman comes out who's running for some Lindsay Boylan. She was on the show. She's running for uh, Manhattan. I think Manhattan borough president. She's running. Exactly. Yeah. And well, you know, so two people for whom they were, you know, who, who had a personal unfortunate interaction with Cuomo. Where are the other, where are the other politicians in the state? I mean, this is, 
this is an outrage. What he, his behavior with COVID and his donors, and it's all out. I mean, this is like imprisonable type offenses. And I, I don't know. I, I mean, it seems that everybody is just walking on eggshells around this. You know, Lindsay was on the show and she now says that she was forced to fly and sit next to Andrew Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, on his private jet. And she was seated right next to him. And he whispered, I want to play strip poker with you. Um, so badly. I read, and, I read that article she wrote. Yeah, and, and, and four, hang on for one second, please. Four, they, they checked the flight logs. Four men who were on the mm-hmm. flight all said, that's not true. We didn't hear that. Over the din of an engine, of the engines of a private jet, the governor whispers, I want to play uh, strip poker with you. And they can say with absolute certitude that they didn't hear that. You pieces of... You know, uh, I had a little bit of that. Not, I don't want to wish to dramatize this, but when, when I was reading it, I just had a little flashback because she said, she, she mentioned how he said, hey, let's strip poker, let's play strip poker. And she said, I tried to make it a joke and be sarcastic. I'm going, yeah, what a great idea. Right. What are you going to just sitting next to him on this flight? What? I mean, it's like, but I understood, like, why she felt she had to do it rather than just slap his face right there. I mean, uh, I had somebody had to deal with somebody who was egregious and we were all making a joke about it. Everybody knew this was going on. And but I always felt like. I couldn't just say, hey, why doesn't anybody do something about this? I had to sort of I did find myself kind of joking about it myself because, you know, hey, it's a small particle physics is a very small club. And, you know, and this guy's letters is going to be determining your next job. It was just like Anita. That's why I mean, uh, this was going on when the Anita Hill saga was going on. And I understood exactly why she would have a relation. I mean, be on good terms with this guy even after she stopped working for him. You know, you, you don't want to ship the nest, so to speak. And, you know, it's when, the it's the so, it's the 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 entitlement that comes with right. being the son of Andrew Cuomo, son of Mario Cuomo. He thinks he's just an arrogant prick, and he would have been a Republican, but it's New York. Exactly, and and Rahm Emanuel would have been a Republican, but it was Chicago. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have Chicago. I mean, they're all Republicans. The whole Democratic Party around Chicago. Would Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom. Is a Republican, but he wanted to run for office in San Francisco. Kamala is a Republican. You, Professor Hussein, right? You can't get elected. You, there's no future for Kamala if she were a, a Republican in, in the Bay Area, right? Oh, certainly not, especially coming out of uh, Berkeley and North Oakland. Um, that would be very, very difficult. But... It's a classic situation where she acted as very much like some kind of conservative, uh, tough on crime uh, prosecutor. And the excuse that was given is that, well, she's a black woman, so she has to show. So, well, to whom? I mean, you know, this is a democratic state. Who do you have to show 
Maybe it suggests that Democrats, of course, are not really all that progressive when it comes to criminal justice reform. And, you know, they want to protect their good neighborhoods from all the people that they actually do fear, the poor, uh, the non-white and so on. But on the other hand, politically speaking, who does she need to appeal to as a tough on crime uh, prosecutor? Doesn't make any sense. Unless you're um, so a sadist, who would have... Who would lock up the parents of truants? Who would do that? She did. Well, she she um, what's worse is that she seemed to think that it was kind of funny that she could wield this power. If you look at the clip where she was announcing her brilliant program to wield the stick uh, while the school districts actually wield a carrot to encourage students to come to school um, is that she thought it was sort of funny that she uh, threatened parents um, whose whose kids were having, you know, difficulties. That sounds like something I would come up with on this show. Yeah, it seems like people would go, come on, David. It wasn't that funny and it was kind of cruel. (laughs) Yeah, it's the kind of thing that that you, you say to get a rise out of people, but you don't actually do it. All right. Yeah. And David, so, can I, I mean, can I, amazing. when you read, uh, you know, some of the stories where she kept people in prison, nonviolent offenders, she refused to release. I think it, it took a Supreme Court ruling to get her to release uh, people who had way overstayed their sentences. But we and needed them for the prison labor, she said. Exactly. It's like she literally oh, said, we're, we need yeah. them for the prison labor. That's awesome. <laughs> You know, uh, can I uh, insert a piece of good news here, David? Sure. So um, the House passed today a bill that uh, liberals and leftists, including identity politics supporters, could join hands and support and rejoice on. Uh, and that is the Equality Act. Um, it extends the uh, civil uh, rights protections to LGBTQ Americans. Um, in um, most states in this country, anyone can be denied housing, education, credit, or the chance to serve on a jury because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, in 27 states, uh, LGBTQs, do not have protections against being denied housing because of their sexual orientation. In 31 states, they lack protection regarding access to education. In 38 states, they lack protections regarding jury service. And at least half the states, um, they can be denied service at a restaurant or be evicted from their apartment because of their uh, gender identity or their... um, sexual uh, orientation. Um, But I have to say that this, even though it passed the House, if the filibuster is intact, this is not going to go anywhere in the Senate. Right. The same with House Bill 1 and Senate Bill 1, the For the People Act, which include very important voting protections. Right. It would expand Americans access to uh, the ballot box, reduce the influence of uh, big money in politics, strengthen ethic rules for public servants, 
But this is not going to go anywhere either because it's not going to qualify for reconciliation. So if we have the filibuster, you can say goodbye to anything like this that does not involve the budget. So. And, and the fall gal is the parliamentarian, not Chuck Schumer. Right. Chuck we, Schumer uh, with the stroke the of a pen. If the Democrats let the parliamentary uh, parliamentarian be the uh, fall person. Yeah. Yeah. Chuck Schumer could. Well, thank you. Sean, you have a question? Uh, yeah, um, this is for Ian. Um, there's a greenhouse uh, complex uh, in uh, Almera. And what they've been able to do um, is that they've noticed that there's uh, the, the rooftops are actually reflecting the sun back uh, into the atmosphere. And they've actually been able to lower uh, the temperatures across the region. Is, is, is that is there anything in that that could be useful as far as doing that on a national or, or level? Uh, yeah, the, I mean, it, it that's is. part of the all of above. It's all of the above, and it's and it's it's relatively small. I mean, in terms of you think about the whole area of the Earth, um, you know, thirty percent land, and then some small fraction of that is habitation. So. It's something, but it's not going to give you a giant uh, lever on the climate at all. What about dyeing the water white? No? Yeah. That would take a lot of dye. I mean, why not just use the clouds? What about uh, making everybody around the world become a mime? So they have to... And so they reflect... Just, you know, I'm not as smart as you people. That's Trump's dream for fighting uh, climate change. Yeah. Make everybody white. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Make everybody white. We got to wrap. I had some. uh, Oh, yes, please. As well that I wanted to report on, which is um, just that. Well, two components, and both deal with Canadian intelligence services. Uh, One is just a nice story about one of my favorite writers, the recently deceased John Le Carre, the um, Canadian uh, agency CSIS, um, which is the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, uh, is recruiting. And their idea about how to recruit was to quote from Le Carre's book, you could be the perfect spy. All and this is from John Le Carre's book, A Perfect Spy, which is be one of his most autobiographical novels. And this is a statement made by the main uh, character, Magnus Pym, who uh, double crosses uh, his, uh, his colleagues, uh, ends up turning traitor spies for Czechoslovakia against uh, Britain and ends with uh, the character committing suicide by shooting himself in the head after 
years of lies and, you know, duplicity end up uh, catching up to him. So this has caused a little bit of a Twitter storm where people have been wondering about whether this is a uniquely Canadian mixed message about uh, what we mean by being a perfect spy in Canada as somebody, you know, maybe who uh, works for the other side and it all goes wrong. Um, and perhaps to underscore that uh, point uh, is the fact that this is taking place at the same time that hundreds of workers for a different uh, spy organization, uh, the CSE, which is the communication security establishment, a bit like the NSA of, of, of Canada, have voted to go on strike potentially. Um, they are members of the Public Service Alliance of Canada Union and um, over some disputes about how pay is being calculated and whether they should be given a market rate. In other words, they could go out and do the kind of nefarious cybersecurity slash code breaking and spying, you know, for corporations and make a lot of money, but they've decided to serve the country. But unfortunately, the government doesn't actually want to pay to keep them, uh, you know, keep their talents. So threatening strike, they authorized a strike vote. Um, and during the pandemic, um, their services have been much needed because of attempts to hack into Canada's vaunted uh, pandemic vaccine research, which I'm still waiting to hear anything about any kind of vaccine. Canada is ranked 40th among countries uh, in terms of effectiveness of uh, in, in defense of America with three Moderna, Johnson and Johnson and well, the two Muslims from Germany that Pfizer is taking all the credit for, but uh, BioNTech, but uh, got to give credit where credit's absolutely, due. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, uh, Canada really hasn't done very much. And part of the reason why uh, the rollout is so slow is because they gave up all of their pharmaceutical, you know, in neoliberal, good neoliberal fashion over the decade, all of for pharmaceutical production in abroad and despite the fact that uh, just about a decade and a half ago the first SARS coronavirus came to Canada and there was a lot of research and there was a lot of opportunity for the pandemic and to develop an infrastructure for trying to come and happen but in ESE, you know, says that it's it's very uh, necessary. It's been helping uh, ward off all of these attacks. And I just have to say that uh, an intelligence service where the um, workers uh, are um, uh, are unionized and may go on strike is my kind of intelligence agency. Yes. Yes. I love you guys. I thank you so much. This I this is you know, so the faculty meetings. I guess. Yeah, this is great. This is you're the only uh, and Morris the the mouse that that I live with. Uh, I have a mouse named Morris, and uh, what's the what's the name of the mouse? I always forget. Thank you. Uh, let let me just clarify something. I just want to because people. Uh, accuse me of I don't have a problem with uh, 
if you want to go make a lot of money, uh, I don't have a problem with that. But I want 99% of, of this country to hate you, to have the contempt for you that you have for us. I want you to be as ashamed of your wealth and your entitlement and how you've had things handed to you. Uh, I, I want you, I want a cultural revolution where the children of the wealthy keep it to themselves and it's their dirty, dark secret. There's a problem in this country uh, where we think Andrew Cuomo earned the right to be governor, that Chris Cuomo earned the right to be on CNN. They had everything handed to them. They're belligerent, spoiled, violent, sexual assault committing vagrants who had a father who was overrated. And this is what we end up with. This is really what what destroyed the British Empire, the 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 aristocracy that was so inbred, weak and stupid. The children of the children of. This is what we've the, the, this so-called meritocracy is a lie. It just breeds generation after generation of inbred incestuous cretins. And you end up with mindless bullies like Andrew Cuomo or Gavin Newsom or uh, uh, what's the other Cuomo, Chris Cuomo, that belligerent prick doesn't even know the godfather. That helps anyway. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. Thank you, Professor Ian Faluna. Thank you, Professor Jonathan Bick. Thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings. And once again, Rodrigo, thank you for getting us Kale Brooks from Jacobin. I appreciate that. And thank you, Dan Frankenberg. Are you still there? Okay. Oh. Hello, pretentious douchebag. What's up, fuckface? <laughs> <laughs> I I love seeing you that way. It's like you that is just how are you? I'm doing good. You ready to do the, the read down to see if you are you, yes, you, you want to test me? I've missed you. Speaking of dying civilizations. Yes. <laughs> He's the one who looks like a professor here. I know. <laughs> It's so great. If anybody should not be dressing like that, it's Dan. Uh, hey, office hours uh, tonight at eight o'clock, 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 not nine o'clock, at eight o'clock, at eight o'clock for our Europeans. Okay, so you, you think I can't name, you think I can't remember the show? Yeah, I'm pretty sure of that. Okay. We started at four. PM Eastern, uh, and I went after Joe Manchin's daughter. I spent thirty minutes attacking. For forty minutes. For forty minutes. For forty minutes, I went after Joe Manchin's idiot daughter, who uh, 
ran Myelin Pharmaceuticals, was making $20 million a year, and did an inversion, sold it to the Netherlands. She abandoned this pharmaceutical company's citizenship. Uh, Anyway, that's you can listen to the top of the show. But I went after uh, Senator Joe Manchin's daughter for 40 minutes, and then the great Henry Huckamacki interviewed Glenn Ford. Correct? Yep. Okay. Talking to North Korea and uh, North Korea on the brink, struggle for survival. His two books, which everybody should buy. By the way, Professor Gerald Horn, uh, Professor Hussein, right after the show, I open up The Nation, and he's got a a big piece in The Nation that we got. Damn it. I wish I could have told him I read that. Um, Okay, five o'clock. We had a pretentious douchebag. You? Nope. Grace Jackson. Uh, What did you call Grace Jackson? No, no, you you were included (laughs) in that hour. You, Grace Jackson, the gent, Ricky Hutchinson from Weekly Marks, and the gentleman who sued Uber in London and the Supreme Court ruled that he's a worker, not a independent contract. Yasin Aslam. Yasin Aslam, yes. That takes us to, uh, don't tell me, then, uh, boom, 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 boom. I know, I, it's at the tip, hang on. I, don't tell me, don't, it's a, oh, just Professor retired. Harvey K. and yeah. Alan Minsky. Yep. And then Ben Burgess, Professor Ben Burgess, then Dr. Hershenfeld and Ethan, yep. then Bert Ross, then Barry W. Lynn, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, then Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Faluna, Professor Adnan Hussein, and Professor Marianne Cummings. A plus. I got them all. Yep. Okay. You done good. All right. Let's let's catch up this weekend because we we don't have anything this weekend to do. Yep. Okay. Uh, thank you, everybody. This is a pledge episode, and uh, remember to go to davidfeldmanshow.com. We accept all major credit cards. Where uh, we also do uh, Patreon. There is no corporate funding here, and uh, so we can attack. And I do mean attack whomever we want. Uh, stay angry. Don't take it out on yourself. Love yourself. Love your body. And uh, love other people. And when you find yourself depressed, lashed at, lash out at uh, the right people. Don't lash out at uh, weak people. Lash out uh Stay angry, but not violent. But stay angry, but not violent. All David, right. I'm getting, break, I'm getting breaking news that uh, Professor Adnan next week is going to be on the micro, Michael Brooks tribute panel. Wow. Spirituality on the left with Marianne Williamson. It's going to be publicly available on YouTube and their podcast uh, on Tuesday, March 2nd. Wow. That's awesome. 
Should I do my Marianne Williamson joke when she was on the show? I would say no. Okay. I better not. I said we both have a lot in common. I <laughs> work with I say crystals. <laughs> you I have an early with... night tonight. You're going to be done by midnight. Right. It's like, uh, yeah. I said uh, you work with crystals and I have crystals in my urinary tract. <laughs> Yes. Please, Please come painful. back, Marianne Williamson. <laughs> very painful. Yeah, this is why. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much. I'll see everybody at office hours. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics a comedy too he tell a dirty joke if you want him to He's just a lefty From way back He's a union man with an Emmy for writing Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way